Thank you, everybody, for showing up. Stifle yourself, Edith. Stifle yourself. Live on YouTube. Here we go. You're a host. I'm feeling you got the yeah. Okay, show hasn't started yet. Good morning. Hi, it's me, David. Just uh, fine-tuning the show here. All right, here we go. I think that's it. Welcome to the mop-up, I think. For August 18th, 2022, I'm David Feldman, coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a park. Hang on. Let's start again, shall we? Should we start again? It's August 18th. I'm depressed. So let yeah, let's let's start again. Welcome to the mop up for August 18th, 2022. Yeah, I did it right. Okay. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft. I think I think I'm coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 85 degrees and it looks like it's going to rain. Sudan's military reports more than 70 people are now dead, 14,500 homes ruined as Sudan's rainy season has turned into mass flooding. Look at that. How are we not helping Sudan? A trillion dollars a year on defense, and we're not helping these people. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs warns 136,000 people living in eastern Sudan have lost their homes and been uprooted. Two years ago in Sudan, the government was forced to declare a three-month state of emergency after 100 people died and 100,000 houses were destroyed. That was two years ago. This is starting to look a lot worse. Well, the equivalent of six months of rain has fallen on Marseille, France this week. France's being hit by massive flooding, high winds and hail. Authorities say five people are now dead in Corsica after the island was hit by gale winds. Paris was hit by flash floods on Tuesday, bringing the morning commute to a complete halt. Well, France is flooding, but Europe is also seeing one of the worst droughts in history, this is man-made climate change, where centuries-old stones and ruins, once covered by river water, are now exposed to the sun 
as Europe's river continue to dry up due to intense heat from man-made climate catastrophe. As I talked about last week, France is unable to cool its nuclear reactors with river water because the river water is too hot. Crops are, are failing. Food and energy prices are rising, not because of the war in Ukraine, but because the rivers are drying up and ships cannot deliver basic essentials. All that rain and drought in Europe, fire, record year for wildfires in Europe. The Guardian today reports that an area the size of one-fifth of Belgium has been destroyed by fires this summer. The previous record for fire season in Europe was back in 2017, where half as much was burnt. Summer is still with us. So far, Spain has been the hardest hit in Europe, followed by Portugal and France. Kenyans went to the polls last week to elect a prime minister. This week, they tallied the vote, and the loser, Ayla Odinga, has refused to concede and is taking his challenge all the way to Kenya's Supreme Court. The chairman of the election commission, Wafula Chabukati, declared Deputy President William Ruto the winner of the election. He was not expected to win, and scuffles broke out at polling stations in Kenya. Odinga, who lost but refuses to concede, has the support of sitting President Uhuru Kenyatta. Well, in other third world news, Rockland County, New York, it's about 20 miles away from Manhattan, has an outbreak of polio. Why? Today, a polio vaccine clinic opened in Rockland County, New York, an area where the vaccination rate is as low as 37 percent. 37 percent of Rockland County has been vaccinated for polio. You look at what's going on in Sudan. You look at what's going on in in chronically impoverished nations. And we're blessed to have a polio vaccine. And these shitheads, literally, you get polio from having a shithead. It comes from raw sewage. You waste our time and our resources not getting vaccinated. We have more important things to worry about other than Neanderthals, these anti-vaxxers who spread polio because of douchebags who spread misinformation about vaccines. We should be taking care of Sudan right now. Uh, These. okay. anyway. Uh, Pedro Castillo is a Peruvian elementary school teacher, a union leader and politician and Last July, he was elected president of Peru. He's a socialist. And so far in one year, there have been three attempts to impeach Pedro Castillo. A new report by the Subcommittee on Constitutional Accusations that's inside the Peruvian Congress has recommended the impeachment of socialist president Castillo. Uh, There's the alleged uh, corruption, and uh, now they're accusing him of treason by uh, deciding to give Bolivia uh, 
uh, an outlet to the sea that uh, I guess Peru has had since 1884. So uh, it's not good enough just to elect socialists. You've got to keep them in office. One year, three impeachments. Well, here in America, Tuesday was another election day for the midterms. Here in America, hey, Donald Trump, how did things go in Wyoming? Liz, you're fired. Right. Uh, congratulations, Donald Trump. Liz Cheney lost by a landslide to Harriet, I'm going to pronounce it Hagman. I don't know how you pronounce her last name. She's a cattle attorney in Wyoming. She's never held elective office. She was an ally of Liz Cheney's until she saw an opportunity to go MAGA and she got the Republican nomination for Congress in Wyoming, which means she's going to be going to to Congress. And Harriet Hagman, she's pretty much the, the new Congress person from Wyoming. She's playing along with Fox News. She went on Sean Hannity and lied about Liz Cheney. She said Liz Cheney didn't concede. She refused to concede that she lost. Get it? Because Liz Cheney's on the January 6th committee, and that's all about Donald Trump not willing to concede. Harriet Hagman goes on Sean Hannity and says Liz Cheney is a sore loser, and she, she just like Donald Trump, refuses to concede. Here she is sucking up to Sean Hannity. Well, there wasn't a phone call while I was going in and getting ready to do my acceptance speech last night and had just arrived at the watch party. She called and left a very brief two second message on my on my cell phone. That's the extent of it. I haven't had any other contact with Liz Cheney. She only made the one effort. And all she said was, hello, Harriet, Harriet. And then that was the end of it. So uh, she didn't call and discuss with me any kind of concession or anything else. It was just a one phone call. I was obviously extremely. So busy with family and friends. She she just said hello, Harriet, and then hung up. That was the end of the call. Yes, that was the, that was the only time. It was oh. about eight fifteen last night, and I was just getting ready to go on stage with my acceptance speech. Well, you're a liar. That's a lie. So you're going to do really well on Fox News and inside the Republican Party. That is a lie because Liz Cheney taped her call to Liz. What is her name? Harriet? Harriet Hagman? Unfortunately for Harriet Hagman, there's actually tape of Liz Cheney calling to concede the election graciously. She left a message on the answering machine. Here, here it is. AP's calling it. So we should go. calling. It's uh, about 8.13 on uh, Tuesday the 16th. I'm calling to concede the election uh, and uh, to uh, to congratulate you on the win. Thanks. Bye-bye. Unlike Donald Trump, she conceded graciously. And then she went out in front of her supporters, Liz Cheney, and delivered her concession speech, admitting Imagine this, a Republican admitting they lost an election. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but it would have required 
that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. Well, I'm going to crap on Liz Cheney in a second. Trust me. But she is, by the definition of a profile in courage, she is a profile in courage. Trust me, give me a few seconds and I'm going to crap on her. But the term profile in courage comes from a book written by Theodore Sorensen that Jack Kennedy, when he was a senator, uh, put his name on. But Profiles in Courage was written by speechwriter Theodore Sorensen. He didn't get credit for it. Jack Kennedy did. But it is a collection of essays about American politicians who sacrificed their political career for what is correct. By definition, she is a profile in courage. Now, in a movie, we love heroes who were bad and then do something righteous. Okay, I'm going to talk about it what a bad person Liz Cheney is in a second. However, this is a profile in courage. By the very definition, you know, it's a phrase coined by President Kennedy, and there is the Profile in Courage Award that uh, uh, Caroline Kennedy gives out every year. I was supposed to marry Caroline Kennedy, but we never met. Uh, she gives out the Profile in Courage Award every year. Liz Cheney is going to get the Profile in Courage Award, whether you like it or not. Okay? She went on to say this during her concession speech. This is a Republican. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office. And I mean it. Okay, so in a movie, that is a profile in courage. In a movie, you take a piece of shit, that's the first act, and then the piece of shit redeems itself by doing something noble. So, you know, Liz Cheney is redeeming herself. She is standing up to Donald Trump. But, 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 let us go to Tim Murphy. Uh, he writes for Mother Jones. I think we had him on the show. Tim Murphy writes for Mother Jones. I think we had Tim on the show, I don't know, about eight years ago. This is from Mother Jones in 2000. And uh, when did he write this? Oh, he wrote this uh, this week. Uh, the headline is Liz Cheney was defeated by the extremist movement she helped to empower. This is Tim Murphy senior reporter over at Mother Jones. If not for Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election, she would still be backing him, so says Tim Murphy. He goes on to write, in the run-up to the 2016 election, Liz Cheney issued a dire warning. The future of American democracy and the nation's place as a symbol of freedom to the world was on the ballot. If voters choose poorly, she told Rush Limbaugh, the next president, quote, 
would be the most corrupt individual ever to sit in the Oval Office, unquote. Tim Murphy goes on to write, she was re- she was referring, of course, to Hillary Clinton. This is from Tim Murphy. So, yes, there there is a problem with Liz Cheney. She is a political animal. She turned her back on her sister, Mary, came out against same sex marriage, even though her sister was a lesbian. She stopped talking to Liz because of that. I think they've made up. This is a deeply flawed daughter of an evil, evil monster, Dick Cheney, who should be frog marched before The Hague. There's no question. But in a movie, this is how movies work. This is how Hollywood works. You take somebody who is bad and they redeem themselves temporarily. She's pretty bad. This is an article uh, from Laura Baron Lopez, and it was written, I believe, in 2017. It, uh, the headline is, Liz Cheney supports waterboarding and attacks the CIA torture report. This is written by Laura, uh, I can't read that, Laura Brandon Lopez. And I believe this is also from Mother Jones. She writes back in 2017, Liz Cheney also asserted that waterboarding works and that it helped in securing crucial information leading to the capture of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden, a debunked theory. She says, quote, it's been clear. This is what Liz Cheney said. It's been clear, certainly since we stopped the enhanced interrogation program, we're not even in a position anymore, frankly, where we're very often capturing people. We have done nothing. We have nothing to do with people when we do capture them. So she's saying we don't we don't torture, we don't waterboard. But when we do waterboard, it's a good thing. She is perpetuating the evil lie that emanates from her father. Waterboarding is torture. I don't want to get into why waterboarding is torture. That's for another show. But if you support waterboarding, you don't support the values of the United States and you make life more difficult for our soldiers. As John McCain, who also came out against waterboarding, he said, without our moral authority, if we waterboard, that puts our soldiers in danger. We can't complain when other countries waterboard our soldiers, right? Which is why it's kind of hard for us now to talk about going before the International Criminal Court and putting Vladimir Putin on trial. We've lost the moral authority before the International Criminal Court because why? Because we waterboard partly, but also because we're not signatories (laughs) to the International Criminal Court. We don't support the International Criminal Court. Why not? Because Liz Cheney's father, Dick Cheney, would be dragged before the International Criminal Court for authorizing torture and lying about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and falsely accusing Saddam Hussein 
of attacking us on 9-11. Dick Cheney should be frog-marched before the International Criminal Court, and that's why, that's why we're not signatories to it. Well, in her concession speech, this profile in courage, and I do, I'm sorry, I think this is a profile in courage. She said to Trump supporters, if you support Donald Trump, then you buy into a series of lies. One of those lies is that the FBI planted evidence. This is the new lie that the FBI planted evidence in Mar-a-Lago. Here is Liz Cheney. You must also believe that 30 career FBI agents who have spent their lives working to serve our country, abandoned their honor and their oaths and went to Mar-a-Lago not to perform a lawful search or address a national security threat, but instead with a secret plan to plant fake incriminating documents in the boxes they seized. This is yet another insidious lie. The FBI, 30 FBI agents denounced their oath and planted evidence in Mar-a-Lago. Not, not good coming from Dick Cheney's daughter, which is what he forced the CIA to do. He forced the CIA to gin up a war in Iraq. We all know this. He kept saying, look for any evidence you have that shows Saddam Hussein is behind 9-11 or has weapons of mass destruction. And then he planted the fake and incriminating evidence about Saddam Hussein by going to Judith Miller of the New York Times and giving her phony documents to prove that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. It is exactly what Dick Cheney did. He planted evidence in Iraq. He, so this is why people of his same party uh, are willing to believe that the FBI planted evidence in Mar-a-Lago, which I don't think they did. But when you have corrupt people like Dick Cheney as our vice president, it sows the seeds of doubt about our law enforcement agencies, about our CIA. Yes, our government does plant evidence to gin up wars. All war is a lie. All war is a lie. Dick Cheney knew that, so he planted evidence. Pretty hard for the Cheneys to stay in politics because their legacy is one of torture and lies and a million dead Iraqis because they supported and ginned up an illegal invasion of Iraq. Dick Cheney should be behind bars. Nobody is above the law. That's what the message is from the January 6th hearings. Then Dick Cheney should be in jail for killing tens of thousands of American troops. False. We went to war on false premises. They, they did not have weapons of mass destruction. Dick Cheney knew that. Saddam Hussein was not behind 9-11. Dick Cheney knew that. He lied us into a war. I can't think of anything worse. I can't think of anything worse. He should be behind bars if we were a nation 
of laws. If we were true to the theme of the January 6th committee that no one is above the law, Dick Cheney would be in prison, which is why the Trumps have been so successful hijacking the Republican Party because nobody's flying the plane. Here's Eric Trump uh, doing some nasty dog whistles yesterday. Last night, my father killed another political dynasty, and that's the Cheneys. He first killed the Bushes, then he killed the Clintons. Uh, last night, he killed um, the Cheneys. Yeah, he's been rhino hunting ever since he got into politics, and uh, last night, he was successful again. Yeah. Really, uh, <laughs> really despicable choice of words, especially now. Uh, very irresponsible rhetoric, killing. Uh, and this is, you know... Eric Trump talking about killing rhinos, and he literally kills rhinos, rhinos in name only, actual rhinoceri. Here, uh, yeah, bad, bad people, the Trumps. As bad as Dick Cheney? This is the problem. This is the problem. Sloppier, more honest about their dishonesty, uh, more openly disloyal than the Cheneys. But, you know, I if you're doing the beam counting, who's responsible for more dead people? Eric Trump's daddy or Liz Cheney's daddy? It It's Liz Cheney's daddy by a landslide. That's Those are the facts. These are the uncomfortable truths. We can rewrite history and give Liz Cheney a Profile and Courage Award, which I think she does deserve. I do. Uh, it would have been nice if she showed us a Profile and Courage back in 2003, right before her father invaded Iraq. Well, believe it or not, Don Jr. had a rare moment of clarity doing the post-mortem on Tuesday's elections. Here he is talking about Liz Cheney. Uh, it's just one big grift, ultimately, Rob. Uh, you know, she's auditioning for the role of the conservative, you know, in air quotes, uh, on CNN while simultaneously running for a board seat at Raytheon so we can continue the endless wars. Uh, and then she's going to grift uh, and try to find, the, you know, the Joe Walsh lane uh, for president to be funded by, you know, the Lincoln Project. Uh, it never ends. And, uh, you know, I, I think she's going to probably learn that the hard way. Uh, I, I think we're probably done uh, with Cheney's uh, in American politics and good riddance. Even a stopped clock addicted to cocaine is right twice a day. Uh, this is what Hitler did. Sorry, it's what Hitler did. You know, he put... The, the word socialist into the Nazi party. Nazi is an acronym and it includes the word socialist. Uh, Hitler learned from Goebbels to be all things to all people, to throw red meat at the entire country. And that is what Don Jr. is learning to do or has learned to do. He learned it from his father. You throw out all the terms the 99% want to hear the word oligarchs and everything Don Jr. just said is exactly what people like me want to hear. Goebbels taught Hitler and Trump and Don Jr. to work this way. It's faux populism and it's incredibly dangerous. 
It's incredibly dangerous. And he's saying good riddance to the Cheney dynasty. Is this the last we're going to see of Liz Cheney? I don't know. The January 6th committee finishes up supposedly in in late September. Liz is not going back to that committee because she's not going back to the House after, what, January 3rd, 2023. Uh, Savannah Guthrie on Today asked Liz Cheney uh, Wednesday morning after she lost about her political future. You didn't say yes or no, and that's fine if you're thinking about it. But are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but uh, but it is something that I uh, I'm thinking about, and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. And here is the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. The Republicans have real debates. This is what's going to happen. Liz Cheney is going to run for president and she's going to challenge Donald in debates, in the primaries. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be cutthroat and there'll be open debate and accusations. You know how Donald Trump in 2016 turned to Jeb and trashed his uh, brother for Iraq and told the truth about Iraq Donald Trump. I have played that clip countless times on the show. The Republicans have real debates. Donald Trump in 2016 made it settled law that the invasion of Iraq was a failure. And he said it right to Jeb Bush's face. And Jeb Bush stammered. Jeb Bush had to come up with five different answers he was asked five different times, knowing what you know now, Jeb Bush, would you supported your brother's invasion of Iraq? It took him five times to try to get it right, and he never got it right. Donald Trump got it right and made it settled law that George W. Bush was the worst president in American history. And then a clue that not Jefferson Davis, I think right behind Jefferson Davis. Worst. George W. Bush, the worst. And Dick Cheney. So Liz is going to run and she's going to stand up to Donald Trump and it's going to be exciting. We're all going to watch. But if Donald Trump runs, he is going to steamroll over her. He's going to say everything that needs to be said about Liz Cheney and the Cheney dynasty and uh, the Bush family. Uh, this is the problem with Liz and Dick. And uh, when you are corrupt to the core, when you suddenly find Jesus, as Liz Cheney has, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. You come from shit. You're you're. You're, you're Dick Cheney's daughter, which means you come from shit. Your father is a war criminal. So you want to run being his daughter. You want all the perks that come with being Dick Cheney's daughter. Well, you also get the baggage. And that baggage is your father is a war criminal by definition. By definition, a war criminal, the same way 
your concession speech and you're going on the January 6th committee and doing the Lord's work, standing up to Donald Trump. And I thank you for that. By definition, that is a profile and courage. And I think you deserve a profile and courage award. But by definition of what a war criminal is, you are the daughter of a war criminal. You stand behind waterboarding and torture. Uh, You're not as bad as your father, but just the same way you say Donald Trump shouldn't be anywhere near the Oval Office, the same goes for you. The same goes for you, Liz Cheney. But thank you for your service. You're, you're doing something good right now. You're, you're a useful idiot, like George W. Bush. That's what the Cheneys thought of George W. Bush. He was a useful idiot and uh, worst president this country has ever had. And he's disappeared sort of from public life. He hands mints to Michelle Obama at funerals. He's pretty much laid low. But this week, former President George W. Bush, war criminal, debuted a master class. Everybody, there's redemption for everybody. He has joined the ranks. You know, master class, it's an online course. Steve Martin teaches a class there, Judd Apatow, Apatow. Uh, uh, Wolfgang Puck, artists, musicians, and obviously George W. Bush has taken up painting and uh, he's joined the the ranks of, you know, artisans, uh, comedians, screenwriters, David Mamet, uh, Aaron Sorkin. He's obviously teaching a master class in painting. I'm George W. Bush. And this is Masterclass. Let's see, that's, I, I, you know what? That's great. He's staying out of politics and he's, you know, he's, he's 75 and, you know, he, he's laying low and he's teaching art. One of the things I missed after the presidency was this daily learning. And thankfully, painting came into my life. It's a learning experience because with every paint stroke, you learn something new. All right, I'm going to do another flower. That's great. Seriously, uh, the, the single worst president in American history is teaching art. He can't hurt anybody teaching art. And uh, this is good because he's evil. He's a war criminal. Like... Dick Cheney, he illegally invaded Iraq, close to a million dead, country destroyed. He ignored intelligence briefings and allowed the World Trade Center to be attacked. He ignored weather reports and wasn't prepared for Hurricane Katrina, so it destroyed all of New Orleans. He ignored warnings uh, and allowed capitalism to collapse on his watch. Remember that? 2008. Capitalism died under George W. Bush's watch. We had to bail out the banks. We had to turn to socialism to save capitalism while George Bush was president. Uh, He lowered taxes for the wealthy while trying to privatize our government. And most importantly, he destroyed the planet by catering to his father's oil buddies. It goes on and on and on. And... Look, he's not doing the honorable thing. He's not teaching a class on uh, how not to repeat the mistakes he made. He's 
He's teaching art and he, uh, wait, wait, he's, there's, there's more, he's, is he not teaching art? I think you'll find lessons in leadership that will apply lessons to your life. In leadership? Oh, wait, 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 wait. He's teaching lessons. This is, that came out this week. This is his new class, Lessons in Leadership, Master Class. He's teaching, it's not art. He's teaching a master class in how to repeat the mistakes of the, the past. Not this. All right, I'm going to do another flower. No, you're, you're not going to teach us. It's Lessons in leadership, and you know, I saw on the screen uh, also teaching lessons in leadership is Condi Rice, who uh, is also a war criminal, Madeleine Albright, who is responsible for 500,000 dead Iraqi children because of economic sanctions. I also saw a master class being taught by Hillary, uh, Libya, war criminal, Bill, well, we won't even go there. And Laura Bush has a lesson in leadership there. Well, George W. Bush is teaching a class in leadership because in America, those who forget history are doomed to teach a master class. Uh, not, no, not, not uh, what I was hoping. George Bush teaching a, a master class in uh Wow. When I was speaking to audiences, I didn't want them to think I was smarter than they were. Mission accomplished. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Nobody thought you were smarter than us. Not at all. Uh, mission accomplished. I do have a soft spot in my heart for George W. Bush because he has a soft spot in his brain. You know, I had I was a master at the Malaprop. Misunderestimate. The press corps reaction was, did guy really just say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, master of the Malaprop. You know, like uh, there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which attacked us on 9-11. That was his other uh, Malaprop. What else are you going to teach in your master class, war criminal George W. Bush. <laughs> As president, sometimes I had information that the American people didn't know, and therefore I had to make decisions what was best for the country on knowledge that wasn't evident. That's just the nature of leadership. I had information that the American people didn't know, like there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and Iraq wasn't behind 9-11. And my lesson in leadership is sometimes you have to make decisions uh, based on what the American people don't know. And the American people don't know that because you're keeping it from them to gin up a phony war. What are they paying him? Uh, like probably a million dollars to teach this bullshit class? Unbelievable. <laughs> All right. That... That was a clip of George W. Bush laughing that I prepared, and it's not good. <laughs> yeah. All right, if I had more time, it seemed like a good idea.
It seemed like a good idea at the time, kind of like George Bush passing Medicare Part D, which killed millions of senior citizens. Did I mention that he killed millions of senior citizens through Medicare Part D? Uh, thanks to Medicare Part D, millions of senior citizens couldn't afford their prescription meds because it seemed like a good idea at the time to allow uh, Big Farmer to uh, do some price gouging. And it seemed like a good idea at the time if, you know, you own stock in Big Pharma. Well, he's teaching a class in leadership not on how to destroy a country. That would be a good, that would be a great service to the world to teach a master class on how to destroy the country or to teach Americans what the warning signs are of a deeply flawed uh, drug-addled brain uh, running for president uh, is capable of or incapable of. Actually, he was a very capable tool of very powerful people. He, it, you know, think about George W. Bush. I, I do have a soft spot for him because I think deep down, oh, I know deep down he's suffering. He knows the truth. And there were stories that he would greet the coffins uh, at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. I think it's Andrews Air Force Base. And he would meet the parents the wives and the children and break down and cry and say, I'm so sorry. He would go to Walter Reed, cry and say, I'm so sorry. And occasionally betray, betray himself and say, it was wrong. The war, I know this was wrong. Please forgive me. He would ask the soldiers for forgiveness. There are reports. So he knows he did something evil. He paints Soldiers, wounded warriors that he's responsible for, trying to find some redemption. You're not going to find redemption, George. The only way you can redeem yourself is by coming clean with the American people and, saying, and, and laying out a blueprint for future leaders. This is how I ended up making the worst foreign policy mistake in the history of the United States which the invasion of Iraq was. The invasion of Iraq was the worst foreign policy mistake in American history, period. There's no argument over that. And if he wants to rehabilitate his image, he should come clean and apologize to the American people and teach us, do a PowerPoint, how to avoid this. Again, don't make my, you know, I scared straight type of video. But no, he is being, uh, this is what we do in America. We just gloss over history. We rewrite history, you know, for the good of the country, for the good of the country, we don't demonize George W. Bush. That's how you justify giving him a master class and letting him be a statesman instead of what he is, which is a war criminal. So let's uh, watch another clip from the promo for George W. Bush's masterclass in leadership. 
it's important to have a set of priorities that guide you and your team, your company, your managers have got to understand those priorities. To me, the most important priorities were my faith in my family and my friends. That may sound corny to some, but it helps you reorganize the rest of your life. Welcome, darling. Thanks. Great. Glad to be here. So his priorities as president were faith, family, and friends. Those were your priorities. Would have been nice if your priorities were the one million children who died in Iraq. That would have been better. You know, you're the president of the United States. We didn't elect you to put your religion, your family, and friends first. We kind of hoped you would keep us safe from a terrorist attack on 9-11. We were kind of hoping that your priorities would be reading intelligence briefings entitled, and I'm not making this up, kids, Osama bin Laden intent on flying planes into the World Trade Center. He didn't read these memos. He had been warned all summer that Osama bin Laden is going to fly planes into a building. He didn't have time. He was playing golf. Uh, and he had other priorities, right? Faith, family, and friends. Those were his priorities. Must be nice, uh, you know, being uh, one of his friends or a member of his family and or Jesus, you know, faith. He has faith in Jesus. I don't think Jesus has too much faith in George W. Bush. Uh, George W. Bush, his priorities were faith, right? By faith, what he really means is illiterate and stupid Christian evangelicals filled with hate. Those were the, the, the faithful he courted by running the most homophobic presidential campaign in American history. In 2004, when he was running for re-election, homosexuality was on the ballot. He ran against the gays. Same-sex marriage. He was running against same-sex marriage, as was Dick Cheney, whose daughter, Mary, is a lesbian. And But, you know, uh, faith comes first, I guess, then family with the Bush-Cheney dynasty. Uh, so he, his priorities are faith, toothless, brain-dead Christian evangelicals who hate the teachings of Christ almost as much as they hate blacks, the LGBTQ, Arabs, Hispanics, Jews. That's who he catered to. And this was compassionate conservatism, by the way. And his priority is family, right? And uh, yeah, his family, he prioritized his family by protecting all his brothers and his father's investments in oil companies. They did very well when he was president. And uh, that was family. And by friends, friends are very important, all his Texas oil buddies, which includes the Bin Laden family. He was friendly with the Bin Laden family. Look that one up. That's why the Bin Laden family was able to, the only people allowed out, all the flights were shut down on 9-11. Only one group of people could leave, could fly on 9-11 after the towers came down. And it was the Bin Laden family. I think they were in Louisville, Kentucky. I think there was some horse race thing that they were attending. The entire Bin Laden family was allowed to fly out. Uh, and back to Saudi Arabia, which is why 
uh, he wanted Osama bin Laden dead or alive, but mostly dead. He didn't want a trial, did you, George? <laughs> yeah, you didn't want to put bin Laden on trial. He bin Laden had to die. That's why uh, we killed him instead of doing what we did after World War Two. We held the Nuremberg trials. No, we're not putting anybody on trial uh, for 9-11 because George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were complicit, either through their friendships with the Saudi princes who funded 9-11 or through their criminal malfeasance, just letting our nation's guard down on 9-11. Well, I'll tell you why this is so hard for the Republican Party and why Liz Cheney running against Donald Trump. It's going to be fun watching this, assuming uh, there's still a country, but uh, it's going to be fun watching Liz Cheney and Donald Trump go, go at it. Uh, Donald Trump's going to destroy her uh, because she's right about Donald Trump, but he's also right about the Cheney family. And uh, one of the things that's going to come up in the debates is that Donald Trump never got America into a war. He is the only president in American history who didn't get us into a war. That's a fact. Donald Trump is the only American president who never got us into a war. Don't take it from me. Take it from Another idiot son of a president, this would be Eric Trump. You know, we never fought this. He was anti-war. He didn't want to go to war. He's the first president in United States history that didn't start a war. He didn't want to go to war. No, he, he's never wanted to go to war. He What was it, bone spurs? He didn't want to go to Vietnam. And he, what, say that again, Eric, please. This was yesterday. You know, we never fought this. He was anti-war. He didn't want to go to war. He's the first president in United States history that didn't start a war. Yeah, he never started a war unless you count the inv the invasion of America, except, you know, except January 6th, that war and his telling his generals to shoot Black Lives Matter protesters in the legs. He, he never got us into a, a war overseas. I guess that is kind of true. He killed Soleimani, he did the drone strikes. He, we, yeah, we did some stuff in Syria that we know of. And uh, plenty of presidents, by the way, never got us into a war. Jimmy Carter uh, uh, never got us into a war. I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's a little hot in here. Obama, did he get us into a war? I mean, he... We were in Iraq and Afghanistan, but he didn't get us into he did the drone strikes. He should be frog marched before uh, the International Criminal Court as well. But did he get us into did he launch an attack? I don't know. Well, uh, it's really unfair the way Donald Trump is being treated. They raided his home in Mar-a-Lago, two impeachments. He's got all these investigations going on. It, it, it is so unfair how we treat Donald Trump. You know who says it best? Don Jr.'s fiance. 
She's the former wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom. This is true. And she's going to be Don Jr.'s uh, fiance. Here is Kimberly Gargoyle defending her future father-in-law, who told Don Jr. that I'm not making this up, that he I'm not going to even repeat this. It's so gross. I can't do it. Can't do it. Here is Kimberly Gargoyle, who Donald Trump told Don Jr. he had a chance with. I had a chance with your fiance, but I, I turned her down. Here is Kimberly Gargoyle, former wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom, coming to the defense of Donald Trump. That's a whole other story, but he is the singly most persecuted person in American political history. The single most persecuted political person in U.S. history. I, maybe that's true. I don't know. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer like Kimberly Gargoyle. She was I think she was a prosecutor in San Francisco. I did. Maybe I think she might have come from the same office as our vice president. I think. Well, there's a lot of trouble for this this persecuted man, Donald Trump, and it's coming out of Florida. A lot of bad things in Florida, not just the raid. Ron DeSantis is is coming up. He's he's nipping at Donald Trump's heels. It's uh, he's got ideas that are almost as brilliant as Donald Trump's, maybe even more brilliant. For example, there's a teacher shortage in Florida. And instead of recruiting new teachers from New York who are going to teach, you know, white kids that black people exist, uh, he doesn't want teachers from out of state. He's come up with a brilliant patriotic idea. He's suggesting, and they're going to do this, they're doing this in Florida, instead of bringing teachers in from out out of state, who, you know, worry about pronouns, he's inviting Iraqi and Afghani war veterans to come teach in Florida public schools. I'm not making this up. It's such a great idea. I can't believe we haven't already thought of this. Uh, He's inviting Iraqi and Afghani war veterans, American veterans, who never had the time to get a college degree uh, he's he's incentivizing veterans to teach in our public schools. And by teaching in our public schools, they will then earn the right to attend college. Here is the brilliant Ron DeSantis, and he's a, a veteran. Uh, he survived Harvard and Yale as well, I think, as Afghanistan. I think, uh, you know, he's uh, he was in Pensacola on Wednesday And this is a third rail. So I'm not, you know, he's a veteran, Ron DeSantis. uh, So I'm not going to argue with him. Just, you know, he's a veteran and he has an idea for veterans. And the idea is you don't need a four-year degree to teach in Florida public schools. Everything you need to know you already learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. You don't need four years of college to teach in Florida public schools. And these are veterans, and he's a veteran. We don't question. It's disloyal to the troops. Uh, it's unpatriotic to to even question this idea. I, I, I don't. I don't want to be smug. 
I don't want to sound like I hate the troops. Uh, you know, it, you know, I'll be honest with you. There's a little part of me that thinks maybe this isn't a good idea. You know, people who haven't graduated from college teaching children. Uh, uh, but I don't want anybody to think I'm a snob or that I hate the troops. So uh, he's a veteran. This is about veterans. I have no right to question this. L let him explain. Able to get a temporary certificate, be able to teach, and then obviously work to get their bachelor's degree. And it was unanimously passed by the legislature. You know, some in the media just recently started attacking us over this. They said, you can't just put any old warm body in the classroom and look as a veteran. I will tell you, like the people that serve our country are not just some warm body. Uh, they're people that have a lot to offer. So, so we're we're proud of that. We think it makes a lot of sense. And and Manny will tell you we have well, we have interest um, in people that are applying. Yeah, uh, he's surrounded by law enforcement. I'm not going to criticize the. Tr I love you know. I don't want to be accused of hating America or hating our troops. That's so. Let let him decide because he's a veteran and and uh, it's a great idea. Uh, people who don't have a college degree teaching our children uh, send our vets into Florida classrooms, Florida where everyone carries a gun. Yeah, good idea. Our vets have already been shot at overseas, and I'm, I'm sure they're looking forward to going into our Florida classrooms and getting shot at in their own country now. Uh, but I guess I hate the vets if I think this is a bad idea. So it must be a good idea having vets earn their college degree by teaching our kids in the public schools. Uh, here's an idea. Instead of sending them to college, why don't we just say if you teach kids in our public schools, you get a college degree with that. You know, just give these guys a college degree for just teaching our kids. Right. It's Florida. Why not? Uh, or you could have the kids teach the kids. And then if you have the kids teaching their fellow students, they get to graduate high school with a college degree. Then they don't have to go off to college. They already have a college degree. And that solves the student debt problem. So, look. Ron DeSantis is a veteran, and we're not allowed to question veterans because it's disloyal to the troops. All we're allowed to do is deny the VA funding to treat all the cancers that our veterans come home with. That's not unpatriotic. That's not disloyal to the troops. But if I say it's a bad idea to take vets who haven't graduated from college and just have them teach our children without a college education. If I say that's a bad idea, idea, I'm a smug New York snob. Uh, and I'm not. And I think it's a great idea. I love the vets. I trust Ron DeSantis. Uh, you know, why stop with uh, taking vets who haven't graduated from college? Why stop with having them teach 
why don't they just become doctors without going to medical school, right? Uh, if you love our troops, you'll you'll let them teach your kids without a college education. And if you love our troops, you'll let them operate on your brain without a medical degree. Because the GOP, they're right. We have to love our troops. That's what we have to do. Unless the VA needs more funding for their cancers, then not so much. This is my ABCs. There are many. This is how a... a uh, a soldier will teach our, our children. This is my ABCs. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My ABCs is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. My ABCs without me is useless. Without my ABCs, I am useless. I must fire my ABCs true. I must shoot straighter than my enemy who is trying to kill me. I must shoot him before he shoots me. Now I know my ABCs. Next time, don't tell me Iraq was responsible for 9-11 and had weapons of mass destruction because I don't like coming home with PTSD. All right. Uh, Florida, luckily, will soon be underwater. The way we're going. But... Unfortunately for Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis is catching on. And this is not good for Trump. This is not good for Trump. Here is Carrie Lake. She's a Republican running for governor of Arizona. She's an election denier. And Trump loves her. He endorsed her. But she has a wandering eye. Here she is cooing over Ron DeSantis. I'll tell you what he's got. I don't know if you heard of this, but he's got BDE. Anybody know what that means? Ask your kids about it later. BDE. So I didn't know what BDE is. So I asked my kids about BDE. And my kids told me I have BDE. They, it, it, it means big douchebag energy. BDE. That's what my kids say. I said, what does BDE mean? And they said, oh, you've got it. I go, really? Because Ron DeSantis has it. They go, yeah, it's big douchebag energy. So uh, I guess that's good. Anyway, Carrie Lake at Turning Points last week said Ron DeSantis has BDE, big douchebag energy. I think that's what BDE means. And, but here's the problem for Trump. Uh, she says Trump also has BDE. So she's playing both sides in the presidential election. He's got the same kind of BDE that President Trump has. And frankly, he has the same kind of BDE that we want all of our elected leaders to have. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, BDE. I, I just, somebody just told me it, it means big dick energy. It means you have a big swinging dick. And she's saying that uh, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump have a big swinging dick, big dick energy. 
He's got the same kind of BDE that President Trump has. And frankly, he has the same kind of BDE that we want all of our elected leaders to have. Okay, so watching that again, let's go over this. We want all our elected leaders to have big dick energy. This is what Carrie Lake is saying. Now, let's use the, the logic here. Um, Trump is an elected leader. Uh, he has BDE, right? That's what she says. Ron DeSantis, also an elected leader. He, too, has BDE, big dick energy. And Carrie Lake says all our elected leaders should have big dick energy. And she, I think she, it's a she, she's a she, I think, wants to be an elected leader. So that means Carrie Lake just says she has a dick. She's running for office. She just said she's got big dick energy. L watch the logic here. This is what she's saying. He's got the same kind of BDE that President Trump has. And frankly, he has the same kind of BDE that we want all of our elected leaders to have. Right. And we want all our elected leaders to have big dick energy. You are running to be an elected leader. You're saying you've got big dick energy. You've got some swinging meat down there, just like just like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. You you go, girl or boy or whatever pronoun you want us to call you, Carrie Lake, because on this show, we love women, especially women with big dicks like you, Carrie Lake, who you've got big dick energy. We we love you. Uh, we support you, although you might want to switch parties since you have big dick energy. Uh, Carrie Lake, you have a big swinging dick, and I'm not sure there are going to be any bathrooms for you at the Republican convention, Carrie Lake, with your your big dick energy. I don't know. You've got a big swinging dick there, Carrie Lake. Uh, I don't know if the Republicans are going to want to have anything to do with you. Sad. Although I'm sure there are lots of Christian evangelicals in the Republican Party who would secretly pay you top dollar to have you micturate all over their face with your big swinging dick. And that's the truth. That's the truth. That's who these people are. That's who they are. You know, we all have dreams. You know, I've had dreams where I woke up and I went, wow, that, that is some, that's a weird fantasy. And because I was raised by coastal elitists who told me you can think about anything you want sexually, uh, sex is whatever, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And I wake up and I go, well, that was interesting. That, that, that was interesting. I, I, it's going to be hard for me to make eye contact with these mice in my apartment. I, I didn't realize I was going to sexualize them, but I can, because I was raised properly, I know that fantasy is fantasy. Imagine if you're raised by 
stupid Orthodox Jews or stupid evangelical Christians who attach shame to homosexuality. You know, your brain plays horrible tricks on you. And so you go to bed and you're not allowed to think about blowing a man. And you have a wet dream where you're blowing a man and it's there. And you wake up in a puddle of your own fluids, having fantasized subconsciously in a deep dream about blowing a man. And then you wake up to your, your right wing, hateful family. And you get this crazed look in your eye all day. And you just are terrified that that, that dream is going to come to fruition and that you're going to enjoy it. And you spend the rest of your life fending off these dreams. That's who the Republican Party is. Not all of them, but that's who these gun-toting, warmongering, anti-LBGTQ bigots are. They dream about what they're not allowed to suck on, and they're terrified. Well, bad week for Trump. It continues. Uh, Alex Jones this week is uh, taunting Donald Trump. We have someone that is better than Trump, way better than Trump. Really? Somebody better than Trump? Now, what would Alex Jones, and I, not who, what would Alex Jones, uh, what could he possibly think is better than Tr John Hinckley? Hinckley's been freed. He's making music. I bet it's John Hinckley. I bet he's going to support John Hinckley uh, for president. Alex, is it, is, it, uh, is it John Hinckley? I am supporting DeSantis. Oh, DeSantis is just gone from being awesome to being unbelievably good. And I don't just watch a man's actions, as Christ said, judge a tree by his fruits. I can also look in his eyes on HD video, and I see the real sincerity. Wow. So I was close. I said John Hinckley. He said Ron DeSantis. Uh, I was close. Ron DeSantis, not Donald Trump. And Alex Jones said yesterday that he can look into someone eye, someone's eyes and see their sincerity. Even on HDTV, he doesn't have to be in the same room with that person. He can look into somebody's eyes and see their sincerity. That's kind of the same way George W. Bush told us that he looked into Vladimir Putin's eyes and saw a Christian. Do you remember that? He looked, he said, I looked in Vladimir Putin's eyes and, and saw a Christian. And he did see a Christian, uh, uh, you know, the same kind of Christian who would vote for Dick Cheney and uh, Donald Trump and George W. Bush. A, uh, I call them chinos, Christian in name only, right? They're rhinos, Republicans in name only. Uh, Alex Jones, he was quoting Jesus and, you know, George Bush said his favorite philosopher was uh, Jesus. He's a Chino, a Christian in name only. Well, Tucker Carlson's a disciple of Alex Jones. Did you know that? That's what's coming out. There are reports that Alex Jones' cell phone is lousy with text messages from Tucker Carlson 
asking, how do you do it? How do you do it? I'm being serious here. This was, look it up. It's in the Daily Beast. Tucker Carlson studied at the feet of, uh, I bet he wore a mask then. Uh, Tucker Carlson studied at the feet of Alex Jones. Look it up. Learning how to turn white supremacist conspiracy theories into gold. This is true. Turns out Alex Jones, Tucker Carlson kind of conspired to elevate conspiracy theories. And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's the truth. Here is Tucker Carlson. And he's always filled with surprises, right? You know, and here he is. I, he's Somebody sent this to me. He, he's worried about climate change. And apparently so is Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, wants to turn down the temperature. Let's all calm down a little, he said the other day. This isn't good. Yeah, he's right. It's not good. And not just for him, for all of us. This could get very bad very fast. And the Biden people know that perfectly well. They know what could happen if they continue down this path. I didn't do that right. All right. Here he, hang on for one second. Let's, I, I did that wrong. Here is Tucker Carlson. Pretend that didn't happen. Here is Tucker Carlson warning us about climate change. Maybe for the first time in his life, Donald Trump seems sincerely interested in lowering the temperature, not just for his own sake, but for the country's. He said that. He's never said anything like that. Maybe he doesn't mean it. But when has he ever said that? Let's all calm down a little, he said the other so, day. Okay, this so, okay. This isn't so, good. So, so that's good, right? Uh, he's worried about climate change. Turn down the heat. This is uh, more of Tucker Carlson. This is good. Yeah, he's right. It's not good. And not just for him. For all of us, this could get very bad, very fast. And the Biden people know that perfectly well. They know what could happen oh, if they continue down this change. path oh. of using law enforcement to cling to power. But they don't care because they're facing a repudiation from voters and they're desperate and they'll do anything. But at what cost? Pray they pull back before it's too late. All right. So by heat, he means uh, violence. Dial back the violence. That's what Tucker Carlson is asking uh, Merrick Garland to do. It's like if you if you indict Donald Trump, then it's going to unleash a Pandora's box of violence and there's nothing we can do. He is threatening violence if you indict Donald Trump because there's nothing we can do about it. OK, Alina Haba is Donald Trump's lawyer. And she was asked on Newsmax this week, what would happen if her client, this is an officer of the court, Alina Haba, being asked what would happen if Donald Trump, her client, were to be indicted? What people are saying is that it had to do with Jan 6, that it had to do with a lot of things. At the end of the day, I think that would cause so much mayhem. That would be a monstrous mistake. Right. You can be arrested for mayhem, by the way. Mayhem. If uh, she's warning you indict Donald Trump, there'll be mayhem and that uh, you can be arrested for mayhem. Things are uh, Trump is scared. That's why they're threatening violence. Uh, Rudy Giuliani was forced to testify yesterday 
before a Georgia grand jury looking into charges that he, along with Donald Trump and Senator Lindsey Graham, broke the law when they tried to pressure the Georgia Secretary of State into finding 11,000 votes for Trump in 2020. That way he could defeat instead of lose to Joe Biden. Here is Rudy Giuliani arriving yesterday to testify, and he loves the spotlight. And soon the spotlight will be shining on Rudy. Uh, That spotlight will be from high atop a prison tower while Rudy takes a nighttime stroll in the yard. Mr. Giuliani, when you met with Georgia lawmakers, did you lie to them? We will not talk about this until it's over. It's a grand jury and grand juries, as I recall, a secret. (laughs) Do you believe President Trump is the ultimate target of this investigation? I'm not going to comment on the grand jury investigation. What do you think their ultimate goal is here? What what are you expecting to talk about here today? (laughs) Well, they they ask the questions and we'll see. Will you be cooperative? I mean, your your attorney in New York says you can't promise how responsive you'll be. Yeah, Mayor Julie. He's uh, has no lawyers. Uh, Trump's lawyer. Uh, Rudy is going to be indicted. Cipollini is testifying. The other lawyer is testifying. And now this. New details about former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg. NBC News has learned he's expected to plead guilty in his tax evasion case and be sentenced to five months in jail. He's also expected to cooperate in the upcoming trial against the Trump Organization, but not with investigations involving the former president himself. He's going to Rikers today. It was announced they're sending Weissel be flipped and he's going to spend six months in Rikers. Twelve prisoners in Rikers have died so far this year. It's an insane asylum. That is torture. Nobody deserves to go to Rikers, including Alan Weisselberg. He's going to die there. It's this is not good. Well, Mike Pence was asked in New Hampshire, uh, would would you testify before the January 6th committee? Here is what Mike Pence said. You got to listen closely. Jeremy said, if they were to call you the committee, come and justify talking, would you be agreeable? Well, I would, if there was an invitation to participate, I would consider it, but... Wow, he would consider testifying before the January... He's turning his back... On Donald Trump, Donald, what an ingrate. Donald Trump picked you out of the chorus line, made you his vice president, and now you're willing to testify before the January 6th committee just because Donald Trump wanted his jackals to hang you from the gallows, you disloyal son of a bitch. It's not just me who thinks you're a bastard. Here is Steve Bannon yesterday. Pence, you're a disgusting coward. Just even the sight of you bugs me. You're just a disgusting coward. Well, Bannon thinks Pence is disgusting. He's disgusted by the sight of Mike Pence. Steve Bannon is disgusted by the sight of somebody. Apparently, Bannon is is disgusted by the sight of a lot of people these days. John Fetterman, for example, is the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. He's a Democrat running for Senate against Republican Dr. Oz, who lies about how many homes he has. He insists he has two, but he's actually got 10. I don't think any of them are in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, But apparently Steve Bannon is grossed out by John Fetterman. Uh, He's not, you know, he's disgusted by Pence and he's also disgusted by the sight of John Fetterman. Here's a tweet 
that Steve Bannon sent out. Is Fetterman satanic? His look, his vibe. And he asks, has there ever been anyone in the history of the country that exudes more pure evil than this guy? Hmm, what an interesting question he asked about John Fetterman. Has there ever been anyone in the history of America that exudes more pure evil than John Fetterman? Hmm, let me think, let me think. Hmm. Yeah, that would, be, <laughs> that would be you, Steve Bannon. You are ugly. You are hideous, morbidly obese, covered in liver spots. Do you realize, Steve, look at that face, and he's only 35. That's Steve Bannon, and he's only 35. He stinks. He smells. He, he, it's not body odor. I know people who've been in his presence. It's sulfuric. I'm not making this up. Steve Bannon is rotting. He doesn't bathe. The people who share space with him, like at radio stations, they gag, they throw up in their pants. He smells so bad. Now, he is ugly. Democrats also have ugly people, people like James Carville. Hideous man. He got Bill Clinton elected, uh, another hideous man. And then he tried to destroy Bernie Sanders in 2020. F. James Carville. Uh, he he badmouthed Bernie Sanders. James Carville is a, a disgustingly looking human being. He's a vile, opportunistic infection on the body politic. But he is a Democrat, and I'm a Democrat. Now, here's the disgusting James Carville who... Uh, try to sabotage Bernie's run in 2020. Here he is uh, talking this week, and I'm playing this to prove that Republicans are uglier than Democrats. Yes, Carville is ugly, but not as ugly as Steve Bannon. You show me the ugliest Democrat, and they are no match in ugliness for the ugliest Republican, James Carville. People that believe that the election was stolen and have a right to, to storm the Capitol, which is a substantial number of people in the Republican Party, are evil. There's, we have, our, our people are, are kind of silly. Their people actually, racism is evil. All right, misogyny is evil. I'm sorry. You see, you know, uh, they're rotting from the inside. That's why they're uglier. Republican ugliness comes from the inside because they're evil, and they are Christians in name only, chinos. They are rotting, they are spiritually bereft. Here is Eric Trump endorsing his spiritual leader. This is interesting. I heard this and I thought, ah, he, he's gonna talk about who helps him spiritually. It's a guy named Pastor Locke. Never heard of this guy, Pastor Locke. This is Eric Trump's uh, spiritual advisor. Here is Eric Trump talking about this guy, Pastor Locke, who I've never heard of. By the way, how good was Pastor Locke? <laughs> Pastor, on behalf of everybody in New York, and even though I got the hell out of this state, right, like half the people, like probably half of you as well, we need more people like you in this state. And New York would be a hell of a lot better place if we had more people like you in this state. 
I like any pastor who has backbone. A lot of them don't. Yeah, he knows this good. very well. Yeah, that's good. I like any pastor that's pro-Second Amendment. Well, Most of them, okay, that's a lot of them complicated. are, but will never admit it on stage. Okay, a pastor has spine, loves the Second Amendment, but he's still a man of God. He's a pastor. And I looked him up, and you know what? Even though he, he's pro-Second Amendment and he has a spine, he's a good guy. He's a gentle soul. And I think Eric, having Donald Trump for a father, was often too ashamed to show tenderness. And I think he turned to Pastor Locke, a beatific man of Christ. Here is uh, Pastor Locke, uh, Eric Trump's spiritual advisor. I ain't talking about East Germany. I'm talking about Tennessee. Quarantine camps for the uninformed people that are still in refusal to be vaccinated. Look, if that don't bother you, you might as well show up at another church next week because I'm going to keep raising Cain about all this nonsense. I don't care what Bill Lee says. I don't care what fraudulent fake Joe Biden says. I don't care what Planned Parenthood says. I don't care what Chris Cuomo says. I don't care what Gavin Newsom says. I don't care what Nancy Pelosi and her insurrectionist nonsense has to say. You better wake up, church. You better wake up. They hate us. We are speed bumps to the deep state on the road to their progressive communism. And I'll shout it from the rooftop if I'm the last one. I live by what I say and I will die by what I say if I have to. Wow. I'll fight this garbage until my dying breath. He loves the Second Amendment. He does. Well, the midterms are right around the corner. I think they're like 89 days left. And uh, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Senator Ted Cruz, tell us uh, how the House looks. I think the the Dems are going to keep the Senate. But tell me about the House. I think the odds of a Republican House are north of 90 percent. I think we're very, very likely to get a Republican House. Okay, he says we're going to get a Republican House. And uh, on Tuesday in Alaska, there was a special election for Congress uh, to fill this seat vacated by Congressman Don Young, who died at the age of 88. Uh, Don Young dies at 88. He died way too, Don. Here is uh, another Don endorsing a candidate to fill Don Young's shoes. You're going to send the great... Legendary Sarah Palin to the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, here is the legendary Sarah Palin uh, dusting off some of her old hits campaigning last week. We just need to drill, baby, drill. She came in second place, so she's going to be in a runoff. By the way, her uh, former in-laws held a election watch party rooting for, uh, they hate her. They were rooting and campaigning for her opponents. Uh, We just need to uh, drill, baby, drill. So she could be going to the House. Well, there's so many problems that uh, this country is facing. And Ted Cruz, it looks like the Republicans will get the House. And what will a Republican House tackle on day one? Will it be inflation, income inequality, Ukraine, the climate? I think the first impeachment we see is probably Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. 
Uh, I think it's very valuable to have an extended trial in the Senate uh, laying out the absolute lawlessness on our southern border. Um, the outcome is likely foreordained, which is it takes two thirds to convict. And even if we get a majority in the Senate of Republicans, we're not going to have two thirds of Republicans. And I think the Democrats are not going to vote to convict anyone. Uh, there's still value in it. I think Mayorkas, it makes a lot of sense. Right. That's day one. Yeah. What else is there to do? other than to tie up the House and then the Senate with an impeachment over a trumped-up border crisis. Okay, what else is on the agenda? Bringing manufacturing jobs back to America? The case for impeaching Merrick Garland is, is growing by leaps and bounds every day. The more lawless, the more politicized DOJ gets, the more compelling it becomes to impeach Garland. Okay. Uh, well, uh well, you get rid of Mayorkas, you impeach Garland. Then what do you turn to? Uh, fiscal responsibility, deficit reduction? And then in terms of impeaching Biden, look, we've talked about on the podcast how I think there's a very real possibility that Biden is impeached. Um, there are certainly grounds you can impeach Biden upon both both lawlessness of the southern border, the disastrous surrender in Afghanistan, uh, the politicization of the Department of Justice and the FBI, all of those are possible grounds of impeachment. But more fundamentally, the consequence of the Democrats politicizing impeachment and impeaching Trump twice, one of the consequences is when there's a Republican Congress, the pressure to impeach Biden is going to be enormous. Yes, the pressure to impeach Biden is going to be enormous from uh not the American people from the Republican Party. Well, we, we I have five more minutes and I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, it is midterm season and Chuck Schumer, uh, Clyburn, Manchin, they all went to the White House this week as Joe Biden signed the Inflection, Inflection Inflation Reduction Act. And boy, I'll tell you, uh, Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, could not have been could not have been happier, prouder. My dad, who died in November and would have been 99 on Flag Day, taught me a lesson. If you try to do the right thing and if you persist and never give up, you can make the world a better place. Right. Your father. Uh, yeah. Taught you a lesson. Fortunately, Chuck never paid it forward and uh, taught his two daughters that lesson. One of his daughters is a lobbyist for Amazon. The other one works over at Facebook. And his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, Miskite, uh, just quit the Department of Transportation to make millions investing all that bipartisan infrastructure money at Blackstone. He went to work for Blackstone, the single most evil private equity group in the world. That is uh, that is Michael Shapiro, Miskite. That's Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, the Miskite, Michael Shapiro, who a uh, lawyer, worked at the Department of Transportation. The bipartisan infrastructure bill was passed late last year while he was over at the Department of uh, Transportation. Department of uh, Transportation 
going to spend about 600 billion of our dollars. And Michael Shapiro, this Meeskite, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, bolted and went to work for Blackstone, uh, working on investing uh, recommendations for infrastructure and public policy. This Meeskite is taking all the knowledge, all his connections from the Department of Transportation and uh, is a traitor. He is a this Meeskite is a traitor and he's now working for Blackstone. Look at that Meeskite. Go ahead, Chuck Schumer. I know my dad is looking down and smiling. Yeah. Well, you know what? I know my mom is looking up from hell and saying, your son-in-law, Chuck Schumer, Mike, Michael Shapiro, is a Meeskite. Uh, he, this is my, what my mother's saying to you, Chuck Schumer, uh, whose phone number is 212-486-4430. Chuck Schumer's phone number at the Senate is 212-486-4430. My mother is looking up in hell at this Meeskite of a son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, and she's saying your son-in-law is ugly from the inside, and that's why he went to work for Blackstone. My mother is saying, shame on you, Chuck Schumer, for having such horrible daughters and a meeskite for a son-in-law like Michael Shapiro, who steals our infrastructure money, half a trillion dollars from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, going to the Department of Transportation where this meeskite, Michael Shapiro, was working. He steals the knowledge and the connections from the Department of Transportation to go over to Blackstone and make an unholy fortune. No, my mother is looking up at you from hell, Chuck Schumer, and saying you and your entire family of grifters should rot in hell. That's what my mother is saying about you, your idiot daughters, and that meeskite for a son-in-law, Michael Shapiro. Call Chuck Schumer's office right now and tell him to fire his meeskite of a son-in-law right now. The phone number is 212-486-4430. Call this number on the screen. It's Chuck Schumer's phone number in Washington. Leave a polite message at 212-486-4430 and tell him to fire his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, say, I am appalled that your son-in-law, this meeskite, Michael Shapiro, quit the Department of Transportation right after the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act handed nearly half a trillion dollars to the Department of Transportation where he was working. They're going to spend that money on infrastructure and instead of staying at the Department of Transportation to make sure half a trillion dollars doesn't get wasted, your meeskite of a son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, ditched public service and went to work for Blackstone. And this is this meeskite's title, Managing Director of Government Affairs for Blackstone, with a focus on infrastructure investments and projects. That's his title. That is his title. Call Chuck Schumer's office right now, 
888-444-4430 and tell him to fire his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, this miskite. This is why Democrats lose, because of miskites like Michael Shapiro. Call Chuck Schumer's office at 212-486-4430 and tell him to fire this miskite of a son-in-law, Michael Shapiro. Uh, Chuck Schumer's daughter works over at Amazon, and here's a song about the working conditions at Amazon where Chuck Schumer's daughter works. Call Chuck Schumer's office at 212-486-4430 and tell him to fire his miskite of a son-in-law, Michael Shapiro. Chairs in this Bessemer shop Back in our day Don't ever seem to stop A man went down Cause his heart gave out Get back to work We heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming That's what they're for And life slipped away On a cement floor The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go They gave us all pins and said, vote no But maybe this year union can give us a little more And put some chairs on this Bessemore floor I'm hoping the union might make things right Some days I just don't have the strength to fight This plant down here can take its toll It'll break your body, it'll crush your soul Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop Thank you.
That is Professor Mike Steinell. He has a new album out. It, uh, not a new album, a new novel out called Saving Charlie Parker. And go buy it over at SavingCharlieParker.com. And uh, everybody should call Chuck Schumer's office at 212-486-4430 and tell him to fire his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro. Joining us right now is the host of Give Them an Argument, Professor Ben Burgess, columnist for Jacobin, columnist for The Daily Beast, uh, author of countless books. How are you, sir? It's good to see you. Uh, four, I can count that. I can count to four. Well, that's more than uh, uh, most people can say who listen to my show. <laughs> okay, but I'm just saying, I don't think four is countless. Uh, yeah. What do you make of the Democrats right now? The infrastructure, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, you, this guy, Michael Shapiro, Mm -hmm. takes a job over the Department of Transportation, gets it because his father-in-law is Chuck Schumer, then uh, works there while, you know, helps craft the bipartisan infrastructure bill. DOT, Department of Transportation, gets half mm -hmm. a trillion dollars to spend. And he bolts, bolts the DOT to go work for Blackstone. What do you make of a person like Michael Shapiro? How immoral is that? Am I overreacting? I mean, that's, uh, I don't know that you're overreacting. I think it's probably an appropriate reaction, but I also think that sounds pretty typical to me, right? I mean, this is, um, this is how, um, you know, this is kind of how the system works, right? I mean, there's a, there's a revolving door, you know, between, uh, between government and various kinds of corporate and lobbying and et cetera jobs. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, Whatever I mean, like the uh, you know Hillary Clinton uh, could uh, could stop uh, uh, could stop being um, you know could be between gigs and you know Goldman Sachs you know would pay her for like a quarter of a million dollars to give him a forty five minute speech right you know that's uh -huh. uh, that's just kind of how it works. Yeah, but I think if the American people knew that Chuck Schumer's son in law went to work for Blackstone, which is pure evil, the company is pure evil, Blackstone, and he's. He's teaching Blackstone how to invest infrastructure money. That's no, I mean, it's pretty despicable, but I mean, like, it's not, I mean, God, I mean, where's the bar? I mean, that's, uh, you know, Dick Cheney, uh, you know, went, uh, went from being in the, uh, the first Bush administration while it was, uh, while it was destroyed Iraq to, uh, going back to Halliburton and, uh, and actually, uh, and actually like, massively profited off of what rebuilding right. Iraq was allowed to do still under the sanctions and then uh, then went back into government and uh, right. and and destroyed Iraq again in a more thorough way I mean this right. is uh I mean I, I don't know I don't know what curve we're grading on but I mean if, if the if the thesis here is that these people are all pieces of shit then you know I certainly agree yeah but when you accept it I I think if enough people call 212 Four eight six four four three zero. That is Chuck Schumer's office in Washington D.C. You're allowed to call. You're allowed to be polite, and you politely say, "Fire Michael Shapiro as your son-in-law." He should be shamed. He should be ashamed of himself. So, so what's what's Shapiro's current job? 
He's a Miskite over at Blackstone. And, okay. and his title at Blackstone is, quote, Managing Director of Government Affairs for Blackstone with a focus on infrastructure investments and projects, unquote. He just left the Department of Transportation that just got half a trillion dollars to spend mm -hmm. on infrastructure projects. So, uh, I mean, I, I, this guy sounds like a complete piece of shit to me, but I, I just want to make sure I'm clear about this because you're talking about people calling Chuck Schumer to fire him, but he's not working for Schumer right now. But he's now, the right? son-in-law. He's Schumer's son-in-law, right? But right. I mean, like, what, what's what's Schumer being called to at? What's what's Schumer, what's Schumer being asked to do in these calls? To fire his son-in-law. To but say, he, but he's not his boss, right? But but you you're not welcome in my family. Oh oh, <laughs> to fire him as son-in-law. Yeah, fi you're fired as my son-in-law. Yeah, okay. You, you I, I gotcha. mean, if my Daughter, if I were the son, I mean, like he's not invited to the next year's Thanksgiving or no, no, <laughs> okay, yeah. no, you're done, you're out of the family, Michael <laughs> Shapiro, with your Princeton education. I mean, this is the definition of a piece of shit, and I'm a Democrat, and Chuck Schumer mm. is my senator, and you know I'm going to vote for Chuck Schumer, but he's got a piece of shit for a son-in-law. And his two idiot daughters are cashing in on the good Schumer name. What are you writing about this week? Uh, a, uh, <laughs> a different Shapiro, Ben Shapiro. Uh, yeah. What did he uh, so, so I will actually read you because uh, I, I just finished transcribing this because I'm, I'm obviously not going to quote the whole thing. But I'm going to quote part of it. In the article, there's a uh, there's a video that Ben Shapiro just posted on his YouTube called uh, "Marxism Can't Work in America," and uh, I just want to see how far you can get through the quote. Right here, okay. so he starts it out. Uh, I'm not going to try to do a Ben Shapiro voice. I'm just going to read it straight. Uh, when you have very high levels of societal income mobility, when you can be born in America and become very, very wealthy, when you can be a middle class person, you can get rich. It's very difficult to make the case that the system is stacked against you. So the left has to come up with another way to ram their cultural Marxism through. And what they came up with was race. Because while the United States historically has not had massive class distinctions that are hard and fast, it has had race distinctions that were hard and fast for the vast majority of well, Americans. That's just wrong right there. That's just, yeah. Uh, right until the 1960s. So from the 1776 to the 1960s, you had hard and fast racial distinctions in the law. And in many parts of the country, that was a serious problem. So what the Marxists did is they glommed onto this. They said, aha, what we need to do is make Americans understand that the systems are racist and you need to tear down the system so you can have essentially racial mobility. That is the only way to do this. So that is the argument that was made by critical race theory. So critical race theory arrives in the 1960s. Stokely Carmichael, who was then the head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, he makes the argument on the heels of the Civil Rights Act of 1965 uh, that's what Shapiro says, Civil Rights Act of 1965, right? The first real movement in America to undercut this argument because the, the argument is now, okay, we're going to get rid of those race distinctions in federal law, so we've reached the end of the road, right? I mean, we've now got rid of any excuse you have for some sort of revolution based on class. Stokely Carmichael says, no, 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 that's not good enough. And then it goes into a thing about um, critical race theory. So that's that's uh, that's Ben Shapiro's understanding of uh, of American history and race and class and Marxism and Harvard cultural law. Marxism. That's what a Harvard yes. law education will get you. Ben Shapiro, graduate of Harvard law. Uh, 
just like Chuck yeah. Schumer, just like Chuck Schumer, graduate of Harvard Law. Uh, I mean, he can talk really fast, so that makes yeah. it sound more authoritative. And he's nasty. He's and I love the clip. I guess was it Michael or Sam who played the clip of Dave Rubin trying to find common cause with Ben Shapiro? Oh, is this the one where where he uh, uh, about how Shapiro wouldn't go to his anniversary party? Right. Yes. And uh, and Ben is uh, Dave because Rubin. that would that would, that would be a celebration of an immoral act, which is Dave getting married. Right. Yeah. Yep. And so Dave, yeah, that, that is that is, I have to say, I mean, all politics aside, just on a human level. Um, I have to think in, in Dave Rubin's position, like you'd have to do some reflecting on what your life has has sort of come to. And, uh, right. you, know, like, you know, these are your friends and, you know, comrades in arms and associates. It's like it's like, no, I'm, I'm a. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even come to I wouldn't even hypothetically come to your party because that might make people think that I think your marriage is OK. Right. So you have two Jews, Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin. Uh, Dave Rubin, uh, not an intellectual giant, obviously, and he found a way in. He decided to be the gay Jewish conservative. There's right. money to be had on the intellectual dark web. by, And he's gotten it even like the Shapiro thing. I mean, is not even as bad as what he's gotten more recently, right? Because because he and his husband are are like having a child through a surrogate, and uh, and like quite a few of of his own fans have turned against him for that because that's you know that's a terrible thing to mm-hmm. you know have have a child be raised by two gay men. But he's not a Marxist, and he doesn't approve of identity politics, and uh, he believes in the free market, so. So what if they want to chemically castrate him? And you have two, two, two stupid Jews like Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin. Now, Ben Shapiro makes common cause with your friend Charlie Kirk over Turning Points mm, yes. and right. uh, CPAC, who invite Victor Orban, who is like the mascot of the new conservatism. How does somebody like uh, Ben Shapiro reconcile the fact that this is a party of anti-Semites? How, how, how? That is a very good question. I mean, uh, Victor Orban recently, infamously, you know, said we we don't want to uh, we don't want to be race mixers, um, which you know I would I would have to think. Right. You know, that uh, that if, if I if I saw, you know, as as a member of I mean, whatever, not there's, you know, I mean, race is kind of a nonsense category. But I mean, like, you know, but I'm, I'm pretty sure when I hear an Eastern European politician say they don't like race mixing. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm pretty sure that that they're thinking of Jews as one of the races, you know, yes. that they don't uh, they don't want to be uh, mixed with. Right. And so I, I would have to say, I mean, if I were if I were hanging out with people who um, uh, who embrace this guy, I would start to get real nervous about how they thought about me. But uh, but yeah, I guess I guess uh, I guess Ben Shapiro is not worried about it, um, you know, and, and I think and, you know, it's it's I mean, I guess it's opportunistic and, you know, I mean, he has. You know, he could say, you know, that the uh, that uh, that so far American conservatives lately, right, historically is a different story. But recently, 
right, haven't particularly emphasized anti-Semitism. You know, I mean, they've they've reserved most of their ire for you know Muslims and uh, and Mexicans, and you know, well, Muslims uh, are Semites, and they 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 they're not openly saying they're anti-Semitic, but Jews know. Jews know that Republicans and conservatives have traditionally been, at least since uh, the Great Depression, mm. anti-Semitic racists. That is what fueled modern day conservatism, right? Well, well, this is the interesting thing, because when Shapiro talks about cultural Marxism, right, I understand what Marxism means, right, without yeah, the Yeah, what does cultural right, Marxism right, but, mean? But what, what is cultural Marxism uh, supposed, to, uh, supposed to be? And uh, that, you know, that is a term that, you know, seems to be largely associated with, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, I think is, I think would be a fair term about like some sort of cultural elite that, you know, is, I don't know, somehow associated with Marxism or communism that's, that's, that's using its power to, uh, to like slowly change, you know, culture from the inside to, to be less traditional. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say, like, uh, it's, it's hard not to, you know, like, um, you know, when, when, when I hear that there's a group of people who are, you know, who, who like, I also associate with communists and I, and I think that they're, you know, I think that they control, what are we talking about? We say they're using their elite status to change the culture, you know, Hollywood, the media, you know, there's, there's a, there's an echo that it's hard, uh, it's hard not to hear there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I think that it is entirely possible that, you know, that Shapiro is, is, uh, is, you know, playing with fire in terms of his own interests and kind of the same way that Dave Rubin is. But I mean, I, I think what's really interesting uh, I mean, besides the fact that just kind of like funny and crazy, but like what's really interesting to me about that quote is that he seems to think like the only way I could make sense of that is that he thinks that the thing that Marxists like object to about capitalist societies, right? You know, and he's just sort of using Marxists in the first part of the quote is this vague term to mean like, I don't know, socialists or something like that. Right. So, um, that he thinks the thing they object to about capitalist societies, there's not enough upward mobility, right? Because he says, because the whole first part is like, well, Marxism can't work in America. You know, it's, it's hard to say that, you know, we need this revolution based on class when, you know, people can be born in America and become very, very wealthy, when people can be middle class and, you know, become become rich. Um, and, you know, putting aside everything else that's asinine about that, right, that they, that, like, Shapiro doesn't seem to think that a cat, you know, there's any category of the population that's worth mentioning that's lower than middle class. Uh, that um, that he, you know, that he thinks that it's it's possible, you know, that it's like equally easy for everybody to be upwardly mobile, which is obviously ridiculous. Uh, that he thinks uh, from later in the quote that you know the passage of the Civil Rights Act in you know, 1964 uh, means that um, you know means that like there's there's no that it's it's not any you know like that there are no like troubling disparities you know about about race in terms of upward livability, but like putting aside all of those details, like the the thing that that strikes me as the most ridiculous about it is that he thinks that upward mobility is the issue that like that like he just takes it as as a given that everybody, even Marxists and his understanding of the world, assumes that as long as the best and the brightest can rise to the top. That's all that matters, because you know, fuck anybody who's not right, the best. Right, right, right. 
Right. It says, yep, it's, it's all about competition. Hey, I read, I have a library card. And one of the great things about a library is you can take out books like yes. that, you, that you wouldn't buy. And I took yes. out Glenn Beck's book on Islam, like Islam is the problem. Is that the title of the book? Something like that, or like it, it awesome. is Islam. Well, the first three chapters must have been written by a scholar. He must have paid. The first three sure. chapters are, are a pretty sweeping history, unbiased, of Islam in Europe and the Middle East. And I thought, this is informative. Uh, I don't know. I didn't. I put it down. I haven't gotten to the Islam, Islamophobic part, which is like two thirds of the book. I would imagine. Yeah. He, you 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 slog through his books. They're not bad. I slog. Yeah. So I slog through one of them. I, I I co-wrote with Nathan Robinson a couple of years ago a review of his book, Argue with Socialists. Now, one thing I'd point out about that, and I'd, you could take out your library copy of of uh, the problem is Islam. Is just an amazing title. I mean, imagine, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, imagine somebody doing like a book that was called like The Problem is Judaism or something right. like that. And that, right. you know, anyway, but they have a. Um, no, that is it. I mean, it's, that's what I, that's the first thing I, that's why I took it out. I went, I got to read this. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, but, uh, but I would, you know, but one fun thing you could do is you could open up uh, and like look at those sort of filler pages before the, the first chapter starts and see. Um, and see what it says about authorship, right? And uh, and I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the Glenn Beck book that I read, it uh, what it said uh, was that Glenn Beck is a registered trademark of blah blah blah. So in other words, ah. he doesn't he doesn't have to list his, his like ghostwriters, you know, because it's all collectively, you know, Glenn, you know, Glenn Beck. Um, so I'm sh I'm a hundred percent. I mean, maybe he re, you know. Maybe he reads through these books when they're they're like they're done and vetoes things and you know and whatever. But but I I I would be like really shocked if he wrote any of those like if he wrote the first draft of any of those paragraphs. And Bill O'Reilly doesn't write the book. He has a co-writer. I'm afraid. No, Bill O'Reilly can't be because Bill O'Reilly writes like writes a new book like every six months. You know, right. it's like the uh, I think he went through all of the historical assassinations. You know, the the killing. Right series right there's the killing lincoln you know right. killing kennedy i'm it, sure he did a killing caesar at some point so here's what i'm worried about because bill o'reilly was a high school teacher at one time yeah uh not a good idea to have him around high school students no he, he probably decided i need to work for a, a company that can afford <laughs> to pay out these ndas so i'm worried you pick up a bill o'reilly book and it's good. I don't know. Um, that it's well, that, that I'm worried that it's clear and it gives a textbook. <laughs> it's written uh, in a way that you can nibble on uh, history. Is, it, is that conceivable? I, I guess. I mean, I don't know who he, I've never read it in a bill Oh no, that's not true. I I I remember like flipping through also a library copy of a Bill O'Reilly book many years ago, but 
this is before the killing series started. This is just like a, uh, this is just some random, like one of those like super disposable here are all of my opinions books. But um, if he had written a book called killing boners, (laughs) he could have saved Fox news a hundred million dollars. Just learning how to kill his own boners. Go ahead. That's that's true. That's true. Uh, I will say uh, to be fair, uh, I, I do think um, you know, we were talking about Ben Shapiro, and I do think that Shapiro might write his own books because I read one of one of those, and it it does. I mean, if he hired somebody, you know, he's not getting his money's worth, right? I mean, it, it just um, like he does all these like weird things in it, like he has. Uh, like when he like introduces a quote, you know, he's like, as such and such historical figure, birth and death dates wrote, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like some quote that feels like it's ripped off of, you know, like that it's just like straight from a Google search. And, you know, it feels like you can see the like stack of three by five cards where he's written down, you know, the quote and the, you know, the person, the birth and death dates. And one person actually, I am certain, um, I want to, I want to give some credit to credits do where credits do here. Uh, one one conservative who I am absolutely certain writes her own books. So I read this a little while ago. Is uh, Megan McCain? I I read her book Bad Republican, and it was so incoherent uh, and lazy that right. I cannot imagine that a paid ghostwriter turned this <laughs> in. I mean, she uh, <laughs> like she literally devotes paragraphs to describing memes that she likes. Mm. Maybe maybe she hired an actual ghost. Before you go, it's yeah. great to see you. The summer is wrapping up. Are you teaching yet? When when does school start? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, well, so I'm, I'm teaching two classes this semester. There's an online one at Rutgers that hasn't started yet, but the in-person one at Morehouse today was the first day. Great. And what are you teaching? Uh, the Morehouse class is Introduction to Philosophical Ethics. Great. And what are you reading for pleasure? Uh, well, I actually just downloaded cause I, I have, um, I have, I have never read this. I have read one of his other books, but I've never read this one. And for obvious reasons, I was uh, thinking about it this week. I, I just, uh, downloaded the, uh, satanic verses to my Kindle. Oh. Professor Hussein was talking about that. Uh, fantastic. How's he feeling today? I hear he's getting better. Yeah, I mean, what I saw—I mean, you know—I don't know that I, I've seen anything more recent than what you saw, but but what I what I saw about uh, Rushdie is uh, as of a couple of days ago that uh, he's off the ventilator um, and you know talking, but he's uh, but you know he's he's got some pretty severe injuries and and they still think that he he might lose his right eye. Okay, well, Professor Ben, Bur- uh, yeah. Professor Ben Burgess's new book is Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. And you can buy it by, well, it's everywhere, but you can get it over at, what, what, is the, what do you recommend? Not Emma. Uh, yeah, a place I would recommend people go is Red Emma's, uh, Emma like the name, so redemmas.org. Um, or johnhuntpublishing.com. Yeah. So John Hunt Publishing, that's the, well, yeah, that'll, that'll give you, uh, if you go to the John Hunt Publishing page for it, that'll give you like a bunch of different links, different places you could go get it. 
but uh, but I but yeah, Red Emma's is a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore. I, I did an event for it there, like earlier this summer. I don't remember exactly when. Uh, and they they've been you know they've been great going back to uh, TNBS. So you know, so I I always try to plug that. But yep, that is that is you can get it anywhere, but you, know, you can certainly get it there. It gets. I, the- I just recommended that book last night to some colleagues during a discussion of religion. So I want my cut when they buy it. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll negotiate about that after okay. off here. Uh, if you buy the George Orwell book, not the George Orwell, it, it's a play. I it's a play on a title: right. Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. But it's published by Zero Books. Buy the book if it doesn't, if you don't find it uh, fascinating. You get the Feldman refund. Just let me know. I bought it. I bought yes. it uh, last year, and I bought it at Red Ammo, which was a delightful uh, consumer experience. I love the book, and uh, I want to plug Professor Burgess's book and Red Emma. Fantastic. And li- listen to give them an argument. And when when is your next piece up? Uh, when's the next Jacobin ja- piece? Yeah, Jacobin. Yeah. Uh, so I'm working on it right now. I think there's a good chance they'll have it up tomorrow, but if not, over the weekend. And it's about? Uh, the, the Ben Shapiro thing. Oh, good. Oh, great. Great. Exactly. You know, it's one of those things. It's like, okay, on the one hand, you think this is like kind of silly. Like, well, I engage with this. And then you remember that like a hundred gazillion people like mm-hmm. read and watch this guy and, uh, and it is actually very much worth engaging with. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Thank you. Thank you, professor. All right. Thank you. Comedian. See you next week. I hope. Joining us is the father of the author of today is now written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin, Dr. Philip Hershen. Not just the, not just the biological father, but the philosophical father. Of this work. That's <laughs> where am, all this Michigas devolves from. I am honored. I am deeply honored. Today is now written by Ethan Hershenfeld's alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Go by today, today is, is now. now. Can, can I say something at the yes. top, please, about this? Yes. Some people are confusing Today is Now, which is an important book of psychology. And dare I say, philosophy and history and humanism. Mm-hmm. They're comparing it with the power of now, which is just self-help drivel. Eckhart Tolle. Yes. This one has sold 7 billion copies. So <laughs> for every human on the planet, there's 2.3 of this book. <laughs> this, this book has not sold a billion yet. I repeat, 7 billion copies sold. This is still not sold a billion. So I'm hoping we can rectify that. The Power of Now. I want it now. The Power of Now is actually a great book, I have to say. I know. I know. Eddie Pepitone turned me on to Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. Living in the moment. Yeah, living in the moment. And also, um, he also invented the Toll House Cookie, (laughs) which is an incredible... Can you imagine the guy, the best-selling book and the best-selling cookie of all time? What are the chances? (laughs) 
Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. Where does the where does now factor into Freud? Because you're you're constantly looking at your past, right? Wrong. Good. You're oh, hang on for one second. Oh, hang on. Let me. You're, uh, con you're constantly looking at now at the relationship that is going on now, but how it was in part created by then. By then. <laughs> However, so, so Freud's famous book, The Power of Then. <laughs> Go ahead. However, I am reading, I'll beat you to the punch right now before you ask me. I am reading about Tralfamador right now. And remember Billy Pilgrim? Yeah, Unstuck in Time. Unstuck in oh, the Fitzgerald translation. The Fitzgerald translation. No? Okay. Slaughterhouse-Five. So there is no now. There's no then. There is no future. They're all wrapping around each other at a furious pace. So so don't ask me anything about time right now. You're reading Kurt Vonnegut. That's the one. Yes, who, I am. Who's, who turns 100 this year, I believe. Well, if you were alive, but he, this book is so great. I've read it before, but I think, I think as you get more mature, you get more out of it. What's that's true of many things. Slaughterhouse five. Slaughterhouse five. Schlachthof fünf. That sounds exactly. better. <laughs> so rereading books. Do you not? I feel guilty when I reread a book. Wrong. Oh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. <laughs> hang on. Uh, let me. Okay, now we're good. That's the, it's the greatest pleasure. It's the only way to get something really out of it. Call it sleep. Did you ever read it? Read Call It Sleep? That's what they call my podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> Call It Sleep was a book on my parents. Uh, that was like, call. give me the first name of who wrote. Henry. And give me the, the second name. <laughs> Roth. Is it, is it's, it, one of, it's one of the great books of the 20th century. He's one I've of the read. three. He's one of the three best novelists named Roth from the 20th century. <laughs> one of the top three. It was Philip, Joseph, and then Henry. So he's in the top three. I've read this book three times. I guess three is the number for tonight. But I've read it three times. It's a very thick book. So I'll watch a movie over and over again. But I, it, I'm in a trance when I watch it. Like, I, I find it comforting to watch Mad Men over and over again. But a book, I always feel I should be reading a new... There's so many important books out there. And I'm... I'm reading a, I'm reading a very popular book this week. I'm reading... It's called Deuteronomy. Hmm. Yeah. I'm reading it. Right. I'm preparing... I'm preparing a few verses of it for a cousin's wedding. I volunteered. It's a very to, funny book. It's it's it, it is it is okay. funny. 
the musical, if you like the, the, the regular stage play of Deuteronomy, the musical is, no, the, the, the chapter that I've been reading over and over, I'm, I'm preparing to try to read it, to chant it at a, at a cousin's wedding because they were asking for volunteers to pick little bits. So the, the bit I happen to pick uh, involves, it's very funny. It's a whole section about uh, if uh, about the, the seventh year, you have to forgive all of your all of the all jubilee. Of yeah, this uh, the yeah the seventh year. So I called Verizon and uh, to see if they would cut me some slack on an old bill. They didn't go for it. What a great idea to yeah. to say that by not, by not forgiving me of my debts every seven years, you are yeah. violating my. Yeah. My religious beliefs. Yeah, uh, religious freedom. Yeah, it didn't religious work. Religious freedom, yeah. yeah. Deuteronomy, no, but then, go but ahead. But then after the seven-year thing, they, they have a thing. And in the seventh year, you have to release all your slaves. That's the other interesting right. thing. Got to forgive the debts and release the slaves. But then it has a really weird sentence where it says, but if one of your slaves say, oh, if one of your slaves says to you, they come to you and say, you know what? I really like it here. And I really like you. I like this gig. It explains what you have to do then. You take you take their ear and you stick it up against the doorpost and you knock an all through it, thereby making them your your perma perma slave, perma and then, slave. And then it ha hastens to add, and this goes for a woman too. So same rule. Um, and then it keeps saying over and over, um, and uh, I'm God, and I'm telling you this. Your God told you this. God tells you this, which that's the bit that starts to get suspicious. When someone keeps showing you their ID over and over again, it starts to seem really fake. <laughs> like, okay, I didn't ask to see your passport. Why are you showing it to me? Every sentence. Because and I, I am your God. Did I mention? Did I mention I'm God? Yes. In the last sentence and in the next <laughs> sentence. It's very unconvincing. Anyway, that's all I got on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is fantastic. If you read it in plain English, it is laugh out loud. You may not eat brisket while you're fornicating with your mother's daughter. Right. There's a lot of yeah, there is a lot of specificity. It makes you think like, I guess the guy who wrote this was probably doing that stuff. The other thing is not to traffic in stereotypes, but Jews are obsessed with food. And I think I I think a year ago we talked about this. If we you read do. Deuteronomy, it's like the, the high priests, you know, they wrote it, you know, uh, sacrifice an oxen on the seventh day before Tisha B'Av. Make sure it is a, a two year, two year old oxen, not too fat. Mix it with yeast, light on the salt. <laughs> Uh, and the, the side of and the, the fries, not the salad. They literally are saying, you know, off to the side, prepare a uh, a, a, a a myrrh dish with yeast, and, and make sure to validate my parking. <laughs> I I swear to you, it's like a bunch of old Jews sitting around going, what, the, what, "What do you want? What are you in the mood for? Ox or some crow?" The other, the other stereotypical thing in here, again, not to traffic in this stuff, but in the in these sentences that I'm trying to learn, I think it's the it's the ancient it's the moment in 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 ancient civilization when the loophole was invented, <laughs> because because in one of the verses it says, by the way, don't be clever. If you think because in the seventh year you have to let them go, 
If you suddenly have the bright idea, oh, in the sixth year, I'm going to really work and really hard to get my money's <laughs> worth. Don't do that because I know that that's what you're doing. Right. And did I mention I'm God? Right. It, it's, it's a sin to overwork your slaves. Right. Yeah. It's also a sin to tell a lie. Is that in the top 10? Yes, exactly. Bear false witness. To bear, right, right. Yeah. Now, August, why, why August for psychiatrists, Ethan? Why do you think, is that? The, the, it's, it's really a question of the, the air conditioning bill can just get outrageous. <laughs> so if you send, if you send all, all of the patients out into the woods and you go out into the woods, then you can, re you can save like a lot of dough. It's not just like saving one twelfth of your electric bill. You're saving like a seventh of your electric bill for right. the whole year. So now, it's a great savings. Are you, Dr. You're, you're, you're really obsessed with utilities. <laughs> Is there a reason for that? I guess so, because I'm wait, what else did I say about utilities? Your phone, Verizon. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I shouldn't. <clears throat> Full disclosure, I, I have T-Mobile. So I don't okay. know why I was. Verizon sounds Verizon. like a Yiddish word, doesn't it? Verizon? <laughs> Which word? By the way, I don't know if you saw the top of the show, Dr. Hershenfeld. But Not if I can help it. Good. You, I abuse the word miskite. Oh. I... I send with I, the word when, when you said me Skype, the I don't know, it was like a month ago. The no, whole, it was a week ago. And we don't use the same word in two successive shows. You'll wear it out. <laughs> but it opened up a world to me. I hadn't okay. heard that word in so long. Okay. By the way, to any of our uh Viewers or listeners in the United Kingdom, uh, Dr. Hirschfeld was not just flipping you the bird. Dad, when you went like this, you know, in England, this is a, a, you were right. going like this. He meant okay. peace. Right. But Winston didn't know Ooh. that. Yeah. 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 Winston Churchill, um, right? He got it wrong the first time. He flipped. That's true. Oh, I think I did hear that. Yeah. Uh, I have one other. I know I, I usually, I'm not a crook. Um, usually I, let you guys talk about the serious topics, and then I yes. try to chime in with something with a little bit of uh, glee. But today I want to bring up a topic that I think is really something that's critical. Uh, and I'll make fun of it. To the survival <laughs> of our country. If you must. I must. That's what makes you happy. As I said, to, there was a, a mason who came to just repair a little bit of the chimney. He ended up tearing down the whole thing. And I said when I was evaluating whether this was a good idea, I said, well, as long as you're having fun. That's the key. As long as the Mason's having fun. Anyway, this is what I wanted to talk about. I was in the store and I, I the, this product was, was for sale. It was in a, it was in the pet aisle. It's called, uh, yum, yummy. Uh, it's called nummy tum tum organic pumpkin. Hmm. Organic pumpkin, and it's the ingredients are organic pumpkin. It has a single ingredient, but it's in the veterinary aisle. They always recommend it for dogs if your dog is having a a stomach problem. We've done that in the past, but this time I noticed it's in the dog food aisle. And I looked at the ingredients. It's just pumpkin. This is just organic pumpkin. 
but they're selling it as if it's a dog product. This is, this is another example of the rapacious business practices of Big Pumpkin. Because Big, Big Pumpkin is, is trying to now take over the, the dog food aisle. And they're it's all just, pilgrims. I don't mean to traffic and stereotype, but the pilgrims control the pumpkin trade. Yeah. Also, and, meanwhile, it's just a squash. It's just a squash. And they're calling it a... Anyway, that was my important uh, news about Big Pumpkin. Moving on. Are you in Cape Cod, speaking of pilgrims? I am. And uh, the doctor will be here in a couple of days. I'm on my way. But do do you want an actual answer to your August question? Yes, sir. Yes, The actual answer is that in Vienna, in the 19th century... Everybody took off August. So Freud did also. Initially, he loved to mountain climb. And he would go up, I think, to the Austrian Alps. (laughs) Which means he was a breast man. You can just say it. We're all adults here. I don't know about that. Um, so he liked to go mountain climbing? Initially, he would take his patients with him. That's awkward. How about them apples? But then, as he got more sophisticated, he decided that was not a good idea. And the August vacation became ensconced in the whole technique and mythos. And it proved very valuable, in fact, as a way of testing whether somebody was ready to fly on his own or her own. And if, and if, they, and if it's obvious by August 2nd that they're not tough Tough tuchus. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good idea to, uh, to take somebody mountain climbing to see if they're ready to fly on their own. Uh, neuroses don't take a vacation. They do not. That is correct. Oh, right. Right. wrong. Sometimes they do. In an actual crisis, for example, yes. like the London, London Blitz, for example. Or I once read a paper out of a a state hospital for chronic mental illness in Israel. Big, famous hospital there. And it was about a certain patient who had severe schizophrenia. And he was in in, in the hospital as lifelong. However, whenever there was a war, and his unit was called up. He buckled on his uniform. He went out, did whatever he was supposed to do, um, up to snuff. The war was over. He came back. Wow. And he was as cuckoo as ever. So if you want and to cure him, Saul there's Hirschman. a war every few years. If you want to cure Saul Hirschman, invade Israel. That's... Probably cheaper than psychiatry. So I know people who rise to the occasion. People, 
because what is it? The adrenaline, the focus, there's no room for. It may be the focus that, you know, when, when you're concentrating on the outer voices, you don't have enough time to pay attention to the inner voices. Right. Right. You know, people will criticize this because these these are just stories of individual cases, but they mean something also. So another case report I read was about somebody chronically ill, couldn't live outside of the hospital, was in the hospital for years. And then he he got terminal cancer. And he became clear as a bell, gave up the hallucinations, the delusions. And somebody said, well, what what happened? And he simply said, I don't need them anymore. Wow. The end is coming. Wow. So this is very complicated stuff. I have a similar thing with um, when I call to lodge a customer service complaint. (laughs) I suddenly find I find great, great relief from all all anything that's bothering me, any anxieties, any any dark thoughts. It's all you get a lot of relief out of that. Similarly, you just get to really focus the focus, the joy, the adrenaline, the the oxytocin of yelling at a foreigner. And just speaking very politely, but with a lot of a lot of uh, clarity, a lot of clarity and a lot of. Let's say. um Veiled, maybe it's veiled aggression, right. very politely, but absolutely, maybe right. too politely. I've, I've told you before, you want to start a business, yeah, doing this for people. We yes. tried, we tried that here on the air. Nobody did my services. Nobody did. Nobody took me up on it. Complaint, com, the doctor complaint. Yeah, yeah. Where you'll, you'll, but it should be for like five dollars. It, it, there are things like the big ticket items. Don't drive me crazy. Where, where I buy something that I, it, it's the $5 charges that th- those little things are the one. Why is it that that drives me so crazy and not the the big ripoffs? I think it has to do, wasn't that the, the size of the allowance that your parents gave you, $5? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's, That's called I, an insight. I got $5. Yeah. <laughs> And it enraged you because you wanted 50. I wanted 50. And and it was maddening. I kept working harder and harder to be a good son. And they wouldn't give me every year. They do a review. And uh, I didn't pass the muster. Uh, Interesting. So I wanted to share something, if I could. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Interrupt Uh, them. He's only the host. Come on. did Did you read that review of... Of Kushner's book in the Times, I heard the ex that he's. It had it had the funniest line in the history of book reviews. The mannequin, the mannequin line. No, this line. The, the the author of the review is named Dwight Garner, and and I just think he should get the Genius Award for this line. Reading this book reminded me of watching a cat lick a dog's eye goo. <laughs> Is this the New York Times review? Yeah. Wow. It was incredible. It was just incredible. You know, because he was talking about the fact that he, he's able to write or his friends wrote for him almost 500 pages about being the, 
you know, the, the piss boy for the biggest criminal in U.S. history. And he doesn't have a word to say about Trump's criminality or anything. He has nothing to say about anything. This is Except what, about his own. Yeah, Christian talking about how, how people think he's fantastic. This is why libraries were invented. <laughs> to, to, you don't buy that book, but you right. you wait, you put your name uh, and you. you uh, yeah. Yeah. And then you rip, rip all the pages out of it. That, I don't want to, I do that to the, well, I shouldn't, the National Enquirer, mm -hmm. I kind of crumble the pages while I'm reading it at, in line at the supermarket. I just crumble you know, that's, the pages. That's what, Joe, that's what Joe Orton, the playwright, went to jail for. He would take out library books and, um, let's say, violate them in certain ways. And, then, and he went uh, to jail for that? Yeah, he and his um, his his partner Ken, uh, Kenneth Hallowell. They yeah, he did he did a little bit of time for uh, they would deface. I think that they would put kind of subversive and. But uh, was it like a, a first edition Gutenberg Bible or no no it was just it was just mischief. But it was I don't think they they did a lot of time, but they were in jail for it. And Trump walks free. Yeah. Right. That was the amazing thing. Also, I couldn't I was talking to someone about that today, this business of pleading guilty to 15 felonies and getting like 100 days in jail for but it. But it's Rikers. They're sending Weisselberg to Rikers. He's like, do you think he'll come out alive? I mean, well, it's not it's not regular Rikers. It's the Hyatt. It's the Hyatt wing. Oh, Rikers. oh, OK. Have you yeah. been to Rikers, Dr. Hershenfeld? Not recently. Thank you. But it, I've heard that described as an insane asylum, that it's mostly people, street people living on the streets who who the meds aren't working and they they just lock them up. They're going to put because we don't have hospitals for those people anymore. So we put them on in jail if they're really misbehaving. Otherwise, we let them die slowly in the streets. Because why should anybody pay attention to them? Because they're not going to vote for anybody. Right. They're, they're not going to send donations for anybody. So to hell with them. Was there ever a right? Did we ever do it right? Because. Yes. We did it right in this country. Not perfectly. There, 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 there were nothing's perfect, by the way. But you can quote me on that. But for a long time. We had a state hospital system where people were clothed and housed and fed and kept warm. And depending on the hospital, you had various degrees of effective treatment. And some of them were like Letchworth Village in up in Westchester, which was, you know, they made a movie about it was so horrible. But a lot of them were decent places. And then came along effective medications like Thorazine and all its cousins and the community mental health movement. And they said, listen, guys, we can uh, take care of these people in the community. And it's much cheaper. And you won't have these huge buildings and everything else. So give us enough money to treat them in the community and we'll take the problem off your hands. 
So all the state legislature said, this is a really great idea. Let's close the state hospitals and not give them any money. Hmm. Because that's even cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> They're no dummies. Right. So that's why everybody wow. has people like this living on street corners near them. Right. I've heard it said that it's about, I'm not uh, making a joke here, it's about freedom. That there was a, a feeling that came about in the 70s that too many people were being locked up against their will, being committed to a, a, a mental health facility and were unable to leave and it was against their will. And the, the feeling was it was better to let them live on the Too own. many people saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest, for one thing. Um, a lot of people were very happy Somebody, Dave Ami, just wrote, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, just yeah. as you said that. Amazing. Um, I used to run a state hospital ward, Bronx State Hospital. And we had this guy who was transferred from Matawan, the hospital for the criminally insane. Nice little guy, Joe, from the Bronx. And he, you can only spend certain number of years in the hospital for the criminally insane, and then you have to go to a civil hospital. So we came to our civil hospital. The reason he was sent to the to Matawan was because he was working in a hardware store. His boss came up behind him, put his hand on his shoulder. He got frightened. He spun around, and I think he had an X-Acto knife in his hand, and that was the end of the boss. So they put him away in Matawan, then the Bronx State Hospital. And then the state has lawyers in every hospital making sure that nobody's civil rights are abrogated. So the, the lawyers came to us and said, you got to let Joe go. He he's spent as much. Joe didn't want to go. Joe was happier than a clam in this ward. They dragged him to court. I had to testify. Joe, Joe said to the judge, please, I don't want to go. Judge said, the law is the law. They kicked him out. And a while later, maybe a year later, I come to work someday. There's Joe again. I asked the uh, head nurse, what's Joe doing here? Well, um, Joe's father, I think maybe came up behind him in the same way and put his hand on his shoulder and startled him. There was a gun in the house. He shot the father. He shot the eyes out of all the saints pictures all over the house because there were many of them. And then he's back where he needed to be. Right. There's a lot of suffering in this world. <clears throat> there is. And there's a need for an asylum, an asylum in, in the, you know, in that, that in the meaning of that word where somebody can go. The Greek, some of the Greek temples were asylums. I, I, I just wanted to point out that you, you, you made air quotes when you said the word civil rights. That's a little bit. That was a little bit uh, maybe over the top. 
I'm an over the top kind of guy. <laughs> no, no, no. My point is, my point is that those lawyers are there for a reason because some people are in there against their will who shouldn't be there. There's also that. that. True. That is true. Right, so you have to have this adversarial system where people are duking it out mm-hmm. in words to figure out oh. the best solutions for people. Well, we have to wrap it up. The answer, I know this sounds hokey, <clears throat> but uh, we were talking last night. I went out to dinner with some close friends. In the end, I think, well, first of all, Steve Martin gave an interview. He said at his age, he's it's weather and good food. That's all you need to be happy. It's weather and good food. And I can't let that out of my brain. I'm going, yeah, like I'm really affected by weather and good food. But teaching unconditional love as long as you're safe and forgiveness that that if you instill in people i'm not talking about patience i'm just talking about uh, as a society if we can instill in everyone uh unconditional love forgiveness and to treat people the way you would treat your dog or your cat so many people have chosen pe- cats and dogs over relationships and and i think if you if you forgive people the way you forgive a cat and a dog you're you're gonna have a happier life there's some truth to what you're saying although and i think forgiveness is is a really good thing it's really hard yep really really hard but unconditional love that's bullshit there ain't no such thing You love your dog because your dog is happy to see you and he licks you and he's warm and fuzzy. You get something. I don't believe that there's anything like unconditional love. No, no, for me. You didn't hear what I said. People need to give me unconditional love. Right. Well, I was so surprised when you said you were out to dinner with friends. (laughs) I I actually went, we went to Brooklyn last night. It was fantastic. I was, Uh I was, I I just wanted to go ahead. Sorry. No, I wanted to point out that at a certain point, the dog stops doing those things. Maybe because of old age, you still love the dog with all your heart. So it's not because of what you get from the dog. It really is not. It's not a, it's not transactional. It is unconditional. Well, maybe you get something out of loving the dog. Well, that, now you're getting into semantics okay. or solipsisms. I think that was solipsistic. I think something like that. You know, the thing I, I want to, Emil's here, Magnus in Sweden. Are, are you there? I am here in Sweden. Am I here in the chat? You're, you're, Online, we can, hear you. We can hear you. I don't know. Am I? Do you have a question, Mag? It's good to hear your magnificent voice, Magnus. Magnus, oh, is it? Is, thank is, you very much, Mr. Feldman. But I can't compare to please, Mr. Mr. Fel- Ethan Hershenfeld here. So. Please, Mr. Feldman is my father's name. Call me Dr. Feldman. <laughs> <laughs> what, what That's is actually your, pretty is, funny. What is your question? No, I had a stupid bit I was going to do, but I mean, let's do it anyway. Uh, you just have to read my cue, okay? Okay, Mr. Feldman, nice to see you. As you know, I recently had some minor surgery on my ball sack. This is true, by the way. This is the basis for the bit. 
Imagine but as how you deep, know, imagine how deep your voice used to be before. The, Balzac? The, Is he talking about Balzac? Yeah, the writer. <laughs> I wish I had a bit prepared for that. But as as you know, I recently had some minor surgery on my Balzac, and then you go, "No, I didn't know that." I didn't know that. Yes, of course you did. I sent you the picture. In fact, that's why I raised my hand. I wanted to point out that even though I sent you the picture, I didn't mean for you to use it on your Zoom screen for the entire duration of your opening monologue. I've been watching your opening monologue and all I've seen is my mutilated scrotum on the screen. Really? Yeah. In fact, I think it was very inappropriate of you to use it as a filter. So it's been looking like my mutilated scrotum has been talking for the entire duration. Oh, you're saying my face. Are you saying my face? Yes, exactly. exactly. Oh, I see. My face looks like a mutilated scrotum. You know what? Sadly, that's the nicest thing. My mutilated scrotum. That's the nicest thing I've heard all month. That, that's how. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And that's all I had. It would have been funnier if you would have answered directly. But now I'm seriously fucking drunk. So I have a feeling. It ruined the whole bit, Mr. Feldman. I have a feeling surgery on your Balzac can't be minor. With your voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. I um, I feel like mutilated scrotum would be a good name for like some sort of a band. Yes. I think it would have been a great title for your next book, Mr. Samuel Benjamin, or whatever. Doctor. Doctor. Before we go. Doctor, I'm sorry. Castration complex. Yeah. Not you. We're done with you, Magnus. Thank you, Magnus. Good to hear your voice. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. What is the castration? Do women have a castration complex or do men have yeah. a castration? Yes. Let's, yes. Let's, yes, we've let's been over talk it. about it next week, okay? This is a Go big on. topic. Big topic. In, in two words. It really three. depends on the person how big a topic it is. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're castrating the uh, topic. Okay. Uh, everybody, if you, if you love this segment, and everybody does, go to... Amazon. Hang on. Let me do it the, the right way. Go to Amazon. You have my permission to support Jeff Bezos. Go now to Amazon and buy Today is Now, written by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Support Amazon. Buy all your books through Amazon. Destroy the world. Is today book, is now. Is, is the book available at any other place than Amazon? Um, I'll meet. I can meet you on a street corner and sell you a copy for cash. Go to Amazon. You have my permission. Go to Amazon right now and purchase "Today Is Now" by Doctor Samuel you. Benjamin. And it has the Feldman guarantee. <laughs> if you don't enjoy this book, I will. Good night. Reimburse <laughs> you. All right, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Okay, that's Bye, it, thanks. everybody. All right, thanks. that's a wrap. We just need Alec, Alec Baldwin. We just need one final shot with you in the church. But everybody else, 
strike the set and joining us right now here uh david what does it matter if alec baldwin pull the trigger or not yeah i mean he didn't do it on purpose it just you know gives him that extra layer of you know you know of doubt where he could say you know it makes it, it gives him like a more Trumpian kind of thing where he can kind of like say, well, it wasn't me. It was, I didn't fire. And, you know, it's another layer of excuse. It's cover. It provides cover, right? That's the political he, thing. You need I, I read a piece in the, the New York post that pretty much called him a murderer. It was a disgrace. And he, you know, he should sue them. Look, he did not in, he did not wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to put a, a slug through this person. He he was doing what he was told. There's no way he intentionally killed her. No way. Yeah, and I really have avoided the story because I I, I also don't think he, he would have. And so I, I know that it's, it's great, um, you know, fodder for talk hosts and you know for conversation and people yeah. who like alec baldwin people who don't like him people like his wife people who don't like his wife people who want to know where you know what kind of a visa she has oh she was born here in the you know right i i i, I like i like the baldwins actually here's it's, my here's my only quarrel with alec baldwin yeah what's full head of hair yeah. multi-millionaire doesn't have to work, gets to pick and choose whatever jobs he wants to do. Mm. That's my that's my criticism of him. He's oh, wait a minute. Don't, let's not forget he is pro Woody Allen. But my my quarrel with Alec Baldwin is he's rich and successful. I, I don't I really don't care about how much more wealthy he is than I am and that he has a better closet to talk to David Feldman and right. myself in, in my current situation, because we can all coexist. I, I really don't have any beef at all, except, you know, he's cozying up to Woody Allen. You know, I, I he's, uh, I'm, I'm pro Mia, uh, still to this day. And, you know, all right, here, here's the thing with Woody Allen. Yeah. Oh, you froze. Oh, yeah, no, no, I didn't freeze. I, I don't okay. I don't want to have this conversation. OK, I, I, let's, I, let's, 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 look, I, I got I was interested in what you were saying to the Hershenfels about about state mental hospitals, because one of the best stories I ever did was about how state mental hospitals in California used to sterilize people against their will. And um, and then, of course, when they dumped them out, where do they go? I mean, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. They sterilized these people because they didn't want so-called imbeciles and morons. You know, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Yeah. And, and then, you know, one generation of imbeciles is enough. And yeah. he was talking about my family. <laughs> well, then then you guys exceeded your 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 quota. Uh, so I was that one of the things I did when I was in the Central Valley was I there was a lot of, uh, uh, people who were, they, they were, they fell under this, um, this edict to, to, to uh, sterilize people and the state was going to apologize. And this, this is the time when uh, Gray Davis was the governor of California and Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger won on a recall. Right. And as soon as Schwarzenegger came in, that whole talk about reparations for, for uh, people who were, you know, 
who had an operation or were forced, sterilized, went out the window. It was, it was all political. But I, so it just brought back when you talked about state mental hospitals, because we know what happened to state mental hospitals here in California. When Reagan came, they closed down and they found a better place, right? On the streets of yeah. you know, our, our, our cities. So anyway, uh, I'm, I'm really into this uh, Liz Cheney story, though. Okay. Uh, you know, you talked about castration complexes. Not, I, I, I'm sort of for Liz, Liz. I think that that is what Liz Cheney's after when she wants to make sure that Donald Trump never, you know, holds public office again. I don't know if that means, you know, fully endowed or just sort of semi endowed. But I I'm into that story because uh, I a lot of people talk are talking about the landslide of us more than a landslide. It's just a absolute rebuke of Liz Cheney, but it, it does show how many people are under the spell of the, the man I call F POTUS. Uh, that's what all the search warrants say F POTUS, former president of the mm-hmm. United States. And uh, I think it, it really is um, a realization that, you know, our, of just how, how our our democracy is in trouble now do we answer liz cheney's call she says you know she wants everyone to join her and so i've been thinking about this you know is she like the new uncle sam is she reaching out you know she wants us but you know and that means she needs asian americans you know whom i uh, you know that's an audience i write for she needs black indigenous people cuz she needs all these people to join her mm-hmm. if we're going to successfully uh, get rid of or make sure that Donald Trump never continues to threaten us by, by holding public office. But I, I don't know. I mean, every time I say, I think, yeah, she's onto something, we should support her. Then I think of things like, well, did she support, uh, did she vote for the so-called inflation reduction act? I mean, which is, you know, progressives like ultra progressives mm-hmm. like yourself, no, the Inflation Reduction Act is like, you know, the biggest pile of horseshit. You know, it's like, it's good, good first step, but that's all it is, right? Mm-hmm. And it's even a stripped down version of Build Back Better. But did Liz Cheney even support that? And the the answer is, of course not. No. So she is as good as she is as far as the uh, election, you know, she's good on election deniers, She's good on fighting election deniers, but pre-election denier Trump. And Liz Cheney is, she's like 93% Trump and only 7%. Absolutely. You know, uh, soul. But but she may be the best chance, right? She may be the best chance to assure that Trump doesn't get elected. At, At least that's what. You know, it's being circulated now, this idea that maybe in swing states, if Democrats switch their registration, if independents switch their registration and become Republicans and vote in the Republican primary, they can make sure that Trump doesn't win it by a landslide and that it goes to the convention and then they can nominate Liz Cheney's father or someone, some other good Republican. You see what right. I mean? See, see the faulty logic there are here. De- well, hang on. So there are Democrats who, who want Trump to get the nomination. These are the same Democrats who are supporting Trump candidates 
in the primaries because they think the best thing that could happen for the party is Trump to be the nominee. Uh, That way we'll win. That's what they thought in 2016. I I did. They they talked about that strategy. That's like an that's like a B strategy. But this is one that could be an A strategy because instead of doing something that, you know, would be seen as somewhat, you know, dirty trickster, you know, maybe somewhat um, unethical, you know, to vote for the guy that, you know, who, you know, to vote for a Trumper who, you know, will will lose to a solid Democrat. Right. I think it's better if you just become like this surreptitious Republican, vote Republican against Trump and then make sure that he has to go to the convention and duke it out with other Republicans. And then, see, this is the thing. I don't know if I absolutely trust that. I don't know if I absolutely trust Liz Cheney because at the very, at the best, what we get, if Liz, if we support Liz Cheney, we get the, the good kind of opponent, the kind of opponent who loses, calls you up, concedes, shakes hands and say, and says, that's it. You know, that peaceful transition of power, right. Or orderly transition of power that, and, and that's something we all took for granted in the constitution, in our democracy until we didn't get it right. You saw Obama's, the Obamas and the Trumps, you know, on inaugural day, you know, what must be going through their heads, their peaceful transition. And then Trump gives that stupid speech he gives, you know, and uh, I I just think we, we took a lot of that for granted. And now we know how important that is. That may be worth it because it means a return to civility, at least maybe, you know, where we can say, yeah, you're a bastard. We don't like your policies. You voted against us, but let's shake hands and call it a democracy. We're one big, happy team. Uh, th- that may be too ideal also, but that would be a Liz Cheney promise, right? right? The Liz Cheney promise is let's go back to the way it used to be where we screw you over in other ways. We, you know, waterboard, because- we waterboard you to, to keep you safe. I mean, she's pro waterboarding. <laughs> right. but it, well, but- yeah, you look at her record. Did she, is she voting for voting rights? The restoration of the voting rights? No. Is she voting for uh, any Civil Rights Act, uh, the Equality Act, for LGBTQ? No. I mean, the only kind of things that she votes for are these safe, safe things like she voted for Juneteenth. She voted for the Juneteenth holiday because, hey, whites get the day off, too. So, right. you know, it's, and there are no black people in Wyoming. So what does she care? Well, that's the thing, uh, you know, that's why the, the whole, you know, change, you can change your registration on the day of the vote in Wyoming. And, uh, you know, it might have, that strategy might've worked in Wyoming, but there are no black people, fair few Asian people, no Democrats. So, you know, th- so some of the, the conservative columnists out there are saying, well, oh, you should join Liz Cheney and in marginal states, marginal states, it might make a difference like New York and New Jersey, but it's also presumes that Joe Biden helps out by saying he is the nominee for the Democrats. And I know that, you know, that's not something that everyone is united on. I think it, I, among I, the left or the Democrats, I think and go ahead and complain. Mm-hmm. 
people are going to be so mad that I'm going to say this. I think I think Biden is going to run and I think he's going to win because now it's not a value judgment. Wait, wait, Dave, he's going to win the Democratic nomination or win the whole thing. Win the whole thing. I think he's going to get reelected. Now, people are going to misconstrue what I'm saying. Why are you supporting Joe Biden? And I go, why are you so effing stupid that you don't understand that I'm talking about what is likely going to happen? This is not a value judgment. I think he makes a good case to enough people. And he's making a better case right now for getting things accomplished for enough people who are not falling through the cracks, who turn out on Election Day, who have skin in the status quo. They're going to they're going to support him and they're going to say, I know he's doddering. I know he's. But I like him. I'm rooting for him. And he seems to surround himself with people. This is what I hear from. He's a decent man. Whether or not that's true. He sells decency to people who have skin in the status quo. Yeah. David, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I'm, as as one of your oldest friends, I appreciate you saying that. Knowing the company you keep, I know you'll be criticized for saying that, but I think it's it's practical, it's realistic, and it finishes up the transition that we're in. Unfortunately, I think we are in this transition, and if uh, people want to look beyond Biden and they should, they ought to be thinking about okay, who are the people on the bench who are are going to rise and take over. I mean, will some of the, I mean, will the squad uh, be ready for a promotion? Uh, Pramila Jayapal is looking at, she's getting a lot of FaceTime. Is that, I mean, is she the person? Uh, is Kamala Harris, who is vacationing in Mau- uh, Kauai, excuse me, she's in the Garden Island. Uh, when, you know, when, after Biden has done, you know, he's, this is like one of his biggest weeks, right? And she's vacationing. That might be not, you know, that might be purposeful, you know, just to sort of get her out. But I, I, I know that there's a lot of people grousing about where's Kamala, what's she doing, you know, and, and a lot of people tired. So who, who are the people after Biden? I think, I think you're right. Biden probably will run and has a good shot at winning because he has accomplished something. I mean, Look, the Inflation Reduction Act is not the greatest thing, but it's something. And uh, he, you, you, Trump would never pass that. Liz no. Cheney would never pass that. So we got to be thankful that we got something like that. And then let's go forward and see who the new generation of leaders, where they're coming from and what they're going to do. Yeah. So again, he wasn't my candidate. I wanted Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Uh, I have said I hated, and that's immature of me, that I hate Biden. I shouldn't have, I, well, after the midterms, if when they, if the Democrats hold on to the Senate and the House, I'll go back to hating Biden. 
Uh, but right now, we are looking at a Republican Party that is pretty scary. Uh, yeah, they are, the election they are deniers scary. are scary. And if they take control of the, you know, secretary of state, you know, offices and control the ballots and the counting and the elections uh, and they, they refuse to certify certain things. I mean, the, the bad thing about Trump is that he is now uh, given people the model in which to fight. And the, 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 the model is just to deny and to not accept your loss. And it is like everything goes and, and not to be graceful. There's no grace there in, in our democracy any longer, which, which is maybe what we might see if, you know, this Liz Cheney thing happens. We do see a return to a peaceful transition and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah. It, so I, 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 I this is what I've noticed. Yeah. I lived through the Iraq war mm. and I had friends who supported that war and I had knocked down drag out fights about the Iraq war. There, it wasn't a war fever that, that, that there were people who were crazed about they were I'm not defending them. They were crazed Republicans and Democrats who said, I don't care what, well, this is pretty bad. It's, it's just as bad as Trump. These were people who said, I don't care if Iraq didn't, it's, no, it's just as bad as Trump. I don't care if, you know, it's, uh, Friedman, Thomas Friedman saying we need heads on a stick. Uh, we're attacking Iraq because we can and uh, we're telling the Middle East, you want a piece of this? And that is what Thomas Friedman said. The, 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 the most respected foreign affairs writer at the New York Times. That's a, that's a fever as bad as anything that yeah. Trump has well, created. Well, see, that's a thing. You know, it's pretty it, bad. I was going to say it wasn't, but it, it's worse. It's yeah. worse. Well, at least you have, um, I, I think the, the people who are pro-Trump are kind of somewhat segregated. You know, you see them on the, the cable, you see them on the, the Breitbarts, and the mainstream is, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're maybe more pro-Biden than not, but I just think they're just, I, I you know, I, I think we, this is the problem with the media now, and it. And it's why I brought up this other idea about Brian Stelter leaving CNN. We, we really need more. We need more journalism uh, critics, but we need like a journalism judge. We need someone who will be a journalist, journalistic judge of things when there is some kind of malfeasance. And that, that was the role of media shows to like tell people. Oh, this is what's fair and this is what's true and this is why this opinion is BS and this is more reported opinion. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have that now. And people are sort of they're they're kind of uh, swamped with all these news sources and silos and they they just are happy to be in one silo or their own silo instead of jumping around to different silos and getting all different views. They're happy just to be in their one thing. And I, I blame it all on Rush Limbaugh. In 89, he would say things like, I'm doing the thinking so you don't have to, right? That was his line. I'm, I, I'm, I read it through. I read through the, the subpoena and the affidavit so you don't have to. And I'll tell you what to think. 
And a lot of people said, said, a lot of people said, yeah, that's great. It will do. We'll just listen, whatever. That's where the cult of personality developed. And wouldn't you know, Trump talk, uh, former, former tacos, former host, this is his MO. Right. And that, this is the kind of politics that, that we like in America where we can spout off and this is passes for debate. Yeah. We need, I, we need a media judge. Yeah. That, yeah. This is what, why is this he, is why, true. why is he gone? Stelter? Yeah. Uh, I think it's because Chris Licht, who's taken over for CNN, uh, an old CBS guy uh, from reports, he wants to do just the news. He wants the news to be unbiased, incredible. But you need an ombudsman. All great. Well, see, that's the thing. Ombudsmen are they're, they're just as full of you know BS too. I mean, they 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 aren't as independent as people think. They're hired by the publisher. They're 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 supposed to be objective and and to pick holes at at uh, things that their own organization we, we, this show does. needs. It. You know, John Ross was mm. the ombudsman on the show. He would come on once a week and yeah. speak. Oh, yeah, the, John? Huh? John, yeah. Yeah, he'd make a... I, I should bring him back as the ombudsman. We we have to wrap it up. I want to bring up... Uh, is it Sashin Littlefeather? Sashin Littlefeather, yeah, man. So... She's... She's... Uh, I mean, for many people... It's hard to believe, but for a lot of people, she's the the most prominent Native American. No, the Italian guy who cried in the litter commercial. Remember that one? They they had an Italian guy pretend to be a Native American and a tear would fall down his cheek because of people littering. Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, that was a famous commercial of 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 a Native American crying because people were littering. And it turned out he was an Italian guy. It's an Italian actor. Yeah, well, Sashi, I have never forgotten Sashi and Littlefeather. And every time, the, the last uh, 10 years that there have been these tries about, you know, the Oscars need to be more diverse. I've always brought up Sashi and Littlefeather as that example of, you know, a, a diversity moment within the Academy. And I, I'm glad that she got the apology. It took him long enough. John uh, Wayne, was, they, they had to restrain yeah. John Wayne. He was go- he he was going to rush the stage to attack her. They say John Wayne. I know. I, I read that, and uh, I you know I think they had to do this after the slap, right? After after the, they had to do something big so everyone forgets the slap, mm-hmm. and so now they bring back Sashin Littlefeather, and it's good because she, she's cooperating. She's getting getting some pub, and um, and now you, you can't you can, you can go back to that Sashin Littlefeather moment. I remember watching it, and you know it's uh, I forget who the woman was, but it was Roger Moore, right Bond, and and they were like questioning who this Native American was accepting for Marlon Brando, but it does say something about Brando. It says something about where, how far we have gone and haven't gone. John Wayne, you mentioned John Wayne. He was in the, one of the second Bataan movie. Uh, The first Bataan movie was the Robert Taylor, 1943 classic. It featured the draft Dodger, John Wayne. They drafted, yeah, but it featured a Filipino American actor. Um, 
Javier was his name. His last name was Javier, and his his one line was, Yankee Salazar, private first class, Yankee Salazar. And that, you know, for like tens of years, that was like the Filipino-American image. He was a boxer who fought uh, as well as fighting in Bataan. And uh, Robert Taylor would say, oh, yeah, I saw you boxing in Manila. But that that was, you know, like you figure you're an Asian-American Filipino kid. You watch a movie like that and you say, well, who are the Filipinos you see on movies or in TV? And it's Yankee Salazar, private first class. That's it. Yeah, that's right. it. That in the, uh, you know, the guy on, on Hawaiian Eye, Ponzi Ponce. Right. right. So, so I'm reading about the apology to Ms. Littlefeather. Yes. And I came across, like, this was in the story in both The Hollywood Reporter and Variety. The Academy apologized to her. And they mentioned a joke that Dennis Miller told on Jay Leno's Tonight Show. Did you write it? No, 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 no. This is after uh, I knew Dennis. Senator Elizabeth Warren identified as a Native American. She kind of screwed up, right? Mm -hmm. And Dennis was on the Jay Leno show. This was, I guess, 10 years ago. And he said, Elizabeth Warren, she's about as much Indian as that stripper chick Brando sent to pick up his Oscar for The Godfather. My God. Yeah. And they wrote that in the in the apology. No, no. The coverage in the media, uh, Variety and The Hollywood Reporter folded that joke that Dennis told on The Tonight Show into the story about Ms. Little Feather. Yeah. My first reaction was, uh, wow. It, well, hang on, let me, let me tell you about my reaction. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Privately, you know, have, I hear, this is the joke. Mm. She's, a, she's about as much Indian as that stripper chick Brando sent to pick up his Oscar for The Godfather. And I went, well, that's pretty funny. That was my first, like, like, that has, that hits all the notes and the rhythm. Yeah. And, I, and then I thought, oh my God, uh, can you imagine being Dennis Miller and picking up the paper and having a line from, you know, a decade ago thrown into the mix? And this is how people, like, how do you, how do you sleep at night Hey, David, that was his act, though, but, right? But, but to reduce, off. hang on for one second. Yeah. She's about as much Indian. Well, right there, Indian, calling, using the word Indian, as that stripper chick, the word chick, calling yeah. her a stripper chick. All right, so you you wouldn't use it now, right? No, I, I mean, mean I, I can't, I mean, I would be so mortified if I were Dennis Miller and so guilt riddled and if I were Jay Leno. Wait, wait a minute. You think they they would feel guilty for now, maybe, but they didn't feel guilty when they said but, it. But I when they said it, it was horrible. Yeah. And they didn't feel guilty at all. I don't think they feel that guilty now. I, I, I really don't. Because that, that was that was uh, what's his name's act. Dennis Miller's act was all about taking these 
anachronistic references. Yeah, but and, to refer to her, to re, refer to Sasha and Littlefeather as a stripper chick. Yeah. I mean, hey, par, par, look, it's par for the course. I mean, I, that I, I would have expect, I, I don't expect him to feel guilty. I, but your sensitivity shows where, where everything is changed, you know, things that we said. It, but that was never we, right. That was never right to say that. When was it, that right? It wasn't. It was never right. But you know what? You know what made it right was, you know, it was considered. And wasn't fair Jay game. doing Asian jokes? Well, look, I, I want to tell you something that just happened to me recently within the last couple of weeks. And right, I'm going to bring the reverend in because. Okay. Okay, but this maybe the reverend can referee because the, and it, it refers to something that Steve Martin, who you mentioned earlier in the show, Steve Martin wrote. He wrote a piece called um, something about the wily Filipino. Do you recall that that piece in the New Yorker? When was it? Uh, it was like in nineteen. Oh God, I, I if I had my my folder here, I'd, I'd have it. Uh, it was like in the nineties. But I when he when he wrote that, I just remember being so angry because, you know, uh, I can't imagine Steve Martin doing he, he, anything that's just, offensive. Well, this is the thing. It was offensive to me and it was offensive. I don't I don't I know he was he was coming from a different perspective when he wrote it. He, he must I, have been making fun of racism. He was me. He was making fun of he was making fun of the, the white person. He was making fun of the white person's reaction to the wily Filipino and the search for the wily Filipino. But I'm just saying that me, my transformation is I read it now and I was sorry I had that initial reaction in, in the 1990s because I actually got the joke finally. After ah, great. Uh, I mean, I got I got the joke finally that he he was not targeting the Filipino. He was targeting the white reaction. Right. Filipino. And right. but it's a subtle thing. And it was it was a thing he published in The New Yorker. Uh, it's still you can get it on the Internet or on, on the Web. If you Google the wily Filipino, uh, Steve Martin. And I just remember writing a column back then, just taking Steve Martin apart. And, you know, Steve Martin is like one of my heroes, mm -hmm. you know. Wild and crazy guy, right? In the seventies, right after disco came Steve Martin, balloon animals, right? That was that was humor. That was I mean before Robin, right? Before he was the entree, and then Robin came. You know he was playing. He was playing. Uh, Steve Martin was doing the big arenas in the seventies, right at that time. And you know his famous line is that he spent ten years trying to trying to get good, and then four years really at the top of his game, and then. You know, and then trying to extricate himself from stand up because it got, you know, it was no longer fun. Anyway, um, I, I, I got it. I, I finally got it. it. Took twenty years. And this is the funny thing about the evolution of jokes and humor and how things change. But back to what you were saying about Dennis Miller. I don't think, I don't think he, he's feeling guilty about his Sasha and Littlefeather joke. Do you? Really? Yeah. I don't think I don't think he is. Let me play you a clip. This is Steve Martin on American Masters. It's just such a I, I retweeted it. It's so so great. Uh, can you hear that? No. What is it? As we all get older, 
we either turn into our best selves or our worst selves. And I know people who, who are still bitter or angry or something that just grows and grows and gets worse and worse. And other people, their generosity grows. Isn't that great? Yeah, I'll tell you, my, my admiration for Steve Martin has, I mean, it was like off the charts in the 70s. And then he wrote that piece and I, I got, I, I might have said something publicly that was like anti-Steve Martin. But within the last five years, and especially when rereading the Wiley Filipino. Nobody, you're, you're, the, you're, the, only, you're the only person to uh, be mad at Steve Martin. And Fred Stoller is the only person to ever get mad at Tom Kenny. I was only mad at Steve Martin for like three years. And then, oh. I, and then my generosity grew. Okay. My generosity grew a whole lot. And I, and I, I admire, I admire him. And I, I look, I, I confess, I watch only murders in the building. Have you watched plane trip? We got to wrap it up. Uh, yeah. there, there, have you seen Roxanne recently? I, yeah, not recently. I saw Roxanne when it first came out. Amazing. Is it better? Is it even it's better? You go, you go, wow. Like, you know what I, what I think got better with age? I hated it when it first came out, but I can't help but laugh at the jerk all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think the jerk is really, I mean, when I was a movie, when I was a movie critic, I used to hate everything. I know that maybe that was my thing. I hated everything like uh, armed and dangerous John Candy and, uh, you know, Eugene Levy. I panned it. You know, when it first came out, uh, when I worked at that station with you, and I, I saw it, you know, years later on cable, laughing my head off. So I just watched John Candy in JFK, the Oliver Stone movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, we got to wrap it up. The, the Reverend okay. is waiting. Reverend, Reverend, it's it's so it, good to see you. It's it's wonderful to see you, too. When you were a movie critic, yeah. which is something I've always wondered if I hadn't done the activism of my life, what would I probably have done? And given my love of cinema, I would love to have been a critic, but I would never have done what you did. I would be looking for the obscure things that people might see or mm. might never even hear of. And then my critical eye would say, you should see this. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, look, I was at a commercial. I was at a commercial TV station that carried Siskel and Ebert, and mm -hmm. yeah, there were some art films that that opened up in San Francisco. Uh, you know, tr you know, you know, normally, but uh, there was a lot of pressure to do the things that everyone, you know, wanted to see. Although I did, I did review. Uh, She's got to have it. You know, Spike yep. Lee's film. Yep. I was the first to, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, carry a banner for uh, yeah, where, where I was, and and so. But I agree with you. I agree with you. The you you want to look at things that people miss or won't won't have a clue. But I was much more of a commercial type of animal. Uh, we 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 have to wrap it up. Okay, Emil Guillermo, host of the Peta Podcast. I love you. It's great to see you. And, and David, I love you and I love Reverend Barry. I, I love everyone. I, I'm just full of 
I'm full of love today. Well, now I don't I, love you. I'm telling you, David, that whole thing about loving self-kindness, you know, you, you show the love for others and then it boomerangs and comes back. It, that works. That works. I, my, when I do it, every, every show I do on amok.com or on my live stream at 2 p.m. Pacific always ends with a little meditation, a little loving kindness meditation. So. Okay. Well, you just plug that. Read Emil over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, new podcast every Wednesday. Thank you, David. Thank you. That's, uh, well, let's, thank you, Emil. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're, it's August, and uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. He's also a, a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. What would you like to talk about today? I would like to see what people think about this third party, which, of course, was created about a week ago by Andrew Yang and former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman. But when Christine Whitman was on CNN this morning, she was asked directly whether she would want Liz Cheney involved in their campaign. And she was very noncommittal, but I was thinking, of course she would like that. But this, I think, would be a total disaster. David, you and I, and you much more than I know Ralph Nader. I I have never been convinced that Ralph Nader was the reason that Al Gore lost oh, the election. Of course not. No, no. Of course not. But but this mix of characters, I think, could create a real problem in what increasingly looks like a time when Democrats might do much better than expected. But this third party, which seems to stand Really for nothing, I've heard met both of these people interviewed, Yang and Christine Todd Whitman. They don't seem to have any new ideas. They're certainly not left of Democratic Party. They're, they're more toward the middle. And I think they could royally screw up the election. Well, royally. They, it's, the party is called Forward. And are they running as a team or are they running as the elders of the party that's going to have a nominating convention? What is, I, I think they're running as the elders of the party, although Yang is certainly young enough that he might be in the mix of potential presidential nominees. But, man, I who is worry Christy about that. Todd Whitman was EPA director under George W. Bush. Correct. And was responsible for all the, the, the ground zero workers getting lung disease and dying. She said, oh, it's perfectly safe. Stay there. I, I'm the EPA exactly. director. And what has she done since? What, what, well, it's been 20 nothing. years. Yeah, but she... You and I and 50% of the people watching tonight are the only people who remember the damage she did to the first responders at Ground Zero. I, don't, I, I think that's a forgotten piece of history. And who's going to bring it up? Who's going to bring it up? You and me. 
okay, well, we'll go on a national tour just reminding people of how bad Governor Whitman was back in the day. Yang was, uh, they say he's bright. Uh, He ran for mayor of New York City. He was an embarrassment. I I don't see, you know, universal basic income. That was his big big thing. I I didn't see anything to him. Uh, Is it? Is it a, a grift? Is he, is, are they making, there's a lot of money, right? To oh, sure. be a disruptor in politics, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly is. And I think in Yang's case, I think he is a bright person. And I mean, to propose something like this uh, income guarantee um, is a provocative and interesting idea, but it caught on with nobody. I've not heard of a single other person promoting this the, idea the, the problem since he with, made a big thing of it. But the, the problem, it was disingenuous on his part about the UBI. He was saying we have to give people a universal basic income because these jobs aren't coming back, that everything right. is going to be replaced through automation. So people are going to need a bare minimum to live on because. I'm a Silicon Valley guy and we're taking all your jobs. The robot. I mean, that's what he said. The robots. Robots are coming. The robots are coming, Uh, which is not true, by the way. No, it's not true. Um, Even if you look at things like the self-driving car, that is a recipe for vastly more calamities than have already occurred with it because the idea that you can have a car that's going to be so smart that it can stop when it's supposed to stop and not notice a little old lady walking across the street is impossible this is science fiction at its worst but people are so intrigued by this remember what was supposed to be the next big thing after the internet you remember the invention 3D a little, a little scooter that we were all going to ride around cities on. Oh, the Segway. The Segway. And a couple of police forces, including the one in Washington, D.C., still use them. But he caught on with nobody. I have not seen a single normal human being with the possibility of tourists in Washington who they come, they're so thrilled by everything. And then somebody says, we can give you a Segway tour. What's that? Oh, you just stand on it and walk on. They, they never factored in one key problem. Rain. Rain. And you look like an idiot <laughs> on a Segway. You just do. You look yeah. like a, a, there's Of just, course. They never. And Apple, <laughs> Apple could have figured that out. Yeah. The yeah. thing with. What do, what do they say? We only use like 7% of our brain. Right. I think it's 7%. If you're a Republican. Uh, it's three. All, well, I, I would say all of it. I think they're using <laughs> everything they've got, and that's as good as they can do. But when technology comes around, people create new jobs. Like you invent a typewriter. Sure. So you use more of your brain and suddenly 
you work faster, quicker, but that creates a need for more publishing and people are reading and the inter the internet creates more jobs that you can't automate humanity out of existence. No, it's impossible. No. Simply impossible. Having some clever economic ideas besides raising the minimum wage. Of course, there are very serious people who have thought about creating a maximum wage. That is when people are earning a certain amount of money and they already have enormous assets, they should be limited in how much new income they can get. Right. And I've always been appealed, found that appeal. Right. That would be the Christian thing to do, right? It would be. Or just you, you, you can't be a billionaire. That's right. It just, That's it, right. There, there is no upside to having a billion dollars for you or your family. It's not healthy. It's child abuse. It, I, people think it's, I'm joking. It, no, you're not joking. It, it is child abuse to leave a billion dollars to your kids or have them think they're going to in, inherit a billion dollars. But I would like that abuse. I could handle that kind of abuse. Really? Yeah, I could handle yeah, I'm going to check. Uh, you know, I'm up here in Massachusetts, and um, I, uh, I'm i going to see if I can get any people like, soon I'll have two senators, including Elizabeth Warren. I'll have her call you, and then you can discuss it with her. Have you moved about, officially? Oh, I, and we're gonna, we will officially be gone one month from tonight. One month. And we have a place. We we sold our place in Washington and only took three days. I thought it would take three months. And we're oh, so coming they didn't up. Look underneath the floorboards. Yeah. Oh, oh I'm sorry. That was a <laughs> <laughs> so this is great. And no. so you're. You must be thrilled. It must be thrilling. It is. I mean, if I were 10 years Younger, I'd be a little more thrilled because you can really, really get exhausted trying to put all the pieces together, right. move the money around, make sure you're not being swindled by anybody in the middle. Right. But so far, so good. Well, being a lawyer and a minister, I would assume you would have antennae for swindlers. <laughs> yep. I think what... What could I have been like if I was your run-of-the-mill lawyer or minister? And uh, boy, it would have been a different life. So I've been going after Orthodox Jews and Christian evangelicals who support Trump and the Republican Party. Am I wrong? What? Are you wrong? No, yeah, you're not wrong. I feel guilty but Why? I, I was, well, I was raised, and this is, I think, a problem. I was raised not to criticize people's religious beliefs. You, you know, if you want your, if you want to be accepted in America, and you don't want people crit, you can't criticize other people's religion. But you know, my respect for your religion uh, stops at the edge of my government. Yeah. <laughs> When you're when you're APAC calling yourself uh, 
a, a pro-Israel lobbying organization yep. that wants to protect Jews in Israel, and you're undermining Andy Levin in Michigan mm-hmm. and, and supporting conservative candidates who don't hold Jewish values, or you support 100 candidates, APAC endorsed 100, more than 100 candidates who mm-hmm. refused to certify the election for Joe Biden. Right. How is that Jewish values? This, this is crazy, stupid, dangerous, ultra right wing Jews who are are going to get the Jews in America killed by by sidling up to anti-Semites, to saddling up to these conservatives who not only hate Jews, they hate blacks, they hate Arabs, they hate uh, Hispanics, the LGBTQ. They're everything that Jewish people, or at least 80% of American Jews, uh, the the people that APAC is in bed with, 80% of American Jews are appalled by them. And and you can't criticize APAC unless you're Jewish, because then you're Oh, you're an anti-Semite. I think APAC is anti-Semitic. Yeah. APAC is anti-Semitic. Uh, they're as bad they, as the Christian evangelicals because they're in the same bed with them. Of course they are. I remember asking Jerry Falwell on television one night. Um, he had just held a press conference with a very, very conservative rabbi. And I said to him, uh, you were with Rabbi So-and-so. I don't remember the guy's name. But he said, uh, remind me, is he going to be able to get into heaven? Right. And if, right. And and Falwell, of course, would not answer. It. Right. And r- when he was in Israel, he made some comment about the godliness of the Jewish people. And he was pilloried by his fellow Christians for suggesting that maybe Jews, I, they might go to heaven. And that, but they, by the time I had my little encounter with him one night, he was long, that other event was long forgotten. You are not a journalist. When, when George W. Bush said, in 2000 at that debate when he was asked, who's your favorite philosopher? And he says, Jesus Christ. Right. Which to (laughs) me, that's like, that was the first time anybody ever did something like that. Right. He, he crossed the Rubicon. He did. And then if if you remember almost every other Democrat on the stage, one of them, I don't remember who prefaced it by saying, well, of course, Jesus, and then went on and mentioned somebody else. Right. But they all did it. It's the same thing four years later when somebody said, which of you, there were eight or nine Republicans running at the time for the presidency. Uh, how many of you accept the evidence for evolution? One person raised his hand. Everybody else didn't. Well, they, I mean, they couldn't, they were just, they were stumped over. But no, the the devolution, you could look at most of the Republicans out there today and say, this is proof, not of evolution, (laughs) but of devolution, (laughs) because these people are crazier every single day. Weird things happen. Did you hear what Steve Bannon did the other day? What? Okay. He says this week, 
that the Democratic Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, is satanic is the word he used. And then he went on to explain that he had read in some right wing publication the fact that Fetterman was part of a Democratic grooming scandal, which means to groom children to become sexual objects. And the evidence was a picture of several members of Fetterman's family standing next to a young person uh, dressed in an anime costume. You know, that wow. uh, kind of yeah. Japanese uh, cartoon. I mean, th- th- this is beyond belief. It's, I mean, I cannot lies. even imagine. It doesn't matter what the truth is with the Republicans. It just it no. doesn't matter. If it sounds good, say it. Exactly. Or if it sounds and, bad. <laughs> but this this kind of rhetoric, you know, we talked uh, a week or two ago about the somewhat rosier than expected view in the Senate. And, of course, you wrote in your newsletter one Friday about the very same thing. And I think if you look at the latest polling, which I take with a grain of salt, maybe a whole salt shaker, but things are looking pretty good uh, Wisconsin, once uh, Mandela Barnes got the nomination, most of the other serious candidates had already dropped out. He's now ahead of Ron Johnson, who has achieved zero, nothing in the two terms he's been in office, 51 to 44 wow. percent. Now, that is that's a pretty safe margin, right? Because if you don't have three or four uh, as a Democrat, you know, you're not going to make it. Fetterman. Over Dr. Oz in the Fox poll, and Fox polls are as legitimate or illegitimate as other polls, he's beating Oz by 11 points. Wow. 11 points. Oz Florida. has a uh, home for each of, one of the, each of those points. He has a home. Exactly. He's got like 11 homes. <laughs> well, I mean, he, he just, here's another guy. He just constantly says stupid things that, prove that he knows nothing about the state of Pennsylvania. He knows nothing about the kind of things that are important in Pennsylvania as a son of Pennsylvania. This week, he he referred to Wegmans, which is a, a very nice uh, grocery store, you know, a little bit higher up than uh, Aldi or something, but not, not Trader Joe's. And uh, he called it Wegner's. Right. Wagner's. I saw a brutal interview with Dr. Oz. Hang on for one second. And they endorsed Fetterman. Yes. They, 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 I I was shocked. The company. The company endorsed Fetterman because he went into, what's the name of the store? Wegmans. Wegmans and picked up four items for crudite, claiming it was going to cost 20 bucks. (laughs) And they said, before he recorded it, no, no, we can get this crudite for five bucks. <laughs> and no, no, it doesn't matter. And they were furious and they're endorsing, and rightfully so, they're endorsing Fetterman. Yep. Yeah, crudite is, um, I have never used that word. If I saw that on a menu, I wouldn't know what it was. If you're trying to relate to ordinary people, that's as bad as Dukakis 
talking about arugula. Remember that scandal? <laughs> arugula? Don't you remember? No, I don't remember that. Oh, in 88, Dukakis was running for president and he talked about, you know, something about uh, training farmers to grow arugula. And uh, George Bush's father was running against him at the time. <laughs> arugula? Who ever heard of arugula? <laughs> And he's an elitist, a card-carrying <laughs> member of the ACLU. Unlike mm. me, I'm a hick from Texas. Worth <laughs> when Dukakis, when Dukakis made the statement about uh, the ACLU that he was a member, um, of course it was an enormous furor. I was work working for the ACLU at the time, and the chairman the executive director of the entire aclu was on a vacation that he took slavishly for three weeks in the start of summer so dukakis issues a list of things he disagrees with that the aclu stands for but the aclu its top guy kind of said I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to respond to that. Right. But it was obviously ri ridiculous. And it was the kind of thing that that uh, that was the if, that was when I knew George Herbert Walker Bush was evil. When he yeah. when when he yeah. turned the ACLU into a bad word. Yeah, that, that that's was true. Pure evil. The um, let me go through a couple of these other. Sure elections. Uh, in Florida, Val Demings in a poll just yesterday is four points ahead of Marco Rubio. Wow. And that's extraordinary because nobody really thought three, four months ago that Rubio was going to have any problem whatsoever. And in North Carolina, there's an actually a wonderful woman named Beasley who's running against the Trump acolyte, Ted Budd, B-U-D-D. And here's another, though, example. There's litigation right now in North Carolina about whether the Green Party can or cannot be on the ticket in... Let me guess. Yep. Bud yeah, wants maybe. them on. <laughs> Bud wants them on. Yes, he does. And uh, the Democratic Party there is kind of, I mean, it, it's a thing. I, you know, the Green Party, I love the Green Party. But, you know, I just, you know, I just wish there were more people who I thought could support the Green Party legitimately, honestly, and in a sense, in a market way to say we support the green. I voted for Green Party candidates, but not when I thought that would lo lose the election for mm -hmm. someone who is pretty damn, you know, progressive as Beasley is. And then I'm up here in Massachusetts and I look at I watch t television news, local news all the time. I have seen a gazillion ads for Maggie Hassan, the incumbent Democrat who represents New Hampshire. Now, she's got it's, it looks pretty clear that the, the, uh, the primary is not until, I think, the 13th of September. But, you know, there's a, a guy named Don Bolduc. He's a retired general. It looks like he's going to get the nomination. But I have not seen a single television ad about any 
one running as a Republican at all. Maggie Hassan's ads are good. She's not, you know, I've never considered her a progressive person, but she she's always trying to promote in these ads how much how bipartisan she is and so on. But when push comes to shove, she is not going to act like Kirsten Cinema. She is right. not going to act like Joe Manchin. And I I thought, you know, six months ago, I thought that, uh, you know, Governor Sununu uh, was certainly going to run. And but he said Sununu. And he said, no, no. <laughs> did, I, did I step on your joke? Oh, that's okay. Sorry. And Blake Masters, look at this idiot. He is running against Mark Kelly, the astronaut and the husband of Gabby Gifford, who was nearly assassinated. Right. And the National Republican Senatorial Committee has started to pull their ads from Arizona. Now, whenever that happens, the political party goes, we're... We're not, this is not that we're giving up. We're just being more strategic in a public private part. It's bullshit. If they thought that, that, uh, there was a chance that Blake Masters would knock out Mark Kelly, they'd be spending more money, not right. less money. Right. So who else do we have? Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxalt. Adam Laxalt, as I think I mentioned, I mean, I met him a couple of times because I do know his mother. And but he's behind four percentage points in the latest Nevada Senate poll. These are these are trends that were unthinkable, at least to me, unthinkable four or five months ago. Yeah. So that's the Senate. Yep. And if they pick up, well, they won't pick up. Nevada, Masto is already is an incumbent. Kelly's right. an incumbent. Uh, Rubio is a Republican. If De- Val Demings wins, that they flip Florida. Sure. That's one seat. In Ohio, J.D. Vance. I can't imagine J.D. Vance beating the congressman. Is it O'Brien? Who's Tim? Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan is in Ohio. Uh, He ran briefly for president. I mean, he is he is, again, he is much more moderate a Democrat than than the Bernies and so of the world. But but he would never. I mean, theoretically, you count them on your hand. Right now, it's 50 50. Right. I think it's a given that uh, Oz is going to lose and Fetterman. That's one. Right. You you can pick up a seat in Wisconsin. Ohio? I don't I'm skeptical about Ohio. Really? Yeah. Remember JD Vance, first of all, he doesn't appear to know that he's actually running for the Senate. I mean, it is he doesn't do anything. He doesn't go anywhere, but he will eventually realize when there's you know, 85 days left till the election that he has to get out and actually talk to people. Hillbilly Elegy managed to, it was so prominent, a New York Times bestseller, all the people loved it. But people who grew up in that part of the country did not like it, did not think it it was representative. And then Ron Howard, for inexplicable reasons, makes 
a movie of Hillbilly Elegy, which I, I tried to watch, but I literally, after 10 minutes, I just gave up. Right. He's not he's not the Ohio blue collar guy like Sherrod Brown, right. who's also from Ohio, the first and only Democrat to win there for a very long time. Um, but, you know, Tim Ryan, I think, will speak to actual Ohioans interests much more than J.D. Vance will. Uh, North Carolina. North Carolina. I was thinking Wisconsin. Oh no, was yeah, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Um, I th and I think those are givens. Yeah, I think they're givens. And and North Carolina, I, you think? Well, I think it literally depends on the Green Party whether they're on or off the ballot. Okay. Yeah. It would be great but to see Rubio go down if they allow. It would be wonderful if they allow African Americans to vote. Exactly, Florida, Val Demings could win. Congress. That's right. What do you think of? It's just it's that sounds tough. I think it's very tough. I just, I mean, you get solicitations, you know, every five minutes from somebody or somebody representing the interests of somebody I've never heard of, and they may be great, but how many people with a kind of a, a set, you know kind of set aside of money to, to give the political candidates, who's going to just decide that some random person running in Florida deserves my $25 today. Right. Right. I mean, I, I'm very skeptical that they can hold on to the, to the house. Right. I really am. And then we're looking at impeachment, 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 which, yep would guarantee Joe Biden's re-election. I think so. But I really, I, I know when you and Emil were talking, um, I'm just not sure that he, in fact, is going to be willing to run. Because much as it's outrageous, the kind of claims about his health that you see in right-wing media. But the truth is, he does look a little tired. We all are. We all are very tired. But he doesn't have the excuse of moving to Massachusetts. That's true. Like I do. So he, he moved to Washington. Well, no, he already lived. No, he did. He did. He moved, and he can go right back to Delaware on yeah, the train. That's, that's true. like he always does. I, I, I think America. Again, this is not a value judgment. I'm people. I'm not defending Biden. I do love my country and I root for my country. Believe it or not, I even rooted for Trump to fall down a flight of steps. But I did root for him uh, and I'm rooting for Joe Biden. He's not succeeding. He's not helping the people I care about. He's not helping. Right. That being said. He's helping some of the people I care about, which, of course. Is, which is better than Trump, who helps himself and right. nobody else. So I think he comes across as gentle. He does. He comes across as decent. I, I think he's indecent, but he he sells decency 
there's something almost Reagan-esque about him. He's not a great communicator, but he's senile. And people find that endearing. They find they found it endearing about George W. Bush. They like a president who isn't smarter than they are, who isn't intimidating. You root for somebody like Joe Biden because he's a bit of an underdog. He's not brash. And the worst, the worse Trump gets and the worse the Republican Party gets, I think people who have skin in the status quo, I'm not talking about half this country that's fallen right. through the cracks and half this country has fallen through the cracks. Uh, but the people who tend to vote because they have skin in the status quo are going to say, you know, I, li I, I like him, you know, and that'll be good enough. And, and he'll be a doddering 90 year old. Uh, but people will be rooting for him. Countries do that. They root for octogenarians, leaders, don't they? Yeah, they certainly generally do. But, well, they, some some places they do. But I, I, I still, honestly, I think there are going to be two new faces in the next presidential campaign. I think we're going to see Gavin Newsom no. and Governor Whitmer of Michigan. That's a team that uh, they're flashy, but I think we're ready to move a little bit left. And I think that that's what Gavin Newsom and, and she would do. Well, I, I think you'll get some pushback from uh, the professors and Marianne on Gavin Newsom, Kimberly Gargoyle's ex-husband. <laughs> yeah. There's something... He, I don't know. First of all, and he had an opportunity to give Californians single payer, and he didn't. It didn't. He right. didn't. He didn't do it. He had the votes, yep. and he he chickened out. Not yep. he didn't chicken out. He didn't want it. He's like Biden. You know, it's like he, the wrong guy. But I think in the sweep, if you're if you're a historian who's worth. Seven figures, you know, Michael Beschloss, you know, he was the right man for the right time. And this is the magic of America, divine providence that Joe Biden, if Joe Biden saved America. They needed he was exactly what this country needed. <clears throat> right. Can't you hear that story being written 20 years from now? Uh, absolutely. But um I, again, I, I certainly don't think uh, Gavin Newsom is he's not my kind of Democrat, but I think he really does have an appeal. He he weathered without even much of much of an effort, the effort to remove him from office. I mean, yeah. I was surprised at, at how powerful uh, the vote in favor of keeping him was. Yeah. And, you know, I. He's doing these ads in, against DeSantis in Florida which are really good ads. And they really, they seem to be, he seems to be picking a fight with DeSantis. And DeSantis, although, you know, they haven't had the primary there, so it's not clear whether um, Charlie Crist, who used to be the governor when he was a Republican, then he became a Democratic congressman. And he's he's doing pretty well in the polls at this point. I thought he was, there's a challenger, the, the, 
I think a woman is challenging him in the primaries. I thought she was doing. There is better. there is a woman running in the primaries. I mean, I just I, I can't remember. I can't think of her yeah. name. The, the primaries are what, like next week or two weeks from now? I think it's I think it's two weeks from now. Right. But I my sense of calendar is completely lost. Wait, I think for somebody, you know. By the way, moving. They say moving is more traumatic than a divorce or the loss of a loved one. Did you know that? I've heard that. I'm trying to do better than that. Right. But, I mean, but, but no, but it's, of course it's traumatic because you've got to move money and you have to depend on the willingness of people to right. let you explore their house and make sure. I mean, it's, it's yeah. a nightmare. Yeah. Let's t- Can we talk about the payment protection program? Because that's almost forgotten, yeah. except if you were a beneficiary of it. Wow. Here, a big study done just this week. First of all, there was a study a few weeks ago from the University of Texas. That they said of the $950 billion that was sent out with those two PPP programs, 15%, that's $75 billion, were total frauds. I mean, these are not people who made a mistake. Here's a guy who was, uh, I was looking at, there's a, a database of people who were prosecuted for fraud with government programs. Andy Tefekchian. He got an $850,000 loan. This was allegedly to retain 78 employees of a company called Bencha Jewelry. Of course, most of those 78 didn't even exist. What did he do? He took vacations. He paid off his gambling debts. (laughs) He pleaded guilty and uh, he's in prison now. But this, that was a scandal. That was kind of like last week. But then this week, somebody looked at all of the people who received money. Listen to these. Jared Kushner got a $3 million loan that's already, yes, that's already been forgiven. In other words, if you did what you were supposed to do, keep people employed, it didn't matter. Jared how Kushner wealthy. got a paycheck yes. protection. Yeah. yeah, three million dollar loan, and it's been forgiven. But just to, just not to pick only on white people, Jay Z through his company Malibu Entertainment, which among other things has this very expensive streaming service called Tidal. He wanted to secure 95 jobs. He got a little over a million dollars. That's if he was only saving 95 jobs and he got a million dollars, that those people must be paid a lot of money. But why do we give people who are multimillionaires, P. Diddy, Chloe Kardashian, one and a quarter million dollars already forgiven again because of her denim clothing brand called Good American. When Congress gets together to give out money that they expect is going to be absolutely necessary for people and particularly people in small businesses, you could write a statute that said we're not giving money to anybody who has a high net worth of and then fill in the blanks and if the net worth is a with a company that you control 
then you shouldn't be eligible to get it. It's like churches. There are churches getting hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay the choir director, to pay the person who does religious education. They shouldn't get one penny because that is a absolute affront to separation of church and state. If you are an impoverished church, you do one of two things. You ask the people in the pews or that were watching during the pandemic over all of these virtual services, and you ask them for more money. You do not go to the government and say, please, please give me money. That is not what you should do. So, I mean, this, but This is what happens when legislation is written largely in absentia. You know, nobody was really in Washington when they wrote either of these. And it was Trump, by the way, not Biden. And it was Trump, yeah. It was Trump, but it was, um, I think that had they made a motion for a kind of means test before you could get the loans, or at least the loans being forgiven, I think people would have voted for that. Giving no money to religious institutions, of course, would be harder and probably wouldn't have passed. But but to not say anything, I don't recall a single word. I certainly didn't read all the congressional records for those two years, but I don't remember a single person saying, oh, uh, on this giving money to the St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Podunk. Come on. They didn't even raise it. They didn't even raise it. So we got to have people who have more of a commitment to actually doing the work, more of a commitment to actually reading the bills, knowing what's contained therein, and be able to honestly be able to explain to constituents or to a television audience what the hell they have just voted for. Right. Grover Norquist, who says he wants to make government so... Small, you can drown it in the bathtub. Got paycheck protection money, as yep. did the Ayn Rand Institute and several yes, other far-right uh, anti-government organizations. And lobbyists. Oh, of course. Of course they did. And um, here's the thing about the Democrats. The Republicans complain about government waste because... They waste government money. That's what they do. That's they they create these boondoggles and then they pay off all their friends. The Democrats, uh, there are many complaints I have about the technocrats, the professional managerial class, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, who left the Department of Transportation and went to Blackstone so he can help them bid for the $600 billion in bipartisan infrastructure money that the Department of Transportation is going to be distributing. I mean, it's really sinful. But there is a level of competence. Uh, Well, the Republicans are stupid and they just see a cash, they see a pile of money and they just take it. They just want it. One thing about Joe Biden was he was in charge of the stimulus package that Obama passed in 2009. Right. And it was his job to do what Harry Truman did 
during World War II as a senator, which is to look for government waste. And, and that stimulus package, the money did not get wasted. Joe Biden got credit, maybe deserved, may, I hmm. like to think deserved, for making sure that that $900 billion stimulus, stimulus package, which was transformative, the money wasn't wasted. That's right. I mean, there's always going to be some waste. There's always going to be some corruption when you're talking right. about this many hundreds of, of millions of dollars. But but this stuff just is beyond the pale. You don't even hear about the. a lot of these uh, people have, in fact, uh, pleaded guilty. I don't. There was a big story about this a couple months ago on NBC News one night. But other than that, this is almost a forgotten thing. There's nothing in newspapers about whatever happened to the PPP money. Right. Nothing. It's one of those things that simply it's a flash in the pan. People know about it. They have opinions about it. And then it totally disappears from the news cycle, which means it totally leaves most people's minds. But if we don't get serious about looking at this money and looking at the ways in which it's already been been uh, has corrupted so many. By the way, Nancy Pelosi's husband also got PPP money. Did you know that? But he's a good person. Yeah, I'm he's sure only he worth two hundred million dollars. Yeah, well, two hundred million. He didn't get that much. Uh, How much did he but get? Not, I don't know. I I was looking at my notes here, and I I can't find the number. It was a hefty amount of money. A hefty amount of money. It, it this is this is the kind of stuff that makes people say, you know. <laughs> How do I get in I on it? That's what well, I no, well they, they they say that and then they say, but since I'll never get into it, um because they're so convinced they're gonna rise into the upper class financially, um they they go everybody's a crook and right. I'm not gonna vote. Uh, there's a little a little polling data that suggests that young people who were assumed to be sitting out the midterms are in fact going to vote, not in the percentage that they ought to be voting, but in a way that is not an embarrassment to an entire generation. Yeah. People vote their self-interest. People vote their pocketbook. So if you stay home and don't vote you're not going to get representation in Congress. If everybody voted, if everybody voted, mm. uh, the rich could not buy elections. That is absolutely correct. I'm not blaming, the, I'm not blaming the victims. No. Elections have consequences. And uh, sometimes... Elections, the consequences are no more elections. If uh, yeah. Hey, what is an yeah. affidavit? It's a, a sworn statement about something in, in the case of, of the stuff at Mar-a-Lago. Um, it's, it's, it's just a sworn statement detailing the reasons that the government presented to the judge in the case uh, in order to get the right to have the uh, the, the visit to Mar-a-Lago. So 
so Garland's Florida uh, 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 U.S. Attorney. U.S. Attorney. Thank you. Yep. Uh, boy, I'm look at me criticizing Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> says there's proof that there's a reason to raid or not raid. That's a bad choice no. of words. To uh, to go into this, yeah. to visit Mar-a-Lago, right, and take what we think is evidence of a crime, and then the That's- judge looks at the affidavit, the, and, and you have FBI agents, you have witnesses who who swear under oath that, or not often, often under oath that yeah. we have reason to believe that these documents were secreted, secreted, or secreted. Yeah. Or secreted to to Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> and now the Republicans want to see that affidavit because they want to know who the rats are. Of course, there's no question. I'm I was shocked. According to the Associated Press, a couple hours ago, the um, the judge has said that he wants to see the redacted version of the affidavit because he's inclined to release it, but does understand that there will be names, name, maybe sources of information. Maybe they look, maybe the so-called rat. I consider them a hero, but some people would consider them rats. Uh, That he's going to make a decision tomorrow about whether to allow a redacted version to be released. So that was a big surprise to me. I did not anticipate that. The Trump administration is notorious for witness tampering. Both Liz Cheney and Benny Thompson, the chairman, Benny Thompson, the chairman of the January 6th committee, wrapped up the the the, 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 the last batch of hearings by saying we have reports that some people are being called by Trump or his associates telling them not to testify. They, you know, they are notorious for tampering with witnesses. Why would you, why would the Justice Department or any judge allow Donald Trump to know who, who tipped off the Justice Department? Well, yeah, he, they shouldn't, but I'm saying that if you take that information out of the affidavit, you black it out, you re- it's redacted, it's it's removed from visible sight. Um, I have a question yeah. about uh, attorney-client privilege. Cipollone, is that how you pronounce his name? Cipollone. Cipollone. has 10 yeah. kids, by the way. Cipollone was White House counsel. He's cooperating with the grand jury is a is an attorney i mean john dean was white house counsel he ended up going to prison right watergate does a white house counsel have are you obligated to report a crime committed by the president you're advising here's what i think the answer is you're not obligated to report the evidence of a crime that is revealed to you in a conversation with your client. But if your client says, and by the way, not only did I do A, but in two weeks, I'm going to do B. 
it's a future crime, and that is not covered by an attorney-client privilege in, in the federal system or in a lot of states. So it is conceivable that Cipollone or the other uh, attorney tipped off the DOJ about the classified material. Yeah, it's conceivable. It's conceivable. Who but um, Cipollone, I know you were... Um, we have to wrap Cipollone it. is actually a Native American playing an Italian lawyer. Is that true? No, oh. no, but it's just a play oh, with on the, the tear. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, remember, you, you know, I'm right about that guy, right? The, the actor. Yeah. Very quickly, we have to wrap it up. Okay. Uh, but what, what, what else? Can you go through your notes? Yeah, I just want to talk about one movie that people can watch streaming. It's called Await Further Instructions. It was made a couple of years ago, and it's a, a British film about a Christmas gone bad. It's a horror movie. It starts out like a kind of Twilight Zone. It lasts about an hour and a half, and I found it absolutely riveting. I mean... People criticize it. It's too violent. It's too this or that. Await further instruction. It's all about how technology has totally warped the human experience. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Well, this has been, this is technology. I don't think we've warped. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we could. Right. Yeah, you're right. And, uh, pretty weird. Yeah, they, oh, look, this is rodents coming out of my wife's computer. Seriously? No, no, no. That was just a reference to kind of a hint at what you find in that movie. Things. Oh, oh, oh! I yeah, see. yeah, yeah. Okay. Await further instructions. I think it's on Netflix. Go to barrywlin.com for a treasure trove of the man's sermons, his appearances on shows like. Firing line, night line, what's my line? Uh, can I have a line? Uh, and but not snort a line. I don't do that. No. No, and I didn't do that. You didn't do that. Uh, no. Go to Barry W Lynn.com. Uh yes. And yes. follow him on Twitter at Barry W Lynn. That's it. Stay out of trouble, Reverend. Great job. It's Great to see you, and congratulations <laughs> on your move. And uh, it's great; it's just great. You look, you Thank look you. really happy. Well, and I'm also happy to actually have members of Congress I can complain to, right? Where it really matters. Okay, uh, I'll only get in good trouble. Stay out of trouble, and only uh, good trouble. Okay. Uh, Reverend Barry. Yes. Uh, what part of Massachusetts are you going to be moving to? Well, let's let's do that through email. Let's not. Oh, let's. Well, I'm yeah. just saying the general area. Yeah. Well, well the, the South Shore. Okay. South 14, of Boston. 14, it's, and north of Cape 14, Cod. He he lives at fourteen fourteen Mockingbird Lane. <laughs> and, and, and the guy with the the blue flag in the front yard that says Massachusetts. Backs the blue. That you'll know that's me. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the blue vibe. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank so you. So long. It's time for the professors and Marianne. Everybody's here. That's great. Joe in Norway. What are you cooking for Hello. us today? Hey, David. Hello. Yeah, so it's it's been uh, extremely warm down here in southern Spain. So um, Bad forest fires. Terrible. But uh, to quench our thirst, we've been living on gazpacho, the uh, cold cold soups. So today I'm going to do a few different ones, two traditional and one I have to, on, I, on excuse me for one second. You have to, I'm looking at Professor Marianne, Professor Anne, Professor Jonathan, and Professor Adnan, and they have this law, all four, uh, one, two, three, four, have this, this longing look, this yearning. It, it's just... We aim to please. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm just looking yeah. at the four of them and they're... Oh, it's like it's, it's looking at a puppy. Yeah, so I'm going to make a, a traditional um, tomato, paprika, and carrot uh, gazpacho. And then I'll be making a almond, garlic, and dried bread gazpacho. And then one more, if I've got time, to make... Um, Cucumber, celery, and uh, Granny Smith apple. And uh, we have some other ingredients here and there. Garlic, peppers, onion, shallot. Amazing. You sound so also, relaxed. I'm, I'm in my natural environment of around uh, 85 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 C. It's lovely. And we're in Spain. A little different than the where, where are you? I'm in Mal Malaga, on the Costa del Sol. Wow. Wow. Must be nice. I'm. Uh, it's lovely. I'm in an air shaft overlooking a parking garage. I'm in now in the polar opposite of Norway. Norway is. We've had the the most rain uh, ever this year. And, and spare could you dry as dry as a bone? Yeah. All right. Get to work. Torture us. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll talk to yes, you in sir. an hour. It's time for the professors and Marianne. Let's go. It's always great to see everybody. I had uh, we had dinner with Grace yesterday in Brooklyn, and it was one of those things where, oh, this is real. This is you know this is an actual. We, we went out to Brooklyn and, and talk. You know, it's not that different from Zoom. Do It's not that you meet somebody, you sit across the table from them. It's not that different from this. Uh, but I think the food would have been better had Joe uh, been cooking it. Professor Ann Lee, we could read you over. We should read you over at the Daily Co's. Your handle is Ann Lee, Annie Lee, Annie Lee. And every midnight you do an update on the war in Ukraine. So could you give us an update on how uh, our weapons of mass destruction are going? Uh, sure. It, uh, uh, high Mars are hitting their, their targets. Um, What's the high to the, 
the uh, the accuracy of uh, uh, sort of medium range ballistic missiles. Um, but it, it's more than that. I, it, what is currently interesting and, and what I'm uh, publishing, what I published a little bit yesterday and probably tonight, um, which I think uh, relates to what Adnan was recently engaged in relative to Islamophobia, is that uh, Russia is now making noises that, well, it really wasn't all denazification of Ukraine, but it's really Islam that's the problem. And of course, the irony is that Chechnya has uh, been recruiting new battalions and the Muslim population of Chechnya is resisting because they do not want to fight outside of their natural of their native country. So this is an interesting problem. Now, of course, it, it's incredibly disinformational. You know, the, the well, they don't have a draft in Russia, do they? Uh, well, no, they've they've tried to do a pseudo draft where they've increased the max the the maximum age for enlistees. They've been enticing um, uh, veterans to come back. Uh, they've been recruiting uh, prisoners from the prisons and giving them uh, clemency if they fight for the Russian army. Uh, and then they've been recruiting further uh, off in the various oblasts, uh, uh, Siberia at all. Um, a lot of them have been actually losing their lives. They're cannon fodder, as far as I can tell, in terms of the deployment. Um, so when you look at the kind of uh, daily reporting details, which are, are uh, in open source, uh, it's really a fascinating problem. Of course, there's claims of atrocities on both sides. There's uh, uh, in incredibly problematic disinformation relative to attacks on Russian-held territory, which now seem to be more like sabotage rather than uh, missile hits, which is also quite fascinating. But it, it's a variety of things. I mean, you have everything, including um, uh, partisans uh, killing uh, a Russian uh, nominated uh, or installed uh, uh, bureaucrats. There's been four or five now that have been assassinated in a variety of uh, usual ways. And uh, um, it's a very complicated story, uh, including the and I think this is disinformation, but it is quite amusing that there are preparations on the Russian side to uh, try another attack on Kiev from the uh, from Belarus. Uh, not soon, but uh, perhaps uh, after Ukraine actually does its major counteroffensive, which should happen in a couple of weeks. So okay. that's kind of where we are right now. But I, as I said, I thought I I would at least mention the Islamophobia element, because that at least today is the latest piece of uh, disinformation that is coming from the Russians. OK, what would you like to talk about other than that? Oh, oh I just found it quite uh, uh, fascinating that. Uh, uh, we have some uh, uh, claims by uh, uh, Ron DeSantis that uh, uh, ESG, that is environmental, uh, social and governance, uh, that we have a new uh, three letter acronym that is now the new CRT of BSDs because uh, <laughs> he, he's trying to get he's trying to misuse Florida's pension funds. And essentially, it's a uh, inverted version of 
uh, attacks on social investing or divestiture, and he's a- attempting to manipulate Florida's pension funds. And uh, this is as a part of the kind of uh, attempt to uh, privatize uh, Social Security and a variety of other things that it seems only Florida politicians really are quite obsessed with. Um, and he cl- his claim is, of course, that um, ESG, and that is uh, uh, socially responsible investing, is another example of woke ideology. So but it is uh, a scam, th- isn't it? It's a very large scam. It's just uh, misuse. It's abuse of power. It is just another tack away from his issue of trying to uh, 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 scapegoat uh, small populations and the weak, uh, uh, including, uh, for example, teachers or people who affiliate themselves with actual justice. So it, it's not going away. But it, I raise it as an interesting question because socially responsible uh, investing is an interesting problem. It, it just, on the one hand, it is, uh, it, it's very important, but on the other hand, it is just simply another opportunity for those who might engage in, for example, greenwashing. Right. So, I, I was going to say ESK investment is a scam. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's very problematic, but there are some interesting instruments that are being created that uh, raise some some useful possibilities. Um, um, and without getting into a long lecture on uh, monetary theory, it's just that uh, uh, there are some ideas that have come up now that uh, sustainability linked bonds, for example, uh, some other kinds of instruments uh, uh, green related ones uh, might actually provide assuming you have a pro- proper regulatory framework um, could actually actually serve the, the purposes of, for example, the Green New Deal uh, going forward. So it's just a, an interesting idea. And so that there are, are some ways of using uh, the bond side rather than the stock side, since I know that you have a thing about stocks, uh, about uh, right. uh, public regulatory uh, coverage of stocks that uh, actually might be interesting. So that's my other little thing I'm sort of interested in. Right. I saw a, a, a hatchet job on these investments, ESK, in the New York Times. They interviewed two women who run these funds. And they said, well, how do you determine that a, a fund or a company is socially responsible? And one of them said, well, if it's run by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, where's Dr. Harriet Fraud when you when you need her? Uh, exactly. Professor Jonathan Bick, the way we should, I think, do this. If, does anybody have any follow up comments or anything? Just. Yeah. So I just want to say on ESG, uh, it stands for environmental, social and governance investing. Uh, I, I see a lot of hatchet jobs on it. Um, some uh that are accurate and others i'm not so sure so um certainly it could be something that could be useful right if it were implemented in a way that actually meant something you know just saying oh you know a a woman is ceo so therefore it's a (laughs) it has good governance well no obviously not um but you could make um, you could make strict requ- requirements, right? You could say, oh, "Okay, um, you know, does this company have 
a, uh, a high quality, uh, either a 401k plan or a real pension plan for its employees. Uh, does this uh, company allow for uh, worker representation on the board of directors? Uh, does this uh, company, you know, uh, not invest in fossil fuels? Uh, does it um, uh, have a ratio uh, from its lowest paid full-time worker uh, to the CEO? Right. You know, you, you could do meaningful things with this. Uh, a lot of it, however, is, if you want to call it greenwashing or whatever kind of washing you want to call it, uh, you know, it's making people feel good uh, about investing in companies that really aren't doing things that are meaningful. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what would you like to talk about? Well, I, I wanted to talk about um, an article that was on the front page of the Boston Globe today that contrasted uh, differences in elder care uh, in the Netherlands compared to the United States. And this let me is guess, a, let me guess. Let me let me guess. Uh, elder care. Contrasting elder care in the United States versus where? The Netherlands. Versus um, the Netherlands. Yeah. That would be Holland? Holland. So, like, who has better health care? Uh, not, not specifically health care, but, um, for example, uh, nursing homes, assisted living facilities. Right. right. I'm going to, can I take a guess? Yeah. <laughs> have uh, a guess. Uh, which one's better, uh, David? Uh, I'm just going to go with the Netherlands. Oh, you got it. I don't know how you do that. I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure, but I went, I, I went with it, the Netherlands. It's a tough call, but yeah, yeah it turns out uh, they edge us out by uh, a couple of miles. So um, in the Netherlands, they use public funds, uh, a sense of shared responsibility, and compulsory insurance premiums paid throughout the working lives of uh, Dutch people. Hmm. And, uh, you know, those who were born in the post-World War II baby boom uh, take it for granted that they're going to have high quality home and uh, nursing home care if they need it. So it makes them lazy. I would assume uh, <laughs> Holland, is that the kind? I would assume they're, they're, they're uh, it's a third world country, Holland. That's oh, right. yeah. I mean, you got all these 80 year olds just laying around, you know, they're Where's not, the they're not really doing their share. Um, in the U.S., uh, it's a different story. Uh, you know, the, the question of who's going to take care of older Americans, who's going to pay for it, uh, keep people up at night. Uh, there was a scathing report in April from the National Academies of Sciences that described the U.S. long-term care system as, quote, ineffective, inefficient, and fragmented. The wealthiest can afford healthy quality care. Uh, uh, those with less money uh, must navigate a system that forces them to spend down their savings to get a nursing home bed. And, 
you know, this might surprise a lot of people, but uh, Medicare does not provide long term uh, care for the elderly, Uh, you know, nursing home or assisted living uh, or in home care. Um, And Medicaid does, but you have to be destitute in order to qualify for Medicaid. So people can work their entire lives, uh, get to retirement age, think they're going to have a dignified retirement, and then they end up in a low-quality nursing home that takes all of their money. Um, You have to spend down all of your assets in order to uh, then have Medicaid start paying. Um. So this is not the way it works in the Netherlands. Uh, The Dutch use the word solidarity to describe their commitment to older people. The Netherlands was the first country in Europe to introduce a mandatory long-term care system in 1968. It's been updated and refined uh, several times, and it, it provides universal care for all elderly people in the Netherlands. And it relies uh, partially on managed competition between nonprofit providers and insurers. And most recently in 2015, they have revamped it again to focus on keeping residents in their own homes because that's first of all, cost effective. And most importantly, what people want to do. People want to be able to stay in their own home. It's a good way not to catch COVID. And that as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, In the U.S., though, I mean, it is just it's 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 a hodgepodge of, uh, you know, tattered safety nets and very expensive care. A nursing home can cost upwards of one hundred thousand dollars a year. And uh, obviously, the average retiree uh, cannot afford that. And the quality of those facilities varies widely. You know, I volunteered in a, uh, a nice uh, home for the elderly uh, when I was in high school. And I got to say, you know, it's probably one of the nicest in Fairfield County, um, Connecticut, even with that, it's not a place I'd want to be living. Um, so if the you know, countries should invest uh, some money into making sure that people can stay in their homes for as long as possible. Um, so the Netherlands spends over 4% of its GDP on long-term care, more than any other advanced country. Uh, the equivalent expenditure in the U.S. would be about $800 billion per year, um, which is more than we currently spend on Medicare, which, as I said, does not cover long-term care. And they pay for it through mandatory payroll deductions um, from workers and employers, and that can go up to as much as 9.6% uh, uh, of your income for higher income, uh, people, but everyone's covered and it's high quality care. 
It's not something you have to save your entire life for or try to buy these insurance policies that are extremely expensive. And um, if you don't end up using them, you lose all that money. I mean, I, I looked into this um, it's been seven years ago and it was uh, about $10,000 a year for this insurance that you hope you never use. And if you don't use it, you lose all the money. How much is it a year? It was about 10,000 for good coverage. Is that still available? So uh, a lot of the insurance companies that were offering long-term care insurance uh, stopped offering it because it was utilized. The the, uh, rate of utilization was higher than they anticipated Hmm. and they were hemorrhaging money. So now you can still get it, but it's more expensive and it may not provide as much benefit as it originally did, but it's worth looking into. Um, you know, uh, fewer than 7% of Americans over 50 have private insurance for long-term care. Uh, the, the data that comes out of the Netherlands uh, suggests that uh, the elderly are happier, healthier, and live longer lives. An international survey of older adults by the Commonwealth Fund last year found that 68% of Americans over 65 reported having two or more chronic health conditions compared with 40% of their Dutch counterparts. And only 2% of Dutch respondents said they were stressed about having enough money to pay for their food, rent, or bills versus 11% of older Americans. And a separate survey on loneliness, um, the database uh, firm Statista found that only 15% of Dutch adults acknowledged feeling lonely, less than half the share of Americans, which is uh, 31%. And a lot of this has to do with the way that these these care facilities are organized. They're being very innovative. They're not like hospital wards. Uh, They are more like miniature villages where people can live or they're arranged in um, small wings where everyone has a private room, but they get together. Uh, for meals and entertainment and and shared space. So there's a lot of um, thought that's going into it and a lot of money that's going into it as well. Hmm. In the Netherlands. Yeah. Anybody want to Well, I, yeah, I just think this is such a huge uh, social concern and problem. I mean, with an aging population, we keep hearing about this in our, you know, country, well, in the U.S. and Canada, really, you only hear about uh, the kind of social security issues um, as if that is, is enough when you're in retirement and near the end of life, that's not going to be possible Um, you know, to have the kind of care that people need. And I think it's such a worry and an anxiety for people. And this is something that we never account for. We always talk about the, 
costs and, you know, in fiscal terms, but the actual quality of people's lives is really at stake because you can't live a, you know, fulfilled life if you're just constantly worried about uh, the fact that, you know, you're going to get older and you don't know whether there's going to be support and care so that you can have a dignified life for as long as you're, you know, potentially capable of. So I was just in the UK and um, that's another country that seems to have uh, somewhat better uh, a system. Um, my uh, aunt is much older now and she started having terrible health problems and is losing, you know, has lost sort of a lot of cognitive capacity to take care of herself. But twice a day, uh, the local council, that is basically like a county or municipal sort of local government, everyone pays a tax to their council, there's council tax. And one of the things that is provided is that they sent um, care workers twice a day to her home to provide, you know, assistance, you know, take care of her, do the basic necessities, feed her. She started having difficulties. You know, this is a humane system. I was astonished to see that, they, that you know, they had a system like this. Um, as far as the sort of long-term care insurance, um, in the university sector, they tend to have good benefits. And one of the options you can when you join, but you can only do it apparently in the first period of joining, you know, the organization, you're not eligible if you don't sign up for it immediately, basically, you know, when you, you know, choose your benefits and so on as part of your hiring. One of the benefits um, that is that is offered is long-term, you know, care. And, uh, you know, when I first signed up for it, and a lot of people don't sign up for it because it's an extra expense, your salary is, you know, not as large as you need to meet, um, you know, your requirements. And that seems to be one of the things that at the beginning of life in your 30s, you're not really thinking about. The system should not be based on, you know, having to make decisions like this um, early on. And that's if you're a lucky person at a job that has, you know, you know, good benefits uh, even then, you might not end up with coverage because um, you can't afford it. It's you know maybe a hundred dollars a month that you can't really afford, uh, and that's much cheaper than what Prof. John is mentioning because it's subsidized as part of a you know package. But you're not eligible for it, you know, in a year or two uh, when you might think, um, oh, I should start thinking about retirement, right? So, um, I think this is a really huge issue, um, and so I'm glad. Prof. John, that you've raised it, but, you know, um, what do, you know, what does one do except observe uh, how inhumane our system is compared to other comparable societies? And, you know, they're having a much better quality of life because you can have some peace of mind. Uh, I think yeah. that's so important. The insecurity and the worry, we don't know how to put a cost on that, but we are not living well because we're living with these kinds of fears and anxieties that are stressors. It contributes to more health problems and it just undermines the quality of life. What is it, Professor Marianne? We, we've just trained this country to, to stop caring about each other uh, or we're just too big? Well, I think, you know, I'll, 
all of us dearly love to believe that the system, if we just voted, would correct itself. And I allowed myself to believe that. I blame myself, to quote the late great Herman King, with Obama. I thought, well, maybe the system will right itself. No, it hasn't. I mean, in, in, in the subsequent years, it's just revealed just the hollowing out of all of our social safety nets. I, I was just in a discussion with somebody the other day. Um, I think Jacobin wrote an article about this some a, a while back. It's uh, There was a little program that was started during the Trump administration, but it was a variation of things that have been done for decades against Medicare. Another way that private insurance companies can get into the, you know, to all that big juicy pile of Medicare money. Mm-hmm. That's the direct content. It's uh was the, called the direct contracting entity program. Okay. Well, you would have thought that that would have just wiped and just wiped clean if, if the Biden administration came in. Nope. Uh, they've actually been expanding that. And it's some called of it's some program called ACO Reach. Not sure what the ACO stands for, but contracting is in one of them. Is in one that is one of those words. Um, and it's basically a way of uh, providing. Well, they have they have euphemisms for it, like accountable medicine and things like that. But unlike, say, Medicare Advantage, where at least you have to actively. Uh, at the beginning of Medicare, just like just like Professor Adnan was saying about his benefits, you have to decide right uh, up front if you want to take Medicare Advantage or not. And all these things you have to decide up front that I would say most people really aren't capable of being able to decide which one is best for them. But nonetheless, you have to actively opt out of traditional Medicare. Well, these programs, uh, you basically, people, they get to take over people's Medicare programs in an administrative capacity at first, but uh, they can basically get into the decision-making process of care that they can provide or not provide. I mean, and this is all unbeknownst to the people who thought that they had chosen traditional Medicare. Um, It's just another, of course, you know, who are these people that are getting into into it? private equity-backed firms, of course, because it's another way of just, you know, another little portal to leach the blood out of the system. Exactly. Um, so, in, in fact, uh, the, when these plans, the, the good news is that these when these plans are introduced, uh, even in places like Arizona, usually local uh, administrators and the state uh, health officials start really rebelling against that. There was famously... I think earlier this spring sometime, there was a big, another big fight in Seattle City Council. And uh, I'm sure you would not be shocked that friend of the show, Kashama Kasawant, was involved with that. And it was basically when they were, um, it, it, it was involving, it, it was a fight that also involved the Amazon tax, tax but they won't, but it was also fighting uh, the local entities that handle Medicare uh that to to alert them to you know push back on these entities trying to come in and as contractors to do administrative handling of Medicare, but actually they take over the Medicare. They're essentially like a stealth Medicare advantage, but with less oversight. So this is the way we're we're doing, and and you know I think as I said, this is not unrelated to the way that. 
lefties and Democrats have just been behaving like beat down dogs. We have not demanded any just basic, decent, human type accountability from our government. We're supposed to shut up. I mean, you know, they'll trot out, they'll maybe even the progressives might mention Medicare for all in a campaign, but that's it. They won't fight it. There is no big movement, even among the progressives, which I, where did Bernie's movement go? Mm-hmm. I mean, we should be we should be giving everybody the treatment that they gave recent Supreme Court justices over Roe v. Wade overturn. I mean, we should be making all of these politicians feel very uncomfortable. I know that some of us, oh, I'm here in Michigan, but I mean, back in Kane County, uh, some of us are are planning to make our Congress people feel very uncomfortable about their stances on refusing to expand, not only refusing to expand Medicare to all of us, but just enormous resistance to improving Medicare. It's just, you know, they can't, they have to get reelected. It's always the emergency to get reelected because look, ooga booga, Republicans over there, you know, and it's, so if we're going to be stuck in this trap, duopolistic trap, I don't know how we get out of it inside the system. There's gotta be some outside disruption. I'm just getting the story about Dan Price, who I had on the show. Dan Price ran a payroll company, and I had him on the show five years ago because he announced that he was giving Hmm. his employees a minimum pay of $70,000 a year. He was considered the most moral CEO in America. His name is Dan Price. Hmm. And now, you guessed it, New York Times expose, social media was a CEO's bullhorn and how he lured women. Dan Price was applauded for paying a minimum salary of $70,000 at his Seattle company and criticizing corporate greed. The adulation helped to hide and enable his behavior. Apparently he had a, allegedly had a harem of women and uh, there is uh, an investigation into uh, some Cosby-esque activity. Were they at least paid $70,000 a year and I think, benefits? I think so. <laughs> so these guys, yeah, I mean. Accusations of But, you know, I'm just this coming to. This is your capitalism. That, you know, this is. Yeah, I and it's not. It's it's not to emulate the any old Soviet system, but we really. It's like Chris. Chris Hedges says we and and, um, and our friend um, Richard Wolf, we we never question the underpinnings of this whole economic order, or you're not even allowed to to question the underpinnings of this economic order. That is just it, it just extracting an inhuman cost, even when we know, as we're reminded every weekend that. If we got a future out there with Starfleet, uh, we really have to shed this, you know, just anchoring in these really 19th century ideas. But also that the politics, the politics are just tailor made around the, you know, one percent, you know, capitalist extractive capitalist class so that you've got a you've got a PR that's, uh, you know, are for guns and they're for Jesus and they're anti-gay. And then there's just the other that isn't, that's the opposite. And they would love to keep us 
as important as those things are, the fact is, you know, the ruling class does not really concern itself at all with any of this. And the only thing is what our friend Harvey K says. I mean, it's got to be a workers movement and everybody's a worker. If you if you rely on a paycheck, you're all workers. You're not capitalists. And and to organize around that so that we're not just in this, you know, continuous loop of hating each other. And being afraid of the other side more than the the people who are really stealing your life from you. And uh, to do that, I don't know. I see the best chance on the local level. Certainly people know this. I mean, people are able to discuss these kinds of things that they weren't even 10 years ago. So Bernie Sanders did that. But uh, on the congressional level, I don't know. They've really... The uh, powers that be in Washington, D.C. have really circled the wagons. They completely neutralized Nina Turner. I mean, completely. And they even got the progressives in Congress to go along with it. Mark Pocaine said that 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 vote to endorse Chantel Brown was unanimous among the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So, you know, that's... uh, I mean, that might be one sign that they're really afraid. I mean, they really they really pulled all the stops to make sure that progressives didn't get a toehold. But then, you know, in terms of direct electoral action. But, hey, uh, what does people think about a possible Congress <laughs> congressperson, Sarah Palin from Alaska? Anybody see that race? She came in second, as I understand it. Well, let's see. It, she came in second among four people. Three of them were Republicans and one was a Democrat. And the Democrat got about 35 percent of the vote. Presumably, Sarah Palin has a very good chance of becoming the next congressperson from Alaska. Watch well, out. It, it, it's ranked choice voting. So I think... Uh, um, her in-laws were backing her, yes. one of the Republican opponents. <laughs> they hate her. Oh, yes, right. Oh, she and Todd, they split up. Oh, the humanity, that's so sad. But that's right. Well, Professor Adnan Hussein, you're a world traveler. You, you've been to in- Istanbul. I think you were in Great Britain. Yeah, that's right. So other countries like the Netherlands seem to provide for their people, comparatively speaking, without destroying the system and having revolution in the streets and getting rid of capitalism. And I'm doing my Phil Donahue impersonation. Uh, It's it's a good impression. It's not good, but it's what what is it? Why can't we get a hybrid system that I'm sure if we had somebody on from the Netherlands, they would tell us the flaws. I know Lane and talks about the flaws with uh, NIH in Great Britain. Why? What what is it about America that we just can't even get a hybrid system? Because capital, the excuse I hear is, well, capital 
is relentless. It, it, but it's not relentless in very successful countries like Holland, which great GDP, right? Right. Well, I mean, these societies um, had stronger um, social organizations for workers that turned into unions for a longer period of time. Um, the U.S., you know, as a kind of settler colonial polity that drew labor. Firstly, of course, there's a lot of uh, enslaved labor. Um, you know, it's, uh, hard to establish uh, workers' rights when you have no rights as a person. Um, and also because of waves of immigration, there was always this kind of inflow and promise of, um, you know, this um, American dream and individualism and go out on the frontier and you can make it on your own. And this was, you know, turned into some grand ideal that affected our political culture. Um, so there's the myth and there's the reality, which is that you're drawing, right. you know, pools of labor from around the world to come. Um, and of course, when you come under those conditions initially, not as citizens, um, you know, you're more vulnerable. And so I think in some ways you don't have the um, social dimensions upon which the welfare society was built Um in, and those foundations were harder to establish. They were established, you know, to some extent during, you know, if Professor Harvey J.K. were here, he would tell us about all the, you know, great achievements during that period. But, um, you know, there's a stronger, it seems to me, you know, the guilds, for example, guilds in Europe uh, of affiliations of workers uh, protecting their interests go back to the medieval period, right? Uh, so, you have a kind of structure to society that could transform into uh, social and political action. Um, and so they were able to establish much stronger institutions, more long uh, abiding. They're under attack. They're being rolled back. I mean, Lane would tell us that, you know, the NHS has been systematically underfunded and undermined through several, you know, conservative governments. Um in particular, though, I don't think, um, you know, new labor has a tremendous record in maintaining the welfare society. They've been under austerity policies as well, but there was more that had to be chipped away. Whereas in the U.S., I think, you, you know, these were products really just of the 30s um, and early 40s. And we've had 40, 50, 60, 70 years of undermining these. And we're now at a state where... Um, without like the pressure of a global alternative, a rival system during the Cold War, you still had to, you know, you had to, you had to demonstrate and prove that uh, we could provide, um, uh, you know, welfare for people, a good standard of living, you know, because there was a rival you had to kind of compete with, you know, right. that's gone. And as a result, there's been no pressure Um you know, other than what we can generate by our own social movements, there's no kind of larger global condition that would aid workers leveraging that. Instead, everything was reversed. So we had NAFTA, you know, we had, you know, GATT and the WTO, and these were all mechanisms for undermining workers' collective power to secure 
bargaining rights, uh, pensions, you know, good, um, you know, healthcare plans and policies. And so that's what we're dealing with is, is, you know, an era where workers were alone. They were on their own. Uh, And you cannot fight, you know, multinational corporations, uh, you know, being able to locate uh, production facilities around the world, um, you know, as a as a as an individual worker or even as one small union. Um, so the, the 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 Soviet Union fell, I think, in ninety one. Uh, that was after, right after the Gulf War, where it was a unipolar world, regardless of what happened in Iraq. George Herbert Walker Bush established that America was the dominant force in the world. There was no competition. It was the end of history. Uh, And then the Soviet Union fell within months, I believe. And then Clinton becomes president the next year. Can you blame, despite the lies, can you blame the American people starting in 92, for buying into the idea that our system works, that, you know, forget the truth, that forget that we were looting, that that we ended up looting Moscow and turning it into a kleptocracy. <laughs> forget what the truth is. There, you can't understand how the American people starting in 92 bought into the Reagan myth, the cult, we won the Cold War, our system is superior, let's, let's just go all in on this free market and capitalism, even though it was a lie. But the American, it was easy to sell that to the American people, right? Um, yeah, I, I suppose uh, it was. I mean, you know, for some people, you know, the idea that uh, the victory of capitalism was a final victory in world history. And so, um, you know, I think for people on the left, for labor unions, um, for uh, people who were social, you know, social Democrats, even it was um ideologically difficult to make the case for why we needed a peace dividend, right? I mean, because that's the thing is that there were a lot of choices and decisions that were made about the disposition of the U.S. economy, the U.S. budget. Um, You know, did we have to continue to be investing so much money in, um, you know, the military? How come none of that was redistributed to domestic needs and priorities? I mean, that political choice didn't, um, you know, you know, didn't redound to the benefit of the people. Um, so I think opportunities right there were lost. I mean, it would have been possible at that time, um, you know, to say, OK, if capitalism is such a great system and it has proven victorious, Um, Now that there isn't this, you know, geopolitical need for extra investment in the military, it should be very possible under a form of capitalism to, you know, in make investments in health, education, you know, environmental sustainability, you know, and, and, uh, you know, increase global prosperity. But in fact, actually, the way it was interpreted was the idea that, um, 
you know, uh, we will just send production. So no more kind of, uh, you know, good, stable jobs. Everybody has to be a competitor in the global world market. Um, and, you know, we'll offshore this, but there will be a benefit to you because the way the system is going to work is you're going to get cheap goods, right. you know, as consumers that with low interest rates, <laughs> you can finance and have a convince yourself that you're actually having an improved standard of living, even though real wages have, have stagnated or fallen. And even though this is really a kind of a shell game of the impoverishment of everybody around the world. And this was sold to us as, um, you know, the great scheme of the future. Um, and, um, you know, this, the, the problem is, is that at that time, the left was so, crushed already in the United States had been undermined since the 1960s and the 1970s labor unions, you know, were weakening. And um, there was also no, you know, as I say, global rival. So there was the weakening of the left basically everywhere in the world. So we were not able to make the case that if we've won the cold war, then how about enjoying some of the fruits of this so-called right. victory right. that never happened. There was a there was a shock to the left and to left of center Democrats in that we all hated Reagan. He comes he takes office in 81 saying crazy stuff like Russia's an evil empire. We have to destroy communism. And people on on the center left Democrats are saying, no, you know, detente, coexist with Russia. No, we're going to destroy Russia. And within, by the end of his administration, it's crumbling. And by the end of Bush's administration, which was an extension of the Reagan administration, it was gone. It was unimaginable. So then you have Clinton coming in and everything... Democrats like him thought maybe uh, they were they could be talked into a much more neoliberal. Uh, I'm just. Yeah, they could be talked into it because they had left the natural coalition that brought them FDR for several terms. Yeah, but you know, there was a zeitgeist. I hate to use the term zeitgeist. Oh, go ahead. I don't okay. mind it. There, there was an anxiety of influence. I hate to use that term, but there, <clears throat> there, there was at that time this. You could be not forgiven, but it's un, you can understand how left of center Democrats their worldview was shattered by the fall of the Soviet Union. No, am I completely off base? I don't know. I, I even as a kid wondered, you know, when it was going to like either collapse or transform. I thought it was a ludicrous system then that was sooner or later going to, you know, collapse of its own weight. But then again, I thought our system was too, <laughs> only at a later date. Um, and, you know, we're back to still the people in our State Department wanting to destroy Russia. Right. And also to destroy uh, China. Right. I would love to, I, I hope that Grace would be on tonight. I'd love to hear her take on the 
the this this additional uh, contingent of Americans who went over to Taiwan. I think Senator Markey was one of them. And what are they really? I mean, realistically, what are they hoping to achieve? I mean, I don't know. It, it's do do they really want to like? you know, a goad China into a shooting war eventually. I, it's, I mean, I mean, well, Professor I, uh, An Lee had, ta- had talked about, you know, how China and Taiwan were actually economically tied together at the hip at this mm-hmm. point. So uh, uh, I, I don't know what it was that the, was that the fear that actually that Taiwan and China might eventually get together I mean, they are still one. That's our official policy. But I mean that, you know, the the, the little frostiness would thaw just because of the economic ties. I don't know. Well, I, th- I think it goes back to what uh, Adnan was talking about. Um, you know, in 1991, we were at a crossroads. We could have gone in one direction, which I think was would have been supported by the American people for sure that, you know, go in the direction of a peace dividend and start investing in our economy, a productive economy instead of the military industrial complex. But uh, as uh, Marianne just mentioned, you know, it seems the U S has to have an enemy. Uh, and we chose to go in the direction of increasing our, uh, our global footprint, military uh, footprint, uh, the, the spending on the military. Um, and, and I'd like to point out the other thing, you know, uh, Adnan identified what I think is probably the most important reason why we're different than Europe in terms of social spending, uh, which is the, the, the strength of the labor movement. Um, but the second, another very important one is the, um, the political institutions. Uh, Europe, for the most part, is more democratic than than United States when it comes to political institutions. You know that they don't have. You mean parliamentary uh, parliamentary systems? Yeah. Uh, you know, representative uh, proportional representation. Um, Multiple parties can electorally succeed and have representation in government and negotiate coalitions to you know, have certain policies be part of a governing coalition that wouldn't ever happen in the U.S. Yeah, right. I mean, our system excludes third parties or other parties uh, because of its structure. It forces us into these two parties, which many people are not happy with and which accounts for, you know, low voter engagement in elections. It's our, our voter turnout is lower than most uh, European countries and the outputs are different, right? Uh, the, you're familiar with the study out of Princeton that, that showed that there's no uh, real correlation between what the non-wealthy want in this country and policy outcomes. Is That's country, important, too. What, what is the difference in population between the EU and America? It's about the same, right? Uh, yeah, the EU, yes. So isn't the problem that 
we're unmanageable, that perhaps the Republicans uh, with their states' rights and secession, they, they, that we might be better off breaking the country up or at least have a federation, a less united Republic. I don't know. Didn't China just wipe, wipe out poverty for like hundreds of millions of people? And it's got like well over a billion. But at what price? I mean, well, that depends on who you ask. OK, I, I, I would mean, be more. We have a freedom. We can like die early and live on the street, live in tents. But what we have our freedom. I don't know. I, I think it makes more sense to uh, try more representative political institutions than to break up the country. Yeah. Could the could Europe survive with the EU as the, the EU Parliament as the Parliament? Would it be as effective? Professor Hussein, you have a look on your face. Well, I don't think so. I mean, they don't have the institution to overcome, you know, uh, the all these different nation states. I mean, look, we just had Brexit. Um, you know, any attempt also to reverse austerity. Uh, so, you know, comparatively, it's a lot better than the United States, but they are still under regimes of austerity. Any attempt to reverse that going to be very, very difficult. Um, and um, you will have countries, other countries leaving, um, I think. Uh, and in, in terms of tribalism and grudges, we accept if you look at Bosnia and the Serbs and the Croatians and the, the, the centuries old rivalries and hatreds, we accept that. Uh, here in America, we're not willing to accept that there are tribal divisions and identity. I mean, I look at this guy, Ch Congressman Chip Roy from Texas, and I watch him speak uh, in Congress about guns and whatever. And I have a, a visceral tribal resentment towards Chip Roy and, uh, you know, a more perfect union. I don't see Chip Roy and I, I think I'm as, uh, I might as well be Serbian and he might as well be Croatian, but we're not willing to, to recognize these tribal, uh, are we? Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. We, we, um, play, you know, we play with tribalism in America. But it's synthetic. It's manufactured. We really don't re <laughs> respect it the way we would with the Europeans. Is that correct? Um, well, OK, um, let me say this. Uh, we just got, I got off a PDA organizing call. Uh, we hired a guy to, in, who goes to Washington University in St. Louis, right around the corner from where I grew up, right. to uh, jumpstart YPDA, the youth wing of PDA, which, of course, everybody, it was a college-based thing, and all the people who were in it before the pandemic aren't in college anymore. So we're sort of a little bit starting from scratch. Anyway, so he was organizing a Missouri chapter. I was thrilled. 
that one gentleman from Raleigh, Rala, is it Rala? Yeah, Rala, Missouri, said um, until um, the second impeachment trial, he had been supporting Trump. And now he was joining progressive Democrats. And that was heartening to me. I was happy about that. And I'd be interested to see maybe if he can speak to some of his uh, Trump supporting people and uh, and uh, see if they can be drawn over to progressive politics. I mean, look, my standard critique of um, of the you know, neoliberalism and what you guys were talking about a little while ago before you got on to nationalism. And obviously in America, it pertains to ethnicity, whiteness, you know, um, settler colonial state, uh, slavery and all these issues in America, as opposed to distinct nation states like in Europe. But, um, you know, what you're talking about a while ago, um, you know, I think that um, neoliberalism, which, you know, is, is still the way the society is ordered. Um, it really sort of collapsed in 0708 and um there was a, a lag in the political response because Barack Obama had just been elected and uh, what's happened in this broke out in the 2016 election was a response a critical response in electoral politics from the right and the left to neoliberalism and if you look at it that way you can see that it's not uh that much of a stretch to think that some of the Trump supporters you know they arrive at this sort of ethno-nationalist informed reactionary ideology. Uh, but, you know, Trump would rail against what he saw as like a, the, a signature component of neoliberalism, which were the trade deals. By the way, I should let you guys know, and this is a secret, so everybody, nobody's hearing this, okay? Nobody, I'm, we're don't be, worry, on this gonna, show, it'll still be a secret. <laughs> here, here's, here's something we got to lean into the Biden administration to not be so god-awfully stupid that, that this doesn't become public. But those motherfuckers are so stupid that they're renegotiating a neoliberal trade deal uh, in and around the Pacific. And it's, you know, being done in secret because they have to win the midterms just to protect the God, you know, the, the democracy is this, 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 you know, uh, fragile democracy we have here. And, you know, I do think in terms of weakening the Trumpian right, a democratic victory in the midterms, even in this, you know, for, you know, the, the, with the party where it is right now, which is terribly unsatisfying, it will be devastating to the Republicans. It will produce an incredible avalanche of, you know, inside. retribution with inside inside the Republican Party if they fail to win either House of Congress in an off year election against Joe Biden. And that'll be brilliant to see. But these idiots, if, it, if people get wind of the fact that they're negotiating, you know, a neoliberal trade deal. <laughs> just, yeah, they deserve to lose it if that if that comes. I mean, it's in secret. I don't know what they're doing. Um, but, you know, Trump's. Renegotiation of NAFTA was better than the original. But other than that, he didn't do shit to break from neoliberalism. He just confirmed all the Republican elements of it. So not to defend Trump or the racism, there are now two workers for every open job. I'm sorry, there are two jobs for every unemployed worker. A, all these people dropped out of the labor market. The drop out of the labor market started in 07 and 08. They, by, by 2020, even by 2020, I think the size of the national labor force had just caught up and surpassed okay, where but, it was but, in 07. Does, Trump, does Trump's racism, his anti-immigration, is that partly responsible? And, and his renegotiating NAFTA, does he get any credit for labor now having leverage because there is a labor shortage here now 
by cracking down. I mean, that was how it was sold to us. You crack down on immigrants. I think what's happened is, is that we were at the point where the baby boomers are dropping out of the labor market now. And that was always going to be a bubble. And there would have been an expectation of lower unemployment in this set of years where you're going to have um, you know, and the, the new immigrants who come into the country haven't had as many kids as maybe they're. they're okay, but I, I, you know more than I do on this, but mm -hmm. it seems mm -hmm. to me when he shut the borders, I think before covid food was rotting because nobody could pick it. Not a good thing. But the promise that was made to us is this labor shortage will force wages to go up. Professor Ann Lee, do you remember this? That's what everyone's expectations are. But the problem, of course, is that inflation is really problematic now that uh, <laughs> we even see the Fed waffling about it. So, you know. You're talking about wage inflation. Yes. Right. But is it possible that Trump is partly responsible for workers by, by building the, this fictitious wall and keeping immigrants out and renegotiating a trade deal? Has he protect? Does he get any credit? He's a racist and he's ruined lives. But does he get any credit for this labor shortage? I think uh, COVID gets more credit than Trump, but that's just me. Okay. Yeah, and the dro dropping out of the labor force uh, in, in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Okay. Uh, well, thank you to Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Professor Adnan. Har uh, Professor Harvey Kay isn't here tonight. I, if anybody, wa anybody wants to stick around, you've been so generous. Everybody's so generous, so I don't want to... Uh, but I ask for things. If you want to stick around and talk to Alan uh, about what happened on Tuesday and what what the midterms look like, you know, uh, Liz Cheney. Wow. I'm sorry. What I saw uh, I saw on YouTube. Yet yeah, Liz Cheney was your uh, was your cover photo. So you guys have been all been listening. You know, so Adnan and, and uh, Professor Marianne and Ann Lee and Jonathan Bick, you've all been having a big Liz Cheney love fest. No, I, I think uh, we all know the problems with her and her father. He should be frog marched, as should she. I mean, she supports water uh, boarding, but you make your alliances. It's politics. You you have to make. You can't have purity tests when there seems to be, or am I missing something? A serious threat coming from the right. Right now, so one thing that, I mean, so she's I am assuming she is anti-choice. So she supports the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade, at least publicly, mm -hmm. because, you know, for someone like her who grew up in Virginia and, you know, whatever the background of the Cheney family may be, by the time she's born, obviously the guy's a super powerful American force inside the Republican Party. Right. Uh, so she's got we're growing up totally elite. You know, and, and does anybody really think she's swayed by the evangelical Christian uh, you know, dogma on on uh, abortion. I don't know. I don't really buy that. But you know, she's not a big enough kid to, you know. I mean, what is what does the Dobbs ruling mean? It means a lot of dead women, you know, who are going to be desperate to try to resolve their pregnancies. Yeah. You know, and there's just no other development. You know, the United States keeps keeps plummeting down a all mortality. these social, in but all the indexes. If you take out aggregate wealth and you look at standard social welfare indices. 
among the prosperous countries, the United States is really has a profile of a non-prosperous country with all this, you know, aggregate wealth. And this is just another instance of it. Women who die during childbirth, we're, we're, we have the highest number of women dying from childbirth and in the states with the most restrictive abortion laws, they something like 20 times higher death rates for for mothers. Are I done, Professor Marianne Inley, and I see Jonathan's still here. Are there other people here? Because I have a, I have something. You all are really, really, really super smart people. This Feldman guy's, you know, he, he can think a thing to do as well. But do you know that if they codify Roe v. Wade, the the line is right now that if Congress were to return and do that, and they had a filibuster carve out and they passed it, that had they done that before Roe v. Wade was reversed by the Dobbs ruling, it probably would have allowed it to stay. But for some reason, that would have meant it was established law. But now that it's been removed, that the um, basically prevailing logic of these conservatives on the court, they would overturn it if the Congress were to codify it. And so we're really in a pickle about this. And this is something that we've been thinking a lot about. I've been thinking a lot about trying to get in as much dialogue as possible, because I think one of the things that we need to do as progressives who are going to vote for Democrats in the midterms, they say, we got to get as much out of this group as possible. And what can we get? We know we can get voting rights through a filibuster carbon, right? Let's get the right of women to control their bodies out of a filibuster carbon. But it looks like we're going to have to thread the needle in a way that the, the conservatives on the Supreme Court will not shoot it down. And so I've been... You know, there's some good articles about it. You can find them online. But people should check it out. And we really, we should not accept intellectual defeat on this from these fuckers from the Federalist Society. We got to think through what their proposed, what their logic is, the way they're shooting it down, and come up with something that they can't shoot down. Right. Let me play you. Uh, did some, uh, am I interrupting anybody? Professor Lynch? Well, no, I well, I just I just wanted to ask um, Alan, given, you know, uh, what Kansas showed that there might be real voter interest in reversing attempts to place uh, restrictions on women's rights. Um, what about um, putting and th that was sort of a negative victory in the sense that you're stopping you know, a ballot proposition or, um, you know, that would that would restrict rights. What about uh, going on the, you know, offensive of um, passing referenda, putting them on the ballot and passing referenda for the November elections, if it's still possible? Maybe it's it's too late, but this is something think, that should have been I, done. I, actually think, I still think the majority of states don't even have ref referenda like that. So only a set of them do. It's not all it's not all, you know, Democratic states. I mean, Florida famously had it. Obviously, Kansas has it, but not that many states have them. And uh, a little more than a while ago. But um, yeah, it was probably too late to get on the ballot for this November anyway. Um, so I've been trying to think through, you know, ways to do it, because, of course, I want to see the Democratic Party run on like a contract with America where they say we're going to you know, codify Roe v. Wade. We're going to pass voting rights you know, uh, preserve the democracy, strengthen in whatever ways they can through the filibuster carve out. Because they, they can get to 52 senators, the heavier lift electorally is, is holding on to the House. Alan, do you really think that that uh, can be put in before the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, November? Um, what do you mean? It, um, the carve out and the um, 
No, uh, it would have to be in January after the new Congress is seated. So, you know, I, well, I that's, don't. That's playing with the, the kind of problem of what counts as conventional wisdom, whether whether the you know there still is a, a mainstream media position that the that the GOP is gonna is gonna prevail. Well, the 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 generic polls now have the Democrats pulling even, but yeah, I think the the fact that the um, House majority is so tiny, um, and it, it really comes down to about fifty to seventy five swing seats. Yeah. By the way, very few progressive Democrats are even up for election in those seats. They tend to be suburban. Um, and I, I just can't see it, it, it would have to be the, the momentum of the Democrats would have to increase between now and. Well, and, it, and un, unfortunately, I'm too naive or idealistic about it. But frankly, you know, given that there are 147 seditionists technically on the on the GOP from uh, January 6th, seems to me that more more hay should be made out of that relative to the uh, midterm election. I don't know if. I, I guess my disappointment is with the Democrats trying to, um, unlike the GOP, that that you know uh, Trump has managed to uh, 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 eliminate all all ten people who voted you know voted yeah. pro impeachment. <laughs> uh, that why isn't why aren't the Democrats tarring all of those uh, uh, you know seditionists uh, for that? Um. I mean, for what it's worth, you know, there were, you know, the, there were not many Democrats who, who turned their back on the Build Back Better agenda. They, they actually passed it in the House with a uniform vote and it was only Manchin and Sinema that publicly opposed it. Of course, it, it was a little bit of kabuki theater because we all know that Gottheimer and those guys were, they probably knew Manchin and Sinema were going to pull that crap. That's true. But again, look into the whole, the whole legal ruling. What it is, is that Roe v. Wade is based on the 14th Amendment. And apparently the, um, the these Federalist Society judges will say that they are, of course, committed to defending the 14th Amendment, but that Roe v. Wade represent an expansion of the definition of it. And therefore, they're not they will not. Um, so they would reverse it now if they if it was codified. So we have to pass abortion, universal abortion rights through the Congress in a way that will get around it. People talk about um interstate commerce clauses, but again, people don't think that would hold up. And it does seem absurd when you step away from it. Why the fuck can't they just legalize abortion? You know? But Well, I, I've got I've got to say, Alan, I mean you you're um <clears throat> assuming that the uh the Federalist Society judges, as you're calling them, uh are um taking their uh, jurisprudence seriously that is the their legal arguments seriously uh you know if they want to do something the supreme court can do whatever it wants uh you know if they think they can get away with it they'll do it uh i i think that that should not prevent us from codifying uh roe versus or our right to an abortion um and you know if they're going to try that, that's going to be even more of an overreach, right? Because if you have the Democrats being reelected, that if they hold on to Congress and then they pass a law that legalizes abortion and then the Supreme Court comes in and says, oh, no, you can't do that. That's going to cause even a, a greater backlash. Um, but as far as, you know, the uh, intellectual integrity of the uh, extreme conservatives on the Supreme Court, I, I wouldn't 
count on that for much. Sure. You know, great points. And um, there are people that I've been talking to that, that basically make the argument. But again, you know, I'm just going off like an article, the New Yorker, their response to the Dobbs decision was uh, they wrote an article about codifying Roe v. Wade. And then there was another outlet, I think might have been Forbes, basically said the same thing. And then there was an article I picked up that agreed again with that, that they're this is something they're going to shoot down because they're they're they apparently they built up this literature of criticism of the way that Roe operates through the Fourteenth Amendment over the years, and so they've staked out this position. You know, whatever you're right, absolutely right. They're doing it because you know it's it's their politics, and it's their it's what they're about. Um, I mean, obviously, look at the Gore versus Bush decision. That was to not set precedent. <laughs> you know, right. They're just going to rule it. Right. They um, literally right. said. Nothing from this ruling can be used for f future stare decisis. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We've well, got to thank the Cheney's part for that. So. What would have happened? Well, I, was gonna, I don't want to do alternative history. <laughs> so the good news going into the midterms is that it looks pretty certain that the Dems will pick up seats in the Senate, Right. No, not necessarily. Nevada could be tough. And of course, look, if inflation just, you know, starts going back up, they're going to be in deep, deep trouble. I don't see how they can survive. If it, I mean, right now, the inflation rate from June to July officially, as it's reported, because, you know, they adjusted over time. Um, but as it's officially reported now, there was no inflation from June to July in the country and the indexes that they use. And gas so is going it, down. You know, what? Get the price of gas is going down, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And enough of the commodities that were producing the inflation index have adjusted their supply, so that it's back in sync. We're, we're pre-war um, with commodities, aren't we? Where we were before the invasion of Ukraine. Right. What do you mean? I, I thought I thought that all the inflation from Ukraine has been erased, caused by Ukraine. But as bad as the supply chain issues emanating from Ukraine are, that we're back to where we were inflation-wise on commodities. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know how it's been for people out there, but you know, I go to the same Trader Joe's mostly, and it's been pretty, pretty. And then the regular supermarkets, I'm never in my life in the United States have supermarkets looked a little bit like the old Soviet Union, you know, on the shelves. I mean, there's been things missing. I Trader Joe's, uh, a, a Trader Joe's voted to go union and Trader Joe's pulled a Starbucks and said, we're shutting you down. We're shutting down this Trader Joe's. That's what uh, Starbucks has done, and that's what Chipotle, Chipotle did in Augusta, Maine. Uh, is that legal? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's supposed to be. But the National Labor Relations Board is understaffed and you know under resourced. Well, we you know, yeah. Well, let us go to Joe in Norway who. It did something while Professor Adnan Hussein was talking, and I don't think you noticed it, but he had he was boiling tomatoes and then quickly put them in ice water 
Did you notice that, Professor Hussein? Because you were ta- you were able to talk while he was doing that. I'm really getting hungry. I know. So I was focusing a little bit more than I probably should have been on what Joe was doing. But yeah, he's made some moves and it looks like he's uh, ready to present his delicious looking um, gazpacho. Why don't you publish your recipes, Joe? I'm working on getting that all set up. So okay. in, in time, we'll have it all available. You are so, amazing. Uh, you, you keep getting. Anyway, go ahead. So tell us what you made. Thank you very much. I ended up just doing two today. Um, so this is uh, a tomato, celery, paprika, shallot, and garlic gazpacho with a soaked old, you take old baguette and soak it in water and then um you can use it to make it creamy. Ah. For this one, this one is celery and cucumber. And I used uh, almond milk. So I, I made blanch the almonds. Similar, same concept with blanching the almonds, you put them into boiling water. So you do the same thing with tomatoes, briefly put them in, in hot water that scalds the outside just enough so that you can peel off the, the skin. And then you submerge it in the ice and then it completely stops the cooking and then you can peel it so you don't get the skin. Hmm. Wow. It's, it's art. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And you do it in about an hour. Roughly. I took my time on this one. Yeah. Amazing. And you just need a, a blender or a, a blender on a stick. And your talent. And, and it's a fantastic uh, summer soup that you can just drink. You can make it as thick or as thin as you want. So we tend to thin it out if we're just drinking to get hydrated. And just keep it chilled in the, the refrigerator for a few days and you're good to go. Wow. You can do all manner of combinations as well with vegetables. You, you need a cooking channel. You do, David. You should have a situation set up where that when Joe is on and he's cooking, the visual should always be what Joe is doing, and the rest of us are just sort of <laughs> history, history theater thirty thousand. You know, we need cutaways. Just the silhouette of us. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it really <laughs> adds to the converse. It's 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 like the hearth. We're we're sitting around. We're not eating together. We're being tortured together. We're looking <laughs> at food and getting progressively hungrier and marveling. But mm. it it is a it is pretty amazing what you've added to this. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It's great, Professor yeah. Jonathan. Yeah, may I ask um, uh, Alan a uh, question about the filibuster? So. Uh, let's say the Democrats uh, add some seats in the Senate. Uh, I would like to see them. Uh, I would like to see progressives push them to eliminate the filibuster entirely, uh, not push for carve outs. And this would also have the good effect of uh, eliminating this ludicrous procedure we call reconciliation where the Senate, a Senate parliamentarian uh, gets enormous power 
that this is an unelected uh, person who, you know, should not be deciding what can and cannot become legislation. Um, so by eliminating the filibuster, you eliminate the need for reconciliation and uh, you have at least you're closer to uh, majority rule in the Senate. I certainly agree with you. And it, it's, it's a PDA's policy and a number of our progressive allies policies to support that. I mean, obviously, the Republicans get the White House and the two chambers of Congress and look out. But, uh, you know, that's something you just have to live with. And, and uh, you know, um, again, you know, one of the things that is interesting about this midterms, if we can uh, deliver a defeat for the Republicans, it, it, I, I, there's a good chance we'd see such internecine warfare inside that party. Even if um, they get this, if they lose the Senate. If they lose, if the, if the Democrats return with the, the House, the Senate and the presidency with Joe Biden as the president, you know, the, the Republican Party is going to, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of recriminations between the two wings of that. What party. about if they if they get the House, but not the Senate? If they get anything, they'll be fine. Right. I see. Because they'll, they'll stop the government. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're a very disciplined party once they hold one of the houses. Um, You know, I totally agree, Jonathan. Um, My sense was that. um. I don't know the appetite among the 50 senators. And there's going to be a few change outs like, you know, Leahy will be gone and Welch will be in. I don't think Leahy was a problem there. But, you know, I, again, I had the sense that Manchin and Cinema were, were carrying water for a, a number of people there probably. Now, the one, per, one person who doesn't support removing the filibuster but does support a carve out is Joe Biden. But, you know, ostensibly he has no influence on the matter. I mean, he does have influence. He doesn't have a vote. Um, I mean, he could try to direct Harris's vote, but I think she wouldn't uh, oblige. Um, but, um, um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. But I just don't know that there's the appetite with these really existing Democrats to do that. Oh, but I, I know I, I agree with you entirely. Uh, but I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it's one of the reasons why, uh, our government doesn't work, uh, because no matter who the, who the people vote for, um, the minority can block legislation so that you know you're the government is supposed to reflect uh the preferences of the people and if you have a chamber of of, of the legislature uh that is constantly blocked by a minority voice then the government cannot represent the people it's a it's a it's a counter democratic operation the u.s senate on a number of planes including six-year terms yeah. um and of course as it's evolved the cost of senate seats are astronomical um though you know that's a double-edged sword if you use as you can see now the democrats are going to very much be competitive in wisconsin ohio pennsylvania north carolina almost every senate seat that's in play um not in the house the house that's why the house is also so difficult it's easier to buy these seats and the republicans just have their game together they always have well, and also the House can be gerrymandered. The districts can be gerrymandered. If we had proportional representation, there would be no gerrymandering. It would be impossible. Um, but again, we don't have that. I think that's a major problem. Uh, and, and that's another reason why our government is not representative, because the politicians are picking the voters instead of the voters picking the politicians. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, one thing too, um, this is that, yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. The one thing going back, I was listening to you guys that I thought was a little bit of an underreported component of the China Taiwan thing and Pelosi's visit and now the other people. Um, the ships legislation, which was designed in, you know, intentionally constructed to be, um, you know, against China, right? Um, the People's Republic of China actually ended up in specificity being more of a target against Taiwan's industrial production. And, and, you know, Taiwan doesn't have nearly the kind of breadth of production that China has. In fact, they have one key thing that they contribute to the global economy that they have a total um, corner on the market on, which is on chips. <laughs> and this is what the bill is specifically focused on. So that bill was viewed by Taiwan as um, they didn't like it. In fact, they've responded by announcing that because now the U.S. government is going to be supplementing the production of um, uh, you know, chip production in the domestic United States, they're going to um, directly supplement the Taiwanese company, including the one that has like 50% of the global market, apparently, um, is a Taiwanese company, um, at least of some type of chips, and uh, but the biggest product producer in the world. So that's a huge part of their economy. And I, I just wonder if that was, I, no, I don't wonder. I'm, I'm confident that was part of the reason that all of this happened. Um, you know, they produced this bill, the chips bill. It's the closest thing we've had to an element of almost like industrial policy being passed by the U.S. Congress. And, um, and lo and behold, it's intended to be against mainland China. And in, in, in actuality, it's actually more of a blow to Taiwan. And I think they probably felt like they had to, had to shore things up because of that. But it's part of what I think played out and it was an element of it. I mean, it's a huge bill, hugely important bill. Um, you know, it's not going to play out as much in the politics of what has been achieved because it's bipartisan. And this one was actually really more bipartisan than the infrastructure bill. The way this bill was initially uh, rewritten, um, it, it came out of Ro Khanna's office. It went to the Senate. When it came back from the Senate, it had all these anti-Chinese, all this anti-Chinese language in it um, as industrial policy. Are you frozen? Well, we better get those chips made as soon as possible because Alan <laughs> Minsky has frozen. Uh, I think, yeah, he's frozen. Uh, all right. We should call it a night. Right, Professor Bick? Yes. I Is there anything so. else you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, just to mention that I will not uh, be presenting at office hours this weekend. Uh, I'll be traveling. So, um, just so everyone knows that I, I, we, we, it's noticed. It's, it's been reflected in the schedule, but, uh, no. no twilight zone, hmm. no twilight zone Star Trek this week. Okay. Hang on. I just have to make a note to add you to my shit list. Hang on for one second. Now, <laughs> but uh, I, on, I may be my, reporting to... in from a Star Trek convention. So, are you going to a Star um, Trek convention? I am, yeah. Where are you going? I'm going to Ticonderoga, New York. Um, where, Is that where the uh, pens come from? This pencil yes, the pencils, yes. Really? Well, they used to. They don't make them there anymore, And of isn't course. Ticonderoga famous for, wasn't there some revolutionary war battle? Yes, the Fort uh, Ticonderoga. Made is, out of pencils. 
they proved no, that the man. pencil was mightier than the sword in the battle of <laughs> if only yeah what, what, what was it a revolutionary war battle it, yes it was and the fort is still there and it's a major uh, tourist attraction there wow we were driving through new jersey and i i it it finally sunk in how vital new jersey was to the revolutionary war it all took place basically in philadelphia new jersey new york and a little bit of Boston, but not much. N not to offend you. Oh well, I, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to, you're going to a Star Trek convention. This is true. Yes. Do you dress up? No, I don't dress up. But um, uh, many of uh, your audience members would like me to. And, and who are you? Who, uh, who's your favorite? Uh, Star Trek character. Is that person going to be there? Uh, no, because he's dead. But, uh, you know, Mr. Spock or Leonard Nimoy was my my favorite character. Yeah. Alan Minsky, you're back. I'm back. But I, I imagine we want to wind down. So I don't know. This has happened a few times around this time of night. My Internet connection drops. So sorry about that. What are you reading for pleasure? Uh, almost nothing. Um, oh, boy. Um. You know, for the first time in a long time, I got drawn into watching some true crime shows. I'd done it in years because my daughter got into this character, Slenderman. And there's an HBO documentary about it. And yeah, yeah, I watched it. And it's like, well, that was, that was chilling. Hey, maybe this is uh, fun to watch this stuff. But yeah, I, I watched through a bunch of the stuff and sort of got tired of it. But I'm thinking of watching the one by Errol Morris called Wormwood because I really liked Errol Morris. And Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I remember when we interviewed him for that and, uh, I started watching, it wasn't that, I find it that compelling, but, um, uh, maybe that'll be the end of my run of watching true crime. I just tend to read things like the London review of books and Harper's articles and, um, New York review of books and Jacobin articles and not uh, having been reading anything. To, to Boy, I can't from. believe Ron DeSantis doesn't love you. <laughs> hey, he's a fellow Yaley. So, you know. Uh, what are you reading, Professor Bick? Oh, my goodness. What am I reading? Uh, I've been reading uh, a lot of short stories. Uh, you know, there's an FU uh, that is a Feldman University uh, book club. And uh, we've been reading uh, short stories by some of the greats. Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Melville. Wow. We're going to be reading some Faulkner coming up. Wow. Yeah. One sentence of Faulkner's is a short story. <laughs> it's right. I, I understand it's quite challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Is that on Discord? It is. Yeah. Ever, uh, Tuesday at 730. How does everybody have Eastern time? time? Where, does pe where do people find the time? I don't know. We keep it short. You know, it's after work. I know, but it's an hour or so. I'm amazed at people, what people have time for. Well, we won't see Professor Jonathan Bick at Office Hours. Next week, Harvey J.K., the author of The British Marxist Historians, will be joining us. And Alan Minsky, Executive Director of, Exec of Progressive Democrats of America. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Professor Bick. 
Who has their air conditioner on? I don't. Who has air conditioning on right now? Alan Minsky? Joe in Norway? No. Professor Jonathan Bick? Nobody has air conditioning on. Oh, Alan Minsky does, but you're in L.A. Okay. Thank you so much. Let's go to Mexico. Rodrigo in Mexico. Hey, David. Grace has a theory that you're not really in Mexico. She does? Yeah. We think, we're, we think you're in Brooklyn. That's... Ah. I think you're a Hasidic Jew in Brooklyn. You've said that before. Yeah, I, I, I think you're. I think you're pretending to be in Mexico. How many languages do you speak? Four: Japanese, English, Spanish, Spanish and French. French. I'm starting to forget uh, Japanese and French, but well, you know. So I was arguing with an idiot who told me I wasn't smart enough to follow his conversation when I explained what he was actually saying, and that inspired me to make a short list of states' rights. Abortion is a state's right, and the federal government has no right to impose guidelines on the states unless Republicans get enough votes to ban it federally, which they're trying, and then it's not a state's right anymore. Hmm. Protections for LGBTQ should depend on the state unless the federal government bans them and then they're a federal issue. Florida recently decided to no longer cover healthcare for trans adults. Healthcare in general is a state's issue, which is why 12 states are still refusing free money for the Medicare expansion, unless they can dismantle the whole thing and then it's a federal issue. Gun legislation is a state's right unless the federal government gets rid of all gun controls and then it's a federal issue. And when I say a federal issue, I mean they want to ban blue states from protecting people, not just that red states shouldn't be persecuted for wanting to enslave their own people. Slavery, speaking of, was one of the original state's rights and it's a state's rights issue unless the federal government decides slavery is legal in prison, and then it's a federal issue. Quote, right to work, in quote, states have passed laws to allow people to enjoy the benefits of union negotiations without paying union dues, which, as intended, has resulted in unions getting gutted. But if the entire United States could become right to work, that would be a federal issue. There's a 99-year-old woman working six days a week, working in a Chick-fil-A, and that's the future they want. Yes. A Florida teacher t training video now downplays the role of slavery in U.S. history, which is legal because it's a state's right. Unless Betsy DeVos takes back Titan 9 protections for children, making it harder to punish bullies without getting sued, and then that's a federal thing. Recently, we started to hear about death panels, mostly in red states, because doctors and nurses keep dying or resigning and hospitals run out of inventory, but it's okay because they're not Obama's death panels, which sounds very much like GOP voters objected to the Obama part of death panels 10 years ago, but you know. This list is not meant to be exhaustive, and I'm not even trying to get people to realize there is no actual consistency in the GOP, 
What I'm hoping people will realize is that they will flip-flop on anything and everything. A few weeks ago in Texas, an 8-year-old girl was told by a pharmacist she can't have her autoimmune medication without proof that she's not pregnant. This is not an aberration. This throwing your weight around and not caring who becomes collateral damage is what the system is supposed to do. And I want everyone to realize that anyone could be next. I mentioned weeks ago that also in Texas, a lawyer is trying to sue to close down clinics that provide PrEP, which helps people with HIV live mostly normal lives, because according to him, this encourages gay sex. And someone I know down there relies on one of these clinics for something else. In general, abortion services are 2% of the services provided by Planned Parenthood. This means 1 in 50 of, of their services is for abortion. In many places in the United States, this is the only free clinic they have access to. Let me repeat this. Anyone could be next, not just your loved ones. You could be next. The MAGA Trumpers turned on the FBI. Now, as I pointed out, on Twitter, all the Dell courtists talking about defunding the FBI never said anything about defunding Homeland Security, but again, there is nothing these dead cultists won't flip-flop on. They have flip-flopped on everything except tax cuts for the rich and abortion now. Some of them even voted against giving healthcare coverage to veterans for the cancers the bone pits gave them in Iraq. And they will probably flip-flop on abortion if they think the numbers work for them. A quick reminder for those who need it that Andrew Yang's plan to pay for UBI is to raise a federal sales tax for everyone, which affects the poor the most, so it's not a real UBI. Also, the word is chipotle. Chipotle, as in Nestlé. Uh, many people are hoping to live to see the day when you pronounce it correctly. Say so, it again. Chipotle. 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 Okay. Now you okay. pronounce union. Sorry? Say union. Union. Say it again. Union. I know you think it sounds like I'm saying union, but... I know. I saw a little prestidigitation there with the, your... Okay. You, you pronounced it union... Then you went back to union, and then you said you pronounced it. David Feldman is a junior. That's what I. <laughs> that's what I heard. That's what I heard. And right. finally, uh, Kefals got docs again and is in hiding. Previously, forced emails pretended to show she was a terrorist, and she woke up with a shotgun pointed at her face. This is a trans socialist living in Canada, by the way, where she's a lot of. Who are you talking about? Uh, trans people in the US. Who are you talking about? Well, uh, she got doxxed by the people who hate her. She's a socialist streamer on Twitch. And she got doxxed by whom? By the right-wingers who hate her, uh, you know who Ben Shapiro is, obviously. Right, uh, and what happened to her? She recently uh, ratioed Ben Shapiro on Twitter, which is when a reply gets more likes than the original tweet. Right. 
and then she raised a quarter million dollars for trans kids charities. And she had previously been doxxed. Uh, her and, mother and she woke, up to, and she woke up to her moderators on Twitch had been doxxed. But this time someone sent emails, fake emails, pretending that she was a terrorist. So the cops woke her up with a shotgun. And uh, she said she was going to fight back, but then she got doxxed again. And now she's hiding somewhere. And again, she's Canadian. She Sorry, you said she's Canadian. She's Canadian, yes. And what's her name? Her streaming name is Kefals. If you look it up, you can find her real name, but I don't want to. Yeah. Play okay. it around. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Rodrigo. That is our show. Great show. Another great show in the dead of summer. Amazing. Thank you to all our guests, Professor Ben Burgess. The Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, Ethan Hershenfeld, Emil Guillermo, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, the professors and Mary Ann, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ann Lee, Professor Jonathan Bick, Joe in Norway, and Alan Minsky, Professor Harvey J.K. will be back with us next week. The show is produced by Dan Frankenberger along with Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Professor Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, and Hannah Feldman. We are, uh, it's the dead of August. I know we have mods who take care of me and my guests on YouTube. And I want to thank them. I don't have their names right now, but thank you to all the mods who keep the chat room in and on YouTube uh, civil. Otherwise, it would turn into what we've got here in, in, on Zoom. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. If, uh, if I have, I haven't, I'm doing a lot of stuff by myself right now. Hopefully next week, somebody will be returning. The office hour invitation comes out with the newsletter. The newsletter is sent out every Friday. With it is the office hours invitation. If you don't get an office hours invitation, go to my website and hit office hours. It'll take you right in to office hours. Please join us. Meet better people at office hours. It's an amazing community. Uh, what else? I think that's it. I think that should be it. Uh, I know I'm forgetting something. It's very hot in here. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Let's go out with some, some music from uh, Professor Mike Steinel. Here we go. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got a Saul Bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. 
I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller, magic kit, so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. Two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. I need my sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high-speed parallax motor because I'm into robotics. And my little red Speedo. I like to do aquatics, I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket in case I get a chill, I'm traveling late. And my rusty old blender A fifth of tequila In case I go on a bender My attorney's number In case I want to change my gender I'm traveling light Expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree. I like to keep my options open, don't you know? A shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read. Some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A. and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list.